Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 55 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, joined as always by my co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we have finally done it, 55 episodes. We are through the end of 2004. This is our third annual year-end extravaganza. For those, for, if for some reason you've come out only in the last year and you haven't listened to the backlog, Every year with the final battle episode, which is the last usual Ring of Honor show of the year, we do a whole episode. Like usual, we cover that show, and then we give out some awards. We talk a bit about the year. We preview the next year or so. Matt, we finally made it through. I think it was 23 episodes to get through 2004. That's right. This is our third annual 55th episode. Um, but no. Um, yeah, I, you know, it. I feel like um, – when I realized this is like the year-end spectacular of 2004, don't you just sort of wish you could go back and tell yourself, no, stay in 2004, don't go forward, just stay. I, um, although, you know, in some ways, 2004 was a pretty upsetting year, too. I remember uh, in December 2004, I was still not over the re-election of George W. Bush. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had some same thoughts. Like, I was thinking like an episode or two ago with the weapon of mass destruction number one, and you know all the jokes about the Iraq War. I was thinking, I, I like flashback to two thousand four, where I sim- like basically like you said, I simultaneously realized like, oh, that was a better time, and also at that time I thought like my life wasn't going very well, and that like, you know, that the world wasn't doing very well, and now I'm like, oh man. 2004 that was a great time we should go back to 2004 yeah i mean i was i was in my last year of college in december 2004 um and you know college was good but it was getting to the end so it was starting to be scary like oh no i have to like be a real person in a few months and how is that possible and it you know it took, <laughs> took a, i wasn't a real person for a while after that but i did get to go to a lot of roh shows at right after college ended so so that was the plus side of that um but yeah, point being, 2020 is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, if you ever like want to give me some tips on how to become a real person, please, uh, after after the show's over, give me some tips because uh, I have yet to achieve that still. But I'll be your um, guru. I, I, maybe this is a side I'm not a real person, which is, you know, this podcast is just a fun, goofy side hobby for us. But like the one t- one of the times each year where i feel real accomplishment or i guess it's more than a year because it takes us more than a year to get through a ring of honor calendar year is one of these year end shows cuz this is kind of a morbid thought but i always feel like if something were to happen to me or we just decided we got bored and quit the podcast or whatever which don't worry i don't think we are anytime soon like um I'd be like, oh, well, at least we covered, you know, the first whole year. At least we covered the first two years. Like, the completionist in me is, like, happy that by the end of this episode, no matter what happens, like, we will have covered three, you know, calendar years of Ring of Honor, which I don't know why that feels satisfying. It shouldn't. It's kind of an arbitrary thing, but it just – it is – it gives me a little endorphin rush when we get to one of these. As somebody with health anxiety and OCD, I completely relate to that. I'm like, you know, yeah, I mean, you know what? We we made it to a milestone. There's some. There's a sense of com- a completion. You know, it's our, it's our permanent record. And yes, I probably will die immediately after this. So <laughs> I, I feel like I'm feeling you on all those things. Yeah, I mean, so and th- that brings us to the plugs actually, because uh, obviously we are still on the great pro wrestling only podcast network. But if you missed for some reason again, quit missing things, missed our last episode. Um, 
We, we have now started our own individual podcast feed that has every episode we've ever done. Um, Matt's been uploading the episodes to YouTube. You know, basically any, pretty much almost most podcast feeds, you know, iTunes, whatever. We're up there now in our own feed. So if you want, you know, I still think the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network's great. You get a whole bunch of podcasts, not just us. But if you have OCD, if you want just us in a feed all neatly collected with our entire archive in one easy-to-access spot, you know, subscribe to your favorite podcast feed. Give us a good review if you feel like it, and we're there. You can listen to the other two year-end episodes. Yeah, and my favorite part about having this my own feed now or our own feed, but it's mine. Um, no, our own feed is that we can <laughs> you see. You set it up to be fair. Well, we could see all the different cities that uh, people download from, and and that's very satisfying. We know that we're we're worldwide. Um, I mean, it's it's really nice. Maybe a little sad also, but that this is what um, that our voices are somehow spreading around the world. It feels like almost like like I'm tainting uh, many other continents with my uh, weird. Neurotic energy, but hey, you know what? It's your problem, not mine. We are huge Listener. and chilly, we have discovered since the last episode. And also, I didn't tell you this, Matt, but when you gave me the – I don't even know if I should say this on air, honestly, but um, what the hell. Um, when you gave me the list of cities that downloaded – I don't know if – is that download any episode or just the recent episode? No, like, I think it's that is, downloading downloaded any of the episodes, yeah. Oh, that makes sense though, because then uh, there is a small city that uh, – uh, someone I used to care about quite a lot apparently has downloaded an episode, and that was my way of discovering that, which was like, huh. And now, and, and, and now this person is has their ears burning again. <laughs> <laughs> Are they going to hear this also? Uh, I have to imagine they only tried to listen to one to just see, oh my god, did they really do this? What the hell are they doing? Um, thank god I am no longer close to this person. <laughs> That's probably what they imagine, man. I mean, we're not in bad terms, just, it's fine. And <laughs> anyway, um, so in addition to covering Final Battle 2004 and all the year-end stuff which comes after we review Final Battle, there's actually quite a bit of news happened between the last Ring of Honor show and this one, so we should just get to it because we got there's, there's a lot to get to. So first off, this is something that will seem only kind of related to Ring of Honor, but as we go through the show, it will you will realize how much it's related to Ring of Honor. This is from The Observer sometime in December of 2004. Uh, let me just scroll up because I accidentally scrolled down. There was an incident backstage at Raw between Mick, Ric Flair and Mick Foley. Flair was talking with Arn Anderson in the cafeteria before the show when Foley came in. Foley asked Flair if he'd sign a book which would be auctioned for, off for charity. Flair then went to shake Foley's hand. Foley wouldn't shake his hand, and Flair threw a punch that connected. Nothing physical happened from there as it was broken up. They both had to sit down with Joe, John Laurinaitis, where it apparently turned into a battle of world-class promos that, if a camera was there, would have been one of the most entertaining things on the show. Flair supposedly refused to concede that Foley was a great wrestler. Supposedly, Flair even challenged Foley to step outside, and Foley said he wasn't going to fight a 55-year-old. Foley then asked who had drawn more money over the past 10 years, and Flair conceded that, to Fo conceded that to Foley, but said he was out there wrestling guys every night like Brody, Hanson, Race, Steamboat, Wahoo, and Foley wasn't in that category of any of those guys from 20 years ago. 
25 years ago. Foley brought up Flair wanting to do a program with him, and Flair said he never requested to do a program with him, just that if asked by management, he would do it. Then Foley said he didn't want to work a, a program with Flair. There was a backstage view that was a work to get a story around and build up a mania match. If I saw it and it was two internet mar wrestler marks in the argument, I'd probably think the same thing. Since Flair and Foley are actually two of the guys who don't even turn on a computer and simply don't think along those lines of doing an angle, I wouldn't be so sure, and let's just say my gut says otherwise. If it's not an angle, I sure don't envy Vince and Laurenitis on this one. They are two passionate people about their legacies, and what they are were arguing about sounded legit, including, including Foley supposedly saying to Flair that, quote, you said you weren't bothered by what I wrote, unquote, and Flair saying he wasn't bothered, and what he wrote in his book was simply a receipt. Others, who would theoretically be more in the know and said it wasn't, tabbed it as both coming across childish arguing about their respective places in the wrestling landscape. We'll all know soon, because it'll be clear within weeks if they are doing a program. So, um, Matt, um, it wasn't clear within weeks. It was clear, you know, they eventually did do a program with each other. I'm, I, I'm pretty confident saying that that was probably a legit argument. Uh, Foley will definitely touch on that in his promo on Final Battle 2004. So I, maybe I didn't go into that final bit, but you need, give you some background of why this is such a topic that comes up. That this happened, you know, weeks before or days before he did the show. And um, I didn't do, put in the Pro Wrestling Torch report because it was basically the same story with a little bit less detail. But the Torch kind of made it sound like – I don't know if they were speaking as a guest or with some kind of authority on this. But they kind of made it sound like that one of the things that maybe got Flair mad was – the Ring of Honor promos Foley was doing where he was – I'm sure Rick probably wasn't watching Ring of Honor DVDs, but probably the word was getting to him maybe that Foley was really going in on him on a couple of those shows. I mean, yeah. I mean I could imagine that. I, all this stuff seems so petty though and like so like just – I don't like I, I could see why people treated it like a big deal you know, 16 years ago, but 16 years later, it just feels like, okay, this was nothing. Who cares? Like, you know, they, uh, you know, Foley, if, when we get to his promo, seemed remorseful about it. They ended up doing business in two different promotions over the next few years. It's, you know, it's, it's just like the, the sort of drama that just feels like a big deal at the time and feels like nothing after a little while. Yeah, I, I do feel like we've been pretty down on the Flair Steamboat feud, or at least certain aspects of it. And I think probably one and the Foley Steamboat feud. We are both fans of the Flair Steamboat. Feud. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oops, <laughs> slip there. Yeah, the Foley Steamboat feud. No, oh, I hate those matches, Matt. They're just terrible. <laughs> the worst. No, but um, we were down the Foley Steamboat feud, and. When I read like all the newsletters coverage of it and the year-end awards, which we'll get to later, they're really high on it uh, to a lot in a lot of ways. But I think maybe one of the reasons why we're more down on is like you just said, where this this was basically I think they even said in the Observer this was basically Ring of Honor's way of doing um the, doing a Flair Foley feud without having access to Flair. And at the time, this was something that fans really were into reading about, and it, you know. Foley did basically a whole shoot interview with with uh, Ring of Honor where like half of this long shoot interview was him just responding to Flair line by line, his book. And so that stuff, like you said, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal now knowing that they do work together and knowing that in the age of social media, like wrestlers bicker in public like every two weeks. So I, I think that probably takes away some of the novelty of it, watching it 15, 16 years later. 
Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, to me, it takes away all of the novelty of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, well, we'll get to it later. Yeah. <laughs> we will indeed. Going to uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch, they reported during this month, regarding rumors of Ring of Honor testing the waters with some West Coast shows in 2005, Ring of Honor promoter Gabe Sapolsky says no. There are no plans right now as you get into a heavy flight expense and there is a lack of local talent in a lot of the Western markets, Sapolsky tells the Torch. It looks like the farthest West will go in 2005 is Chicago, but of course things can change. So that was something... I remember a lot when I was following Ring of Honor during this period where people were always saying, like, when are you going to f- go to the West Coast? Like, PWG runs the West Coast. When are you going to go? And, yeah, I have to imagine it probably wouldn't have made financial sense to fly so much of the roster to the West Coast. I mean, maybe for one super show. But even then, is is that going to sell more DVDs to say, oh, like, Ring of Honor's in Los Angeles for one event? They ended up going doing a show, like a one-off show at a convention in San Francisco in 2007. And I'm pretty sure that was their first West Coast show and maybe their only West Coast show for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Like, that was the other thing, too. Like, Gabe kind of touches on it there where he uh, he says there's a lack of local talent in a lot of the Western markets where that's almost kind of a burn on PWG, maybe not intentionally, because PWG – they half the roster or more was kind of the same all-star indie guys that Ring of Honor and other big indies were booking, but then they would fill out the card with more local California, California guys. And, you know, I remember that was another thing. There's a lot of debates about where some people were like, these guys are really good. And some guys were like, you know, you know, they're underrated. And other people would say, no, these guys are a cut below what you would see elsewhere on undercards. And but, super but, but the thing is, so like in a few years, obviously there'd be a lot of good West coast talent, but also, in the pre-ROH era, like some of the hottest indies in the country were on the West Coast. Um, APW, right? UPW, um, Pro Wrestling Epic and Iron and like places like that. You know, you had, you know, obviously Danielson and Joe like did a lot of stuff on the West Coast. Um, you had Super Dragon. Um, obviously, you know, Excalibur, who, you know, never achieved the heights as a wrestler that the other guys did. But, you know, there were a lot of guys that came out of that West Coast scene. I don't know if 2004 was just considered like a low point for it or if Gabe was just being a jerk. <laughs> yeah. And again, he doesn't outright say it. He just – but he does say a lack of local talent in a lot of the Western markets. So, you know, I mean – I'm not an expert in the I, West I Coast indie scene, so I don't – so I can't say for sure that he's wrong or right. But just saying, it seems – it seems rough to say. <laughs> There was also a lot of indie talent at the time that got a lot of buzz that people loved that Gabe just wasn't interested in booking, including guys that he would book a lot, you know, not too in the not too distant future. I mean, Chris Hero for one, you know, super like these super dragon. These are all guys that like lots of people thought were great, and Gabe just didn't see it in them for all for a while. Yeah, and like Super Dragon in particular was one of those. There's a guy from California that he was to a certain circle of fans, a, a huge, you know, top indie guy. But I guess to end this, we should just say that if you want to learn more about PWG during this era, there's a podcast we're completely unaffiliated with, but uh, Journey, I think it's Journey Through Gorilla Island. And it's, yeah, it, it is a podcast where four friends from Ireland talk just about, uh, PWG starting from the early days. So if you like, if you want a podcast like this, but for PWG, if you want to, if you want to see if they, these guys would agree with Gabe, I mean, there's a podcast right for you. So, um, 
And then next up, we have a little clip from The Observer, which Dave writes, After the end of the month, Jim Cornette has decided against taking indie bookings for the most part, except from Ring of Honor, just because he doesn't think it's worth the hassle. Cornette also is in need of knee surgery for cartilage problems that date back to falling off a scaffold at Starcade 86 in Atlanta. So... It is interesting, you know, again, it's one of those little things that shows you that people did make Ring of Honor a higher priority than a lot of things where even in the story, like they say Cornet's scaling back, but he's still going to, you know, show up for Ring of Honor. And obviously in the upcoming years, we'd see at some points he's basically a regular during some little era. So he went out of his way to make time for Ring of Honor. I'm sure some wrestlers in some eras of Ring of Honor don't see that as a good thing, and I'm sure some do. At the time, I think it was pretty uncontroversial. Yes. No, he was – Cornette was pretty well-loved unless – at this point, unless you were like a hardcore Vince Russo fan. <laughs> yes. um, um And there were some. I mean there still are some. Un- unbelievably, there still are some. Yes. But uh, – Well, next, well, well Matt, me. Well, me obviously. <laughs> that, that's Matt's secret podcast, you know, Russo-rific. <laughs> great show that's not, not ever going to be on the feed. But – on that um, on that podcast, my name is Vince Feuerstein. <laughs> um, and last, we got a ton of different news stories about uh, Ricky Steamboat because this was his last show in Ring of Honor, and lots of inside little tidbits and stuff. So I'll just read a. There's a bunch of stuff here, Matt. We'll go through it. Um, the Observer writes. Ricky Steamboat is available for some Ring of Honor dates, even though he's signed with WWE, even though it appeared that uh, December 26th, which is Final Battle, was his blow-off. There are no dates for him to return that are booked, but he hasn't been stopped by WWE from doing dates that wouldn't interfere with his schedule. Those would be limited, and his main function is more to help the guys become better workers, as there isn't much more that can be done with him at this point as talent, other than a special ref deal or appears to put over a big match. So first off, I mean, it is interesting that in the, that according to the newsletter that Steamboat technically could have, if his schedule permitted, which it likely wouldn't with house shows and stuff, but like he could have done more Ring of Honor. Do you agree that there was nothing more he really could have done in front of the camera? I mean, I don't. I, I think there probably is, but at the same time, I don't think there's like some big obvious thing like, oh, there's, there's some angle Ring of Honor left on the table undone. Like he could have worked with blank, but... Yeah, I mean, is, is there nothing more he could have done? I guess probably not. I mean, you know, I mean, there's always more that you could do, but did he need to be on any other ROH shows? Would the returns have been incredibly diminished? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I guess the best thing that you could say is if you debuted in a new market or something and he was on, he was a name you listed, I guess that would probably be helpful. But other than that, n- not, you know, no, I don't think, I think his, uh, his, uh, he had kind of run his course as part of the mix. Uh, you know, we certainly wouldn't have been unwelcome to see at other points, but I w- there was nothing that they needed him for. Agre- yeah, I would agree there. And uh, in fact, you know, like the Observer just mentioned, his biggest contribution was probably behind the scenes. In fact, Dave wrote in a different Observer, many sources in Ring of Honor credit Steamboat with helping greatly improve the psychology and timing of the wrestlers here. And that's something we've heard a lot in recent episodes. And, you know, wrestlers, I think to this day would probably from this era tell you that Steamboat was a great help backstage in different ways. And we just talked about him at All-Star Extravaganza too. one of the best spots in that match is a Ricky steamboat of punk Joe three is a Ricky steamboat idea. So uh, moving on to the pro wrestling torch, they wrote 
New WWE agent Ricky Stebo held a meeting with Ring of Honor wrestlers at Sunday's event in Philadelphia, that's final battle, explaining that he was taking the full-time WWE job, that he wouldn't have many free weekend dates to work Ring of Honor, although WWE wasn't forbidding him from doing so should there be an open date. And he then went on to tell the Ring of Honor crew that what he's learned about what WWE is looking for in wrestlers. He told them that McMahon is trying to, quote, get back to an 80s style, unquote, where fewer risks are taken especially that wear on the neck since neck injuries have cost McMahon usage of many wrestlers for extended periods, ended Steve Austin's career, and threatens to end or greatly limit Kurt Angle's. Steamboat also told the wrestlers to play to the cameras and learn to work holds on the mat to slow down matches after a series of high spots. That said, one Ring of Honor wrestler says there isn't a feeling that many of them have a chance to get to WWE. This wrestler is quoted as saying, I don't see too many of us too many of us getting hired. They are looking for six foot four muscle heads and bigger. It's ridiculous. They're not wrestlers, and WWE fans are letting them know. I wonder which Ring of Honor wrestler told Wade that. Um I, I know Jimmy Rave did a torch talk with them this year in 2004, and Samoa Joe did one. I have, and I know HC Loke would occasionally give them on the record quotes. I don't know who else Wade talked to in Ring of Honor, but it could be anybody, really, probably. I uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that sentiment was very widespread. So I I agree, it could have been anybody. I um, you know, I remember hearing a lot about this quote new style that WWE was pushing back in like 0405. And I'd be interested to go back and watch those shows to see if that really panned out in the on the matches as far as like whether or not there really was this new 80s-esque style. Um, you know, I mean, I do think like they toned down a bit from like 2000 where there was like, you know, like, you know, the ECW influence was strong. But I don't know. I don't I, I don't know. I guess it would just be interesting to go back and watch and just see like, oh, yeah, this was a more low key grounded style. Did you also notice, and this is relating to something we'll talk about later, but during the big Foley uh, Steamboat promo during the, the show, Foley says something like, you know, I've really noticed in these last few weeks since you've joined WWE that you can notice the products improved. And I was thinking, is there was there really a difference or is that Foley just like saying something nice to kind of blow smoke up Steamboat's ass for the purpose of being nice to him in a promo? Because – I mean, for all I know, maybe, but I can't imagine like Steamboat coming on as an individual agent in a company that had a lot of agents and still does just change the product completely immediately or ever probably. I don't remember some great December 2004 resurgence of great wrestling in WWE, so I'm going to say no. It would be funny if we went back and watched 2004 WWE and like there's a match on every single show where someone puts their feet on the ropes. Like it turns out that's Steamboat's one idea. Like, holy shit, man, we missed this. He's just <laughs> coming up to everybody on every show. He's like, you know, you got, are you a heel? Have you, you ever tried putting your feet on the ropes? He just says that <laughs> over and over again. Um, anyway, so the Torch had another thing, a big long thing where they really had a lot of thoughts about uh, – Steamboat. So Wade writes, new WWE agent Ricky Steamboat's profile was raised last year when he began working regularly for Ring of Honor. Steamboat tells the torch. So he actually talked to the torch. He started with Ring of Honor when Les Thatcher booked him for a personal appearance. And then the response was great. So they kept using me. Ring of Honor promoter Gabe Sapolsky tells the torch about the strengths of Rick Steamboat and assets he brought to Ring of Honor last year. And that and those qualify him to be a strong agent in WWE. 
Quote, Steamboat is one of the best ever when it comes to doing all the small things and interacting with the crowd, and those are the things that really make a match great, Gabe says. When they say when they say he's one of the best ever at doing all the small things, it means that he was great when he sang that Blink-182 song karaoke. <laughs> they brought the house down every night <laughs> after the shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, St- Gabe continued. Steamboat does so many subtle mannerisms and is always working and drawing and doing, always working and doing something, even if it's just a slight movement that draws the crowd into him. He is so good at listening to the crowd and reacting to them. Every young wrestler should study him. He always had a great amount of charisma, and now he has a very distinguished and tough charisma. And of course, his wrestling is second to none. Steamboat tells the Torch that he was happy to contribute to Ring of Honor, saying, The old-timer showed me early on, so I am just passing it along. He says he liked working for Ring of Honor because it's a good company and a, with a mix of old school and new school. During a Torch Talk interview last year, Samoa Joe complimented Steamboat for being a good mentor backstage. Sapolsky agrees, saying his presence helped the Ring of Honor locker room, and he got more and more involved as time went on. He is so generous with giving out advice, and he does it in such a great way that he just commands respect, but without him asking for it, says Sapolsky. Every word that comes out of his mouth is a valuable piece of advice. I and everyone around him learn something new every time we work with him. Sapolsky reflects on his interaction with Steamboat when booking the CM Punk Steamboat feud earlier this year. I basically went to Rick with the idea and direction of the angle and storyline, and then he added details to the execution of it. That th- That is where I learned a lot. For example, for instance, in St. Paul, I suggested to him that Punk and Cabana jump him and beat him down. He took. He then took that and added details such as he would make a comeback and go to chop Punk, but Cabana would grab his arm from behind and then Punk would get in a cheap shot, and Cabana would then hold him while Punk beat him down. So instead of a simple beatdown, it became something that had more excitement with Steamboat's comebacks, made Cabana look strong because he's the one who caused Steamboat to be taken down, and then in the end, it really made Punk more of a heel for the way he beat up Steamboat. Sapolsky says he knew Steamboat would be respected by Ring of Honor fans, but his popular ex- popularity exceeded expectations during 2004. I knew he would be really, really be over with our audience. I feel the Ric Flair DVD made him hot because he had the best matches on that DVD that stood at the test of time. Flair put him over like a million bucks on it. I didn't realize what magic we had going on until he chopped an arm drag punk in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Steamboat tells the torch, it's nice they remembered me. Steamboat says he couldn't wrestle a full-fledged match with Ring of Honor because of my back. I cannot, but I would have loved to. At the beginning of this year, Steamboat accepted an offer to be a full-time road agent for Ring of Honor, for WWE, passing along his wisdom to today's, today's generation of WWE wrestlers. So that's another big you know chunk with Steamboat. I thought it was interesting that Gabe really went into detail on just like – a little modification Steamboat would add. And from everything I've heard on these stories of Steamboat, like we talked about on the last show, it's a lot of that where Steamboat is, is not giving them like huge things. He's like a spot here, a moment here, like literally like they were saying, just those little details, which is all, I, all, I, all I, the small things. Again, you know, you know, he took that song to heart more than anybody, more yeah. than any 15 year old girl. It was Steamboat who was taking notes and going, you know what? This is he, what I'm going to focus on. He walks into that to the, to the building and he goes, turn the lights off. Carry me home. We're going to do this match this way. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that last line was the line in the song. <laughs> but um, and again, we've, we've talked about this in the past. Steamboat saying he couldn't ever wrestle again because of his back. Obviously, that would change with WWE money. A um, couple more notes, Matt, before we get to the show. 
Again, Torch had a lot of stuff during this period. The Torch writes, Mick Foley isn't shy about telling Ring of Honor wrestlers that his match with Randy Orton, quote, made Orton. The feeling on Foley is entirely positive from anyone who interacts with him, both fellow wrestlers or fans. But Foley is not shy about touting his achievements either. The feeling is Foley wants to be considered a star maker when it comes to Samoa Joe in the same way he sees himself as having elevated Randy Orton. Uh, I don't think he accomplishes that, Matt. I don't think, you know, Foley can take a, he probably gets a little crick because he really did talk him up everywhere during these few months that he was working with Foley and, I mean, with Joe. But if, if his goal was trying to make him another Randy Orton, like, Foley became, I mean, Joe became a big name, but it wasn't because of Foley. Well, at this point, Foley still assumes that he's going to be doing a match, I think, with Joe. And I don't remember why that doesn't happen, but. I will, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. And then finally, um, speaking of Joe and Mick Foley, uh, I think this is the final note. Yeah, final note in the news from the Pro Wrestling Torch. Several people within WWE are proponents of bringing former 21-month Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Champion Samoa Joe into the promotion. Ricky Steamboat is one of those people. Steamboat, though, doesn't have a lot of pull within WWE yet, given that he just agreed in recent weeks to become a full-time road agent after his several-week tryout went well. Steamboat got a first-hand look at Joe's in-ring work, crowd reactions to him, and his professionalism behind the scenes during his Ring of Honor stint. Steamboat has outright told people in Ring of Honor he'll be the first to endorse Joe if any higher-ups in WWE ask about him. McFoley is also a big Samoa Joe fan, taking part in an angle with him on last Sunday's Ring of Honor event. Foley outright said during his promo at the Ring of Honor event that Joe belongs in WWE. Foley is another wrestler who will be proactive in Joe getting a close look. Joe, at around six feet tall, give or take an inch, is taller than Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, and Chris Jericho, shorter than Triple H, Randy Orton, Batista, and JBL, and around the same height as Shawn Michaels. But with a much thicker frame and a style unique to WWE's current roster, he could be a great fit. In Ring of Honor, he has proven he can have credible matches with shorter wrestlers, while with CM Punk, he had great matches with someone slightly taller. There have been no negotiations with Joe and WWE at this time, even though his dropping the Ring of Honor title on Sunday led to some speculation that a jump was in the works. Joe is close friends with Ring of Honor, fellow Ring of Honor headliner CM Punk, and Punk will also get endorsements from Steamboat and Foley. So, Matt, this continued to kind of almost aggravates me and makes me feel bad for Joe where, like... He was working in the LA dojo and clearly wanted to work for New Japan, the, the LA New Japan dojo, and he wanted to work there. They never really picked up on him. He clearly had people within WWE that could talk to higher ups there that were championing him. He didn't get into WWE till he was past his physical prime way later. I mean, it is sad that he not only was so talented, but he had people in the two biggest promotions in the world that were actively like, or at least, you know, connections in both those promotions. And he still couldn't get in them. Like, it just, it shows you how big the bias was against people that looked like Foley at this time. It's also just crazy. It's also just crazy how height obsessed everybody, like, like that, like that Wade had to like make a big list about like, well, he was as tall as him, but shorter than him, but slightly taller than him. And he had good matches with people that were slightly this tall. It's like, Jesus, was everyone so, what is this, a dating app? Like everyone was so obsessed with height. It's like. I mean, I know that, like, height still matters, I'm sure, to Vince McMahon and, like, people, but, like, I'm sure it's better now, right? Like, I don't think, like, this, people are just so concerned with who is, like, an inch taller than who, right, at this point? Well, I I forget, but it might might have been this era, but wasn't there, this is 
part of the John Laurinaitis era, era of working, being one of the big movers and shakers backstage and in WWE. And wasn't there like a mandate at one point where John Laurinaitis was told or decided that like, I forget it was 6'2 or 6'4, but everyone had that was like brought into developmental had to be at like at least 6'2 or something. Right. There was definitely a phase like that. But you know, that's one of those things where it's like Vince or Laurinaitis or whoever, uh, they get this, this idea and they're going to like, they just suddenly, it's like, this is our rule. But it, it doesn't usually last that long. But of course, in Vince McMahon's whole career, there has been a unwritten rule that he prefers tall guys. I mean, that's not, I mean, I guess wrestling in general is like that. But other promoters, I feel like, were a bit more open minded for a long time than Vince McMahon was. Yeah, it's just crazy. It, like, they're not even that short. Like, you know, they're not CM Punk and Samoa Joe are not Austin Aries height, you know, and nothing against Austin Aries. He's a great performer. But like you hear that quote from that unnamed Ring of Honor source we talked about a few minutes ago where he said, you know, Vince is looking for six foot four people. And I feel like that's a that's a really tall height. Like and that was the feeling that like you had, you couldn't just be average height even that you had to be like better than average. And I feel like like you were saying it's changed now, hasn't it? And I would say like it totally has changed now because although height is still a positive and being too short is definitely a negative, I don't feel like anyone five nine, five ten or whatever is like, oh, they're never gonna make it no regardless of how talented they are. Although because- although, you know, there is that whole Chad Gable thing. Um, you know, where I mean, well, you, they literally named him Shorty G. Um for no good reason. So Vince still definitely does have something in him that dislikes short people. <laughs> Well, no, and that's why I specify like if you're five nine, five ten. Because I think once you start getting to five eight or less, unless you're Ray Mysterio, like or, or Brian Danielson, yeah, or yeah, Brian Danielson too. But with rare exceptions, I do think if you're particularly short, that is going to be maybe a not completely insurmountable, but definitely like a big weight on your back to becoming a top star in WWE. Yeah, true. But in the old days, it felt like being like. Even like six, six feet was not so hot in some eras of WWE. So yeah. it has improved by a few inches. Man, it improves <laughs> like an inch a decade. <laughs> um, and finally, we can get to Final Battle 2004, the final show of Ring of Honor in 2004. And it took place December 26th, Boxing Day to Canadians and British people. I'm Canadian, so I Re- appreciate you godless Americans, Matt. You don't know. It might have been, bo- it might have been Boxing Day in Canada, but it was Wrestling Day in America. <laughs> so it took place December 26, 2004 at the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in front of a reported crowd of 650 fans. We opened the show with Brian Danielson backstage. Brian says it's time for a new year, and when that happens, you look back and you think about what you could have done better. Uh, Danielson says he and Loki had matches that put Ring of Honor on the map, and when they did those matches, they loved wrestling. He un- Brian understands why Loki turned on him, as he admits himself that they both turned on people in the past. But he says, when you and I used to turn on people in the before, we did it to their faces. Um, Brian says if he was going to turn on him, he should have punched him in the face, not attacked him from behind with the other Rottweilers. Uh, Brian says when they wrestle tonight, three years before, since the last time they did, it's not going to be about their love of wrestling. It's going to be about Brian's hatred of low, of low key and the Rottweilers. He says he's going to um, 
going after low key and then he after that he's going to go after homicide in their upcoming best of five match series with every match having a different stipulation and he says after that he's going to go after the pit bulls so his goal is to take the rottweilers out one by one by one by one by one he says so i guess he's including julius smokes there uh just a basic brian danielson promo uh, do you have any thoughts matt uh, no, it wasn't a great promo, but it got the job done. I like the trend of having these serious promos at the beginning of shows that lay things out. They've done that a few times recently, and I think it's good, and I like that they keep doing it. So whether the promo itself is super great, you know, it lays the stakes down, and it does what it's supposed to do, so I hope they keep doing them. The only thing I will say about this promo is it was one of those weird things where it sometimes happens in Ring of Honor where Danielson is acting like this is already like this best of five match series coming up with homicides, like an already agreed to known thing. But then the commentary and homicides promo later makes it sound like he hasn't agreed to it yet. And we have to find out, does he agree to it? And I think this might have even been one of those things that was already announced on the Ring of Honor website. Like, so it's one of those things where. Sometimes, you know, Ring of Honor kind of plays with, oh, is this go- this is going to be agreed to or this was made just now. But if you kind of look at the history and the booking, like it was already known to be announced, but they still filmed the segment for the DVD acting like it was a spontaneous thing. Like they have this thought that there are pe- these people that watch these DVDs all the time, but will ne- never actually check the website and stuff. And um, I don't know, I guess – it could be true if people are watching these shows now, but at the time, I feel like everyone who was interested in ROH was also following along on the website. Maybe Gabe anticipated this podcast, man. Although, quite frankly, even then, I check the Ring of Honor website using the Wayback Machine. Although, if anyone has tips to get the old Ring of Honor newswires, the Wayback Machine, once it gets to late 2004, it just becomes like a maze of dead links. So... If anyone has any of all newswires from 2005, a source for those, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through. I mean, that's a, I don't expect people to have a source, but if on the off chance someone does, drop us a line. I would love to see them. And that brings us to the opening match of the show, Matt. Jimmy Jacobs defeated Trent Acid via pinfall in six minutes, one second after he hits the Contra code. Matt, this was uh, Trent Acid's uh, final match in Ring of Honor. Uh, what do you think? Did he uh, go out with a bang, a whimper, uh, something between a bang and a whimper? Uh, a, 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 wang, a, a wang, you mean? <laughs> Did he go out with a wang, Matt? A uh, kind of. Um, um, <laughs> you know, um, the um, you know, Punk and Gabe are on commentary again, and uh, you know, they make fun of Acid's look. You know, right off the bat, it's kind of weird to hear CM Punk of all people in this era making fun of, making fun of a guy for looking scruffy and dirty. You know, yeah. wasn't that wasn't that kind of his thing? Um, but um, yeah, the match itself, you know, is mostly you know basic stuff. The guy, you know, guys. Um, first of all, the, the the premise was Punk says both guys have been told they need a win or they could be out of a job in ROH, and I'm thinking like. Why would Jacobs be in that position? Like, he's been in high profile matches, gotten some big wins. Like, I can't imagine why Jacobs and Trent Acid would be in the same position here as far as their jobs being on the bubble. Um, so that part wasn't totally believable. But I guess a year later, Jimmy Jacobs' job really was on the bubble. So who the hell knows? <laughs> um, but, but, um, yeah, you know, they, they do their signature spots. Um, Acid does a tree of row, a tree of woe neckbreaker. They do yakuza kicks. They do roll ups. They do um, falcon arrows. Uh, the the big memorable spot to me 
is when acid falls trying to do like a bridge into a backslide and the crowd is really happy to chant you fucked up and i felt really bad for him because i was like man if there was any chance of gabe giving this guy another chance that botching a backslide probably (laughs) like ended that for him considering (laughs) how on the bubble he obviously really was um, but you know, I, I like some of the moves. I always liked Acid's, you know, big like run into the guardrail on the outside. You know, where he like takes a guy and does like a running power slam charge into the guardrail. You know, Jacobs did his usual stick where like you can't hurt his head, like with the he- you know where Acid tries headbutting him and it hurts himself. Um, but yeah, Acid, um, Acid hits a Yakuza kick. Um, he tries pinning Jacobs, but then picks him up for no reason. Which I don't, I, I, st- I still don't totally get what they were going for with Acid. Jacobs follows up with the Contra Code out of nowhere, gets the win. Um, yeah, there was really no major story other than, like, I guess Acid being too cocky and um, dirty. So since he was so cocky, he sort of went out with a wang. Um, and uh, <laughs> this is also, I guess, when you think about it, it's one of Jimmy Jacobs' first real singles wins. Um, but yeah, no, the match was mostly nothing except for a big botch that was uncomfortable <laughs> yeah this match was just average it was six minutes of, it, it was six minutes of just guys doing cool moves but it wasn't like paced like fast paced so it wasn't like one of those six minutes where it's just like a blistering speed of like really dense it was just kind of a almost felt like a ring of honor tv show match if, if they had a tv show where it's like six minutes they do some nice spots but it's not particularly that great and i agree with you um trent asked knowing he was losing here like the fact that he lifted up he had a two count after he hit the big yakuza kick late on jimmy jacobs and he lifts him up off the canvas at two and then jacobs wins almost immediately afterwards i felt like that was kind of shitty to i don't know if that was trent acid's idea or the booking but yeah i can't i can't it's hard to know like yeah who to blame for that Yeah, I mean, either way, like, when Jacobs is staying and Acid's on his way out to, like, take a visual pinfall from the guy that's staying, that's that's kind of a shitty thing. But, um, yeah, the, the big story was just, again, how much they continued to shit on Trent Acid. And, like you said, I don't know how much of this is a gimmick and how much of this was ever real, but clearly it ended up being real. I think Trent Acid does do a little angle, which I don't even know if it makes tape or not, at an upcoming Philly show in early 2005 that, like, he's here, but he's not employed. But this is it for uh, Trent Acid. And really, after, like, the King of the Multi-Man gimmick, that short thing, like, it was all downhill for these last few months. And with, with how much of this whole thing where the announcing constantly shits on Acid for not really caring about wrestling and dressing like a hobo and all that stuff – like how much of that is a gimmick and how much of that is real? Either way, it's bad because like if your gimmick is you don't give a shit, like that's on par with WWE giving Lance Storm the boring gimmick of a gimmick where like there's no way this turns out good for you. Like there's no way you have a I suck and don't give a shit gimmick and you become a big star out of it. Um, like going to – at one point, uh, Acid has to bridge up. I think you might mention that he has to bridge out of a hold and he doesn't, he isn't able to bridge. Like he isn't strong enough, like a legit botch and Gabe, you know, if that was a different wrestler, I think he'd be way more charitable and just be like, Oh, maybe he's been worn down. So we can't do it. And instead Gabe literally just says something like if he was in the proper condition, he'd be able to bridge up. Like he just shivs him and just like, you know, this guy actually trained and gave a shit. He wouldn't have fucked that up. So it, it, bad time for Trent acid. And, um, 
Trent Aston, another highlight for me was after he does that big running power slam into the barricade, he sees that there's an empty water bottle at ringside and he picks it up and tries to take a, a drink like some fan's water bottle. And I just thought, that's another thing. I don't know if we'll ever see that spot again, Matt, in a post-COVID world. People might be more germ-phobic now. I, I would have been germ-phobic back then, actually. Like, I sometimes saw wrestlers, they would, like, grab a rest, uh, like a fan's beer and take a gulp. Like, you know, Hangman Page would do that. And I'd be like... No way am I drinking some other guy's goddamn backwash for a wrestling angle, but wrestlers, they're braver than us. But Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, like, fluidity <laughs> in wrestling, uh, <laughs> so I think that they probably, there's a certain point where wrestlers like, you know what, it is what it is, I gotta keep my immune system strong, <laughs> but you're right, pandemics could uh, could change people's mindsets, turn them into us. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was an interesting um also time in Jimmy Jago's career because it felt like uh, the few shows before the la- last one, All-Star Extravaganza 2, or at least for a couple, like they were trying to get Jacobs away from the Husk gimmick. Like Gabe was talking on commentary like he's moving on from the Husk stuff. And you could always tell even though that the Husk gimmick was really over basically almost every show Jacobs did that Gabe and Nulty, like Gabe particularly, weren't huge fans of the gimmick just the way they talked about it and always kind of joked about it. And I, and I can and, actually – just to defend Gabe because obviously the Husk stuff was over. But I do think you can look at it and be like this is a bit – limiting for a guy that we think has a lot of potential you know what i mean i think it was limiting in 2004 i think nowadays with the way indie wrestling is like that could be a gimmick you could make years of money off of but no in 2004 it was different but i feel like this was a weird point because at all star extravaganza 2 they had jimmy do the hus stuff for that segment with Bobby Heenan. So they had him bring it back just so Heenan could play off of it. And here on this show, he's not doing the Huss, but he's doing like every other aspect of the gimmick. He's doing the grab his wrist thing. You know, he's doing the, he's wearing the furry boots. He's doing the spot where uh, acid rams his head into like the ring apron or whatever. And it doesn't hurt him. Like he's basically doing every part of the Huss gimmick, except the part the fans like the most. And it's kind of just this weird transition point in his career where he doesn't have the Jimmy loves Lacey thing yet, but he's kind of also starting to get deprived of the Huss gimmick. He's in this weird middle ground. That's a good point. And it actually, I mean, he has a bit of a push early in 2005, but then in late 2005, he's sort of, he's sort of drifting. And he has to sort of save his own career. So we'll get, it'll be interesting to look at the trajectory of Jimmy Jacobs. But you're right. They might have screwed him a little bit by taking away the Huss thing. Yeah, and actually that'll go uh, – I'll get to it in a, little sec- in a second. But like I think the next match we can also talk – kind of tie that in about another – Another gimmick where – or act where one gimmick is being taken away, but they're not – it's not really being replaced with anything. But um, finally, my last little note on this match is we'll have a few notes from this show from the Death Valley Driver guys because Phil Schneider and Tom K went to the show. And they have a few little live notes and interesting, um, I think, opinions. And this was just kind of a snarky line that was a little mean, but I enjoyed. Uh, Phil Schneider wrote about this match live. Trent Ass is working a disgruntled losing streak gimmick. So we get Acid working a lazy gimmick. Apparently, he's been working this angle his entire career, Phil, right? So I thought, ouch. But, uh, you know, there was definitely a lot of people that did not like Trent Acid. I felt like, you know, there was a time in 2003 where I felt like he could have been something in Ring of Honor. You know, those two homicide matches. He was over as part of the backstreet boy, um, backseat boys gimmick. And he just missed his window. And by the time he started to get a push in 2004, he just didn't have the performances anymore. But, um, 
After the match, Jacobs is looking for a handshake, but Acid grabs the mic and tells the PA man to turn off Jacobs' theme. He's pissed. He tells Jimmy he doesn't want to shake his hand because he fucking quits, and he proceeds to leave through the crowd, not even going back to the curtain. So we'll see Trent again a little bit later, but this is basically him leaving the company for real. I still, I still, but like, was it like, or did that? Was that just a coincidence? Kind of like you know, like why were they giving him so much time and like this whole angle? If he was just going to go, like, why not just stop booking him like they do a million other people? Like, what were they going for? I still don't know what the idea behind all this was. It doesn't make any sense to me. And again, he does show up at one more Philly show, not wrestling. So, yeah, it, it does feel like he had an angle that maybe doesn't have, would even shock me if they even told him, like, we're going to have you quit, but we'll write it into an angle. And then they just actually meant it like we'll, we'll tell him he, he it's an angle but then we'll just won't book him anymore but like, why i don't know stranger things have happened matt it, it's it's the pro wrestling booking equivalent of ghosting someone you know definitely I'm, is, yeah. with you, I'm just gonna stop booking you <laughs> um that brings us to deranged and lacy defeating angel dust and becky bayless in 739 a mixed tag when lacy pins bayless after she hits an implant DV, ddt um matt we usually don't talk too much about our opinions on the show before we do the podcast, but uh, you did – when we were talking the other day, you did mention you liked this match. Um, this is going to be one of the rare times probably where we have a big golf in our, in our opinions because this is a match I'm going to give a rare through the years rating of below average because um, most of this match is Angel Dust and Deranged Wrestling, and I thought that was – was better than below average. I enjoyed that just fine. Both guys did some really big um, double stomps. Both of them did double stomps like really high up. Like it's definitely the chest or the midsection. It looked like they hit upper chest, almost neck. Like they looked really deadly in a good way. Um, Angel dust always has some good looking offense. He does a lot of stuff based around like the electric chair position today. He didn't do on this show. He didn't do his regular like electric chair driver, but he just did like an electric chair drop that looked good. Um, I thought Lacey looked fairly good in the final minute, but this match is mostly like I would say the first six or seven minutes of or the first five or six minutes of this is basically just in a deranged angel dust uh, singles match with each woman hitting the opposing team's man from the apron at one point. And then the last minute they decide, OK, here comes the women. And I thought Becky really didn't look great. She didn't botch anything, but the way she moved on stuff like even – running into the corner or the way she like bumped on a kick or stuff like she looked very awkward like someone that didn't have a lot of wrestling experience and more than that what bugged me though matt what took this from like an average to a below average was even though we've grown in some ways numb to it the misogyny in this match really bugged me and it was punk more than gabe on this one like um i'm just looking at my notes if i can find examples um punk at one point says you don't want to tag the girls in because girls are no good um, you know, when lazy tags in, Gabe's like, oh, they're so hot. And, you know, Punk says something like, this isn't Punk being misogynist, but just being goofy. Goes, speaking of really hot, I just spilled coffee on myself, which is such, sometimes Punk could be really surprisingly corny for a guy that was considered really cool on these, uh, Ring of Honor shows. Um, Punk says that the two men tagged out when they tagged out to the girls, he said he, that they tagged out to quote their respective broads unquote and then he says oh we've got girl on girl action now and it was that kind of misogyny combined with the with the woman sequence not being that great combined with gabe doing his usual 
where he's patting himself on the back even for their treatment of women, even though it's not really much, if any, better than WWE. He does his usual, it's no diva search, I'll tell you that much, and Punk and Gabe do the old, oh, these women can really wrestle, kind of overselling it. And um, Matt, I think my, I would say my favorite point of the part of this match was Punk saying that if uh, Deranged and Angel Dust got back together, they could be called Derangel Dust, which maybe want them to get back together. But they were Matt, a tag team, and they never used that, so... Yeah, un- unfortunately. Um, Matt, what did you think about this? You probably like this more than me. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I, I think what it sounds like you're saying is that you give the presentation a rating of below average and not the actual match. Am I correct in saying average, that? Yeah, and... Cause, because I, I, I don't totally... I, I wouldn't totally hold the commentary against the match because that's not the match. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. It's the presentation. The commentary did a lot of stuff that was pretty typical of ROH with women um, as far as, you know, yeah, hot girl on girl action. Gabe saying Lacey is nothing to sleep on and Punk making hay out of that. Um, Gabe just throwing in, oh, she's pretty hot for no reason. All that stuff. But like you said, I have gotten a bit numb to it. Um, that said, obviously the misogyny has been a consistent problem for three years. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, minimizing it in that sense. But as far as just the match itself, it was better than I expected. I thought that, like you said, Angel Dust and Deranged had like some really, really, really good sequences. You know, there was one sequence, like you said, where so Angel Dust goes for the electric chair driver, Deranged fights out. Strange goes for his own Rana, but Angel Dust blocks that. Then they have this long struggle until Angel Dust gets Strange back in the electric chair position, drops him down face first, double stomps his head. Then Strange jumps from the apron into a springboard double stomp onto Angel Dust's chest while Angel Dust is standing, which just felt really impactful. Um, whenever Lacey would tag in, like she slapped Angel Dust, gave him a hard kick, dominated him, looked looked pretty damn good, considering this is her first ever in-ring performance in ROH. Um, like Angel Dust blocked the top rope, Rana, and jumped off the top rope and double-stomped deranged face. So it's like, this match was double-stomp city. Um, yeah. um, Becky, um, you know, she, her, she does like some not-great-looking backdrops, but like you said, like considering like it really wasn't that bad she does a bulldog which i thought actually looked pretty good um not pretty good i shouldn't say that but it really like not bad at all um which uh deranged broke up and we got some more slaps um then deranged hits a hard forearm to becky's face which uh checks that roh box but i guess at least it was a match (laughs) i don't know how much better that makes it but um um uh you know angel does does a big dive onto Cheech and Cloudy. I just thought it was a lot of you know entertaining stuff in the match. Lacey and Becky, they exchange forearms until Deranged trips Becky from the outside. Lacey hits an implant DDT, which I thought was a good, good, well-executed DDT and got the win. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was an expectations game, but I thought that there was a lot of good-looking stuff in the match. And, you know, in terms of like wrestling, I'm not trying to be gross. Um, and I... Um, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't think it was a great match or anything, but I definitely enjoyed it. it. It definitely exceeded my expectations. I thought that I thought Deranged and Angel Dust tore it up. Uh, to be honest, like I, I really thought they were. I thought they were. They looked Angel Dust in particular looked better here than he has in a long, long time. So, uh, I, first off, I agree about that about Angel Dust. I feel like Angel Dust is kind of like the one of those feast or famine guys so far in Ring of Honor, where he can look really good in a brief little setting, or he can have like two botches in a in a six minute 
match. You know, yeah. you kind of, it just kind of depends on if things hit, if everything hits his way, you know, he can look really good. But a lot of times he, he I, I would say he's probably one of the most botchiest wrestlers in Ring of Honor that we've seen up to this point. But um, the other thing I want to talk about with this match and maybe another reason why I'm a little soured, more sour on it than you is I, I didn't really love the booking of this because um, like you said, uh, the match, it ends with uh, Becky getting tripped by the range when she's hitting the ropes and then, you know, she gets up and Lacey's able to hit a kick and the implant DDT. And in a way that's very classic, solid standard booking, which is early on. This is one of the first matches of the special K feud. So you have the heels win first during cheating, but I, I feel like the face side of Special K, the side that's quote unquote taking wrestling seriously, you know, Dixie and, uh, Angel Dust and Becky, they've been on such a losing streak and been positioned as losers. And even on this show, they're still coming out with no music. Like, I, I, I kind of felt like they should have won tonight. They should have, they, that, I kind of felt like they needed a win. Not that this is a major important storyline for Ring of Honor. And I also felt like just the one trip being all that it took in the grand scheme of things, I could have, if you were going to cheat, I would have liked something a little more impactful than just getting tripped running the ropes. Well, it was a trip into a big move. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of felt this kind of was a downer and it, and it goes back to, um, the Jacobs thing, I feel like the face side of Special K is in the same place Jimmy Jacobs is, where I know uh, Gabe has said that he felt like Special K at this time was played out and getting stale. And, you know, you can make an argument to that. But the thing is, Special K still was at one time like a cool, entertaining gimmick that was part of the show and like a, one of the rare, like complete Ring of Honor creation gimmicks up to this point. And, um, like the face side of special K has that gimmick taken away, but they've had nothing to replace it. So it's just like, why are we supposed to cheer angel dust and Dixie right now? Because they're serious and they lose all the time. Like they, they, they don't look great. I would say in the booking in the last few months, I agree with that. I don't think the special K angle has been well booked. Um, I'm just judging this sort of as a match. I think that, um, and which is why I said I liked it more than I expected because I have generally not enjoyed most of the special case stuff, especially especially just the whole concept of these guys need to get serious and then when they get serious they just lose more and look depressed like that like that's um, that doesn't you know the, the way they did it with Hydro was pretty good you know he became a he's turning into like a a successful popular wrestler as opposed to these other guys that are um, just becoming dorks, um, but. You know, I th- I just thought the work in the match was was entertaining. I um I think in the long run the special case split, you know, turns out to not be uh not be good for anybody except possibly Lacey. Um <laughs> but also the other thing is on the show before this, you know, uh Dixie was the one who cut the big promo even though it was a bad promo, but like just about his friends. And you think that Dixie would be in this spot on this card, but it was because they don't give Angel Dust like any mic time at all. Um but I guess Dixie was not available for this particular event. There were a lot of people not on this show, right? Cabana wasn't on it either, right? Yeah, and, and I, Nigel I a, was Nigel wasn't there. Yeah, I think I have a note later that will give a reason why, but we'll have to talk about it because if I if I got the note, like it doesn't quite make sense to me. But I want to ask you about that. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But one other thing I thought that was a little weird about this match—not a big deal—but 
I think this was one of the first shows Angel Dust is wearing, like, wrestling gear. And, you know, the announcing makes the point, like, look, Angel Dust has gear. You know, you know, he's taking things more seriously, which, again, that's that's a nice little little detail to, you know, the continued idea that one side of Special Case taking wrestling more seriously, one, one side isn't. But the funny thing was, on the heel side that's supposed to not take anything seriously, Lacey's wearing full professional wrestling gear, and on the side that's supposed to be taking things more seriously, Becky's just in, like, yoga workout clothes, it looked like. Like, so it, it kind of didn't, that element of it kind of went against the idea of the storyline. But again, not a big deal, but it was just kind of a funny thing where the same match where they're going, oh, look at Angel Dust, he's taking it serious, he's got gear, and then it's like, well... His partner actually has way less gear than her, the the woman on the opposite opposite side of the match. But um, after the match, Cheech and Cloudy step in the ring to celebrate with the winners because they're part of the heel special. K. Angel just checks on Becky until he's tossed out of the ring by Deranged. Deranged teases attacking Becky again when we're not going to take it kicks in, and the Ring Crew Express rush into the ring. They clean house, hitting a sliced bread and assisted senton on Cheech. They help Becky to her feet, and she has a big smile. And I felt like, again, this just shows you how big a loser's the face size Special K is, where, like, they needed the Ring Crew Express, one of the lowest acts on the Ring of Honor booking totem pole, to save the day for them. And this felt like just on, on a show where, like you just mentioned, a bunch of notable people weren't booked. This felt like just an excuse away. Like, well, we should have the ring crew express on the show. So what can we do? They can, they can save special K. Yeah. Um, I mean, all I said about that was like, just okay. Then I don't know why that was there, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that brings us to a match that did not make tape. And that was rock and rebel defeats Devin Moore in four minutes, 24 seconds. Uh, we've talked about this before, I think, but the story, of course, of the Rock and Rebel stuff is when uh, the Ring of Honor split happened, this side that still kept running Ring of Honor lost their access to a Pennsylvania promoter's license. Rock and Rebel is a wrestler that had one. He would let them use it, but in return, he would want to wrestle matches on the Ring of Honor shows in Philly, and they would usually let him do that, but then not put the show on DVD. Um but I thought there were some interesting notes from the DVD Death Alley Driver video review website guys who are at the show. Phil Schneider wrote, Rebel forcing himself on fans is the most pathetic thing I have seen in years. It's wrestling. I would be perfectly happy if he gouged the shit out of Ring of Honor to use his license, but he has to be the biggest mark in wrestling to force himself to be booked. His promo after the match shows he, that he actually thinks he has heat as opposed to people just hating watching him. This unsurprisingly killed the crowd and tainted the decentish matches which came before. Uh, Tom K, who was with Phil, wrote, Green Lantern fan had this at just over four minutes. It felt like 20. At one point, I remember asking, are they going for a time limit draw? This had a ton of different sections to it that didn't really feel like they were put together in the right order. So I thought this was an interesting thing where they actually felt like this killed the heat for the next match or two. And obviously, we didn't see the match. I have no idea, you know, if that's true or not, but I just thought that was an interesting little note. And that brings us to the next match. Homicide, scored to the ring by Julius Smokes, defeated Josh Daniels via submission in 11 minutes, 20 seconds, when Daniels tapped out to a key lock. Um, Matt, this was another kind of, this. it feels like the theme for the first three matches on the show. Homicide is another guy, even though we know technically he's already in the Danielson feud, and that's going to be a, give him a lot to do in the first part of t- 2005. There's been a few shows in late 2004 where it felt like Homicide's just kind of like, 
Gabe doesn't know what to do with him after the Joe feud because he had that show where he was just in the random four way. He had that show where he was facing Nigel McGuinness and lost to Nigel where it was a good match, but like had no storyline reason for it before and after even his pure title shot with John Walters, you know, there was no real build to that. And it feels like basically between the Joe feud and the Danielson feud, homicide's just kind of floating in the undercard. But, um, what do you think about the quality of the match? You know, Josh Daniels, another guy, not on every show, but a big opportunity for him here. Yeah, it's, you know, Homicide does feel a little bit lost at sea here. It's good to know, you know, at this point that they finally have something planned for him. You know, that's like going to be a major part of the show. So, you know, I guess that makes it okay for Homicide. But it is a surprisingly low-key, no pun intended, match for Homicide on a big show like this. Um I was also just ha- impressed. I was like, way to go, Josh Daniels. You made it to the end of 2004. Because every time I see Josh Daniels on his show, I'm like, well, Joe, Josh Daniels is still around? <laughs> like, like I, I really do have that reaction. Because, you know, you just, he's not, in his run in ROH was not memorable at all, but it was longer than I expected. Um, is he around after this? Because I, I keep not, I'm no longer trusting my memory. Because I just, I thought he was gone by now. I'm not sure. He might be, but if it is, I don't think it's for too lo- much longer. And it's funny because, yeah, Josh Daniels, he's never bad. Like, I don't know if he's ever great or memorable where you go, oh, I want to see him come back. But do you agree that, like, he's never really had a performance where I go, oh, Josh Daniels really not good at all. I didn't enjoy him. Like, he's always at least okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, like the kind of like the Matt Striker kind of vibe going for him, which, you know, obviously isn't great at this point <laughs> to say that, but. <laughs> He's clearly mechanically talented. Um and the match itself was mechanically sound. Um, you know, Josh um you know Homicide does a decent time to stall at the beginning. Um you know, but Daniels does, you know, he does headlocks, which like there's a big spot where he just continues to hold the headlock for a long time and not you know, holding on after several attempts to reverse it. Homicide hits a divorce court to take control, then he works on the arm. Um Homicide, uh, you know, they trade chops. Homicide ends that with a uh, an eye poke, which I have dubbed the 2004 ROH move of the year, the uh, <laughs> the eye poke. Um, but yeah, so now, you know, Homicide's working over the arm. They both miss diving headbutts. Um, oh, one of my favorite parts of the match was Daniels hitting a snap suplex, but sm- with and Smokes goes, he's in trouble! <laughs> but, <laughs> hey, D! Yo, D! But um, other than that, I wouldn't say there was a lot of highlights to the match. It was just, it was mechanically sound, but completely unmemorable. Um, yeah, and it just, it ended with, um, I guess I guess the one big thing in the match was that Homicide worked over the arm and won with a key lock with a head scissors. I guess to get over that, the tap out match that was upcoming with Danielson, you know, just to show that he was still winning with uh, with holds. But otherwise, I, I didn't think the match was too much. It was solid, I guess. Solid match that, I will not remember. <laughs> this was very middle of the road. This was average. I wouldn't give it like a high two and three quarter stars. Like it's almost three stars, but not quite. Like I, don't, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even go that high, honestly. Uh, it's one of those matches where I go, oh well, that was okay, but I'll instantly forget it once we finish this podcast. Um, you know, homicide. Like you said, he works over Walters. I mean, not Walters. Josh Daniels' arm. All these muscle. Bland guys are the same to me, Matt. But um, he works over uh, Daniel's arm, and it's fine arm work, but uh, Homicide usually works over the neck, and I find his neck work 
is usually a lot more interesting. He does, you know, he has stuff like pile drivers and neck breakers that work on it and the arm work. It's, it's fine. He does one move where, um, Daniels is holding a middle rope trying to like get up and homicide basically like kind of throws himself over the top rope into what's kind of a senton, but kind of just, he, he just lands on the arm on Josh Daniels arm with his ass. And it looks like, like homicide legit hurt his back. Cause for the next minute or two, it doesn't become the focus of the match for like the minute after he keeps clutching like the small of his back. So, and yeah, like the arm, the submission finish felt kind of abrupt, but I guess, again, it's just to build up that homicide. The angle is he hurt Danielson's arm after their last match. He's, he's going to focus on it in their tap-out match on the next show. Um, I, I did like a couple little moments. Like I did like that they paid off uh, like Josh Daniels hits a dragon suplex and he can't hold the bridge because his arm is hurt. And again, there's nothing wrong with the match. It's just one of those matches where there's not a lot super right with it either it's just wrestling and for a homicide match you expect more and i don't even think the effort was lacking it just didn't become a great match or anything but um a, a couple notes when i'm just looking here matt we you just mentioned um i'm not sure if josh daniels is back for 2005 i still am not either but maybe gabe thought he was because gabe on commentary said that josh daniels could be a breakout star in 2005 and so maybe that suggests that Gabe still had hope for him, but he doesn't become a break. A spoiler: he doesn't become a breakout star in two thousand five. Um, again, again, I've made this comment before, but he was talking about the video game. <laughs> um, he loves breaking those bricks. But Matt, th- th- this was the best part of the match. Actually, um, did you notice that at one point in commentary, like Gabe talks about how Julie Smokes, his nickname is the Devil's Son-in-Law, and Punk? I wrote in my notes. Punk doesn't seem to know what a son-in-law is because when Gabe says that, Punk wonders if J- Julie Smokes being the Devil's Son-in-Law means that he is. Me- he wonders if that nickname means that the Devil married his sister. Uh, uh, that would mean he was the devil's Devil's father-in-law yeah Yeah. which which is actually a much funnier name (laughs) (laughs) that would would, yeah that'd be funny god damn my sister she married the worst guy that that sounds like less ominous and more just bitter like yeah yeah i'm the goddamn devil's brother-in-law goddamn (laughs) but yeah it was funny that punk was like he married the devil married his sister it's like no and um one note from Phil Schneider about this match, which I thought was interesting. He wrote, one thing that Ring of Honor needs to do is sit down its guys and limit the number of guys throwing chops. There is a chop exchange in every match, and when you have guys like Daniels who are just some stiff chops, it hurts them immensely if everyone else is getting the flair woo too. And I don't think that's necessarily a horrible point. Like, there are in a lot of Ring of Honor matches chops because they're easy to do. Everyone can do them. Everyone can take them. They get loud reactions. But for a guy like Daniels who He's basically a Chris Benoit clone. He does, you know, the German suplex, the dragon suplex, lots of chops. He has like the short, muscular build. I guess you could say, yeah, it does hurt Josh Daniels. But at the same time, do you want to sacrifice a spot for the entire card to try and help Josh Daniels? I don't know. Well, there, yes. I now, well, now I've just decided after hearing that there are only four guys in ROH that should be allowed to do chops. Josh Daniels, Roderick Strong, Loki, and Samoa Joe. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) As Mark Nolte might say, like, no one hits harder than Roderick Strong. Or maybe someone Joe, (laughs) Mark Nolte would say. Um, (laughs) 
bring up, let's go up next to the Ring of Honor pure title match. John Walters defeating Jimmy Ray, who was scored to the ring by Diablo Santiago, Oman Tortuga, and Prince Nana. Walters wins via submission in 11 minutes, 31 seconds with a, basically a tree of woe submission. Um, Rave is stuck in the tree of woe. Walters is on the outside of the ring with the rope breaks exhausted. He's able to do a submission like this and he basically just grabs, um, Rave while he's in the tree of woe and just twists on him. But, I thought this was pretty different than their first pure title match that we saw recently and a lot of pure title matches in general where a lot of pure title matches, they, because of the nature of the rules, they're built more around lots of submissions, teasing, like, are they going to use the rope breaks, uh, use up the rope breaks where and when? And this match, it felt like more like just a more action oriented standard Indian undercard match and, um, less submission work. And then it felt like, this is a match where at the end both guys have used all three of their rope breaks apiece and i would say three or four of the rope breaks get used up like within a minute late in the match it almost felt like rather than just make that the story of the whole match it was like we're just gonna do our regular match and then at the end because we need to get rid of our rope breaks we're just gonna like quickly dump them on like a minute like here's a submission use a rope break i'm gonna put you another submission use another rope break like just let's get through it um i thought the action was fine i thought the match itself was above a little above average but nothing special again kind of flirting with three stars maybe there was it was more uh, it was a match where there was more a couple spots that really stood out for me more than the match as a whole i really liked uh rave doing his running knee off the apron to walters right in the chest and punk did correct gabe a second time where he called gabe calls it a shining wizard and punk just says running knee so we've seen that now twice a lot of times punk ignores it a couple times he does correct Gabe. Um, and that led out to a count out tease where Rave was trying to win by count out, which was a nice little play on their last match where Rave became the first guy in Ring of Honor history to lose via count out. So I thought that was nice. But uh, the part that I'm interested in your opinion on is the end, which I both loved and fit and hated because the end spot is both guys use all their rope breaks, which means the ropes are legal. Um, and like I said, Wal- Rave gets in a tree of rope. Walters goes to the outside. He starts twisting Wal- um, Rave in a submission while he's standing outside to do the submission. And the ref starts doing the 20 count because in pure title matches, those are the only matches in Ring of Honor where there's a count out possible. It's a 20 count. And you can and- lose the title on it, right? Exactly. And Walters keeps holding the submission on. Even when the ref counts to 19, he's making no effort to go back into the ring. And then with less than a second left, before he says 20, Rafe taps out. And part of me thought, wow, that's a really inventive, you know, neat little um, finish that uses the uh, pure title rules in a unique way. But the other part of me thought, Walters looks like a fucking idiot because he was literally – Less than a second. If, 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 if Rafe holds out for half a second longer, he loses the title. And in fact, Walters had just done the smart finish on their last match because in that match, the finish was Walters has Rafe in the sharpshooter on the floor until about 16, I think. And then he runs in with four seconds left and wins by count. This time he shows no intentions of going back in the ring. And likewise, it makes Rafe kind of look like an idiot because it reminds you of people in MMA where if someone ever taps out with one second left, they always say that guy knew he had one second left and he would have been fine. Why did he tap out? Same with Rafe. He holds on to the submission for 19 seconds. He knows he can hear the ref. If he just holds on for one more second, he wins the match. And he taps out. So and I couldn't decide if I thought this submission was cool 
or really stupid. But Matt, what'd you think about the match and what'd you think about the finish? Well, I'll start with the finish. Um, I was not conflicted in my thoughts. I just thought it stunk. I, I, you know, I've, yeah, sure, creative, I guess, but come on, like you, you gotta have a little bit of internal logic there. And no, yeah, he just Walters looked like an idiot. Like that was quite, they like he just took that chance of losing the title for no reason, just just with the idea that Rave was gonna tap out at nineteen, like just absurd. I didn't like it at all for all the reasons you said, and I didn't, I didn't think that the creativity, um, put it, you know, made up for it in any way, um. As far as the rest of the match, I definitely liked their first match more. Um, I just liked the pace of it better. I thought this one, there were some good spots, but it felt rushed to me. Um, but, but like this, but you know, they did have good spots. I liked this, the part where, um, where like where uh, Walters threw, uh, where, excuse me, or Rave dumped Walters to the outside and then did his running knee from the apron. I liked that. Um, I liked, you know, the, the, the quick, you know, like sometimes I like where they do like the rope breaks all in like rapid succession near the end. I enjoyed that. So, um, there was one point where Rave does a roll up and grabs the ropes for leverage and Walters kicks out and Gabe says that's legal because Walters has used all of his rope breaks. Does that make sense to you? That because someone uses rope breaks, that means that the other guy's allowed to use the ropes for leverage in a painting combination? Like, I, I don't I, really, I don't think the logic follows there. Yeah, I, I don't. And the weird thing is, like, I feel like so many of these pure tile matches this year, like, there are so many little edge cases where it feels like, no, they're making it up as they go along, which I guess they are. But, like, it seems like so many matches, a weird little instance like this happens where you have to kind of stop your train of thought and go, wait, should that be okay? And, like, it's confusing. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I It's just, they're trying to get a little too cute, I think. Um uh, there were some couple of funny commentary lines. Um, at the beginning of the match, Nana said he used his lawyers to get the embassy to be at ringside for the match. Because if you remember, at the last match, Todd Sinclair made the manager and everybody leave. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's backwards, isn't it? Wouldn't it usually make sense, like for like they interfere in the first match, then in the second match the referee kicks them out, as opposed to like, yeah, we're gonna have a clean match, and then the next match it's gonna be screwy. Yeah, that that doesn't make logic. I guess the only thing you could say is maybe they were hoping people would think, oh, Jimmy Rave could win this time. I don't even know if they publicized that this was going to be uh, the embassy at ringside for this one, though. Right. Um, what, what was funny was to me was it was Gabe sadly saying that ROH doesn't have the money to fight Nana's <laughs> lawyers. I, like, <laughs> I always love when Ring of Honor is like kind of honest about not having a lot of money. Like that show um, in the first year late when the gimmick was – um, Punk and Cabana were wrestling, and the winner got plane tickets, and the loser had to drive. Like, I love when we have a Ring of Honor just doesn't try and pretend that it's bigger than an indie wrestling promotion. Yeah, no, I agree. That was funny. Um, Punk also says that Johnny Cochran was one of Nana's lawyers because he's an old friend of the Nana family. And I was just like, I wonder if Nana knows about all this lore that they're creating in the background. <laughs> um, but um, other than that, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I thought the match. Had some good stuff. Um, at one point, Gabe incorrectly ident- identified gonorrhea. He does a he he because Rave did a, just a regular swinging neck breaker, and Gabe called it gonorrhea. I don't mean the Gabe like incorrectly identified gonorrhea, like it was actually chlamydia <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> Those were just some boils, man. <laughs> Completely unrelated. You know, I think I think they're both treatable by antibiotic. Um, but um, yeah, um, no, but. Um, where was I? Um, 
Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just I thought that the match was was like you said it was fine. I think two and three quarters is probably good. I, I thought this was a step down from their first match, though, mostly because of the finish, but also I think the pacing was just off to me. The commentary I liked in this match was a uh, the Punk makes some like older reference. I forget what it was, but then, um, uh, then I'm like Gabe is like, oh, I don't get or I forget, but something like that. But anyway, it ends with Punk being like, well, I'm older than you. And I actually looked this up just to make make sure Gabe is older than Punk. But I love that Punk maybe in the in the world of Ring of Honor in the kayfabe world, the character of Jimmy Bauer is younger than CM Punk, but in reality. Gabe Sapolsky is older than CM Punk. Yeah, I would say a good deal older than CM Punk. It's not a decade, but yeah, it is a few. I forget how much, but it, it is, uh, you know, Punk's in his early 40s, and I think Gabe's probably in like his mid to late 40s. You know, he, I think it's like at least like old. a six or seven year difference. Yeah. Um, one other note from the DVDIR boys, the live notes, something that did not make camera. Phil Schneider writes, during the match, Frank Talent, the rep of Philly, representative of Philly's Wrestling Commission, walked over to Diablo Santiago and quickly called an, imp- an improv, an improv comedy spot. Talent asks Diablo for the air freshener to check it for chemical content. Santiago tries to hide it. Talent demands it and ends up sprayed in the face. Frank Talent walks off in a huff in a really great ineffectual bureaucrat strut. It was the smartest, best work spot in this match. This match sucked. So that did not make camera, but I'll just say, Matt, that's not the only time apparent that uh, Frank Talent hams it up on this show, and this time it will make uh, tape. Yes, you uh, you definitely told me how excited you were to talk about that in the next match. <laughs> this is the night of Frank Talent. So after the match, Nana gets in the ring, he gets on the mic, and he tells Jimmy Rave that he's a hell of a worker, he's proud of him, and that the two of them are going to take the embassy to the top in 2005. Nana then says, quote, Prince Nana has been talking at every single event for the past couple of events, which the crowd immediately laughs at that gaffe. Um, it gets a rare you, you fucked up chat for the Ring of Honor crowd, although, as I guess, as you pointed out earlier, Trent Asa got one. So this was a, a uh, rambunctious crowd by Ring of Honor standards. Um, Nana said he's going to bring gold to the embassy. Nana starts to stumble on his words again, which draws more laughs. Nana then tells John Walters that he's a hell of a worker, and he asks him if he'd like to get rub downs after every show, if he'd like to wear a $15,000 watch like Prince Nana's wearing. Nana says he's offering Walters everything he's ever wanted in the wrestling business. Walters, at this point, who had already left the ring, he re-enters the ring. Nana gives him just a handful of loose bills. And uh, Walters says it's going to take a hell of a lot more than this to get him to join the embassy. So he tries to give the money back to Nana, but instead Nana starts to count out more money in front of him until Jimmy Rave stops Nana. So there's a bit of jealousy here. Nana assures Rave that he will still be the crown jewel of the embassy. And then he Nana hands more money to John Walters. Walters asks Nana if he can guarantee this kind of payday every single night. Nana says yes. He then asks Nana, does he really think he's just going to sell out to them? And then Walters pauses for a second. He says, you're right. And he hugs Nana, which actually gets a decent pop from the crowd, even though this is supposed to be a heel turn. Uh, I thought the funniest thing about this, Matt, was um, Nana like just handed um, Walters a handful of, of loose bills. And like Walters like, you know, I'm not going to turn not for this kind of money. And then like the amount of money – Walter, I mean, Nana then added to it, didn't seem like that much extra. Like, it didn't seem like it was that much more to get Walters from going, like, I won't join you guys to, like, okay, great. I, 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 you know, I, 
you guys obviously use that horrible American money where everything's green. If this was an angle done with Canadian money where it's all multicolored, I could have told just told, seen just from the colors how much more money he was giving. But that's why that, that, that's just one of the many problems that America has that Canada doesn't. Matt, if you think that you're going to get me angry by saying that Canada is better than America, you're talking <laughs> to the wrong guy. Um, but um, yeah, no, I like that. I like that turn because I I like that they didn't like. It was just so matter of fact, you know. It's very rare that like they like they don't tease it at all. Guys like, hey, become bad with us, and the guys like, okay, you know, like that's it's usually not what happens. Usually, there's like a little bit more consternation involved, and this time there wasn't, and I appreciated that. And but you're right, the crowd did treat it like a face turn. <laughs> yeah, th- there was no will they or won't they, and sometimes that's great. But I did like I think for an angle like this, you really didn't want or need it. And yeah, it just it's there's no real drama to it, but it makes complete logic of just like hey. I'll pay you a bunch of money. That's not enough money. Okay, here's more. Okay, deal. And I'm going to join these guys. And uh, I do think it was a good idea to put Walters, you know, because the embassy can give him some character and color and and personality with Nana that he was lacking. But I do feel like it's maybe an example of too little too late because I felt like Walters early in the year, I might have even said to you, like, maybe Walters should have joined the embassy. But I feel like now he's getting to join and it's just – it's too late. I feel like people have already kind of made their decisions about how they feel about Walters. On the other hand, if Walters had joined the embassy in like the first half of the year, the embassy meant absolutely nothing at that point. Yeah. And now it's actually kind of over. So like it does mean a little bit more if that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, you, you do have a – and the crowd did – like we said, they did pop for it. Like yeah. they did kind of were into the idea of, oh, cool, Walters but, is part of the embassy. But my favorite thing at the end of the match was – at the end of the angle was Nana going, now let's go out on the town and have a party because <laughs> Nana's always talking about having parties. And I was also like, but what about the weapon of mass destruction? He hasn't even wrestled yet. <laughs> so it's just like they just, just hold off on your party. It seems like they did hold off on their party. So you shouldn't have said let's do it now. You should have said in a couple hours we're going to go out on the town and have a party. <laughs> so um, – and the Observer wrote about this at the time, about this angle. Dave wrote, the idea is to make the embassy a more serious heel group going forward. And I think that they would become a more se- serious heel group over time. But like when you look at a backstage segment that's coming up a little later, like even on this show, they're still not a serious heel group. If, if the idea was as of this show, it's not consistent because there is some goofiness later. I mean Nana but is that- just – Nana is just so funny. It's hard to not have him be funny. Yeah, he's great. And um, that brings us to the Fight Without Honor tag team match. The first Fight Without Honor since Carino and Homicide, our match of the year 2003. No, 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 no. I've got to correct you. That was not not a Fight Without Honor. Yeah, that that Homicide-Carino match was not a Fight Without Honor. They do have a Fight Without Honor in 2006, and it sucks. But um, but no, it does. (laughs) I think they would even admit it. But um, but no, this, yes, you're right. The last one was uh, Xavier versus uh, John Walters from the f- yeah. from the previous final battle. My mistake. But um, this one is B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff with Ricky Steamboat. Uh, it's set on a cage match, although Ricky Steamboat actually wasn't with them. He didn't come out till after the match. So cage match, he got this one wrong. And they defeat the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke with McFoley, who I guess – that they kind of didn't get that wrong, wrong that one wrong because he does come out in the middle of the match, but he wasn't in the. I don't think he was in the Carnage Cruise corner. So you know what, cage match, you fuck this one up. But yeah, yeah, they, they got it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Moff and Whitmer did win the match though in 16 minutes 42 seconds when Whitmer pinned Devito after he hit him with a wrist clutch exploder into thumbtacks. Uh, Matt, 
this was, you know, the Ring of Honor hyped this match up as, you know, we only do, when we do fights without Honor, they're the most violent, craziest matches, you know, in the company. How do you think it lives up to that kind of standard? Well, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, that I have disliked this feud immensely. I think that it was a bad feud from the beginning. I think their matches have been not good. I think that the just the I, nobody was invested really in it. I think that the Foley and Steamboat involvement didn't add anything. So as I watched this, as I turned this match on, I was totally ready to be like, "Oh, this this sucks," but I do not think it sucked. Um, I thought it it didn't live up to the fight without honor in the sense of it didn't have like intense hatred behind it, I don't think. And I don't think it was a great match, but I thought it was pretty fun and pretty high energy, and I thought it was well-paced and enjoyable. And that's more than I could say about any of their other matches and a lot more than I expected. Um, I don't remember enjoying this match, watching it years back, but I did I did enjoy it this time. Um, so I'll just run through some spots. You got um, Loke really... Like right at the beginning, putting a bell on Whitmer's head and ringing it, um, suplexing him up the ramp. Um, Moff gets out a ladder like right away, I guess, to evoke last year's fight without honor in the same building. Um, sets it off, sets it up across the aisle and kicks it right into DeVito's head. Then puts, then Whitmer puts DeVito's head in between rungs of the ladder and runs it against the ring post. Um, and yet DeVito busted wide open. Um, Danger suddenly appears at ringside, and she's just doing danger stuff. Um, there is a uh, a con garbage can co to BJ Whitmer, but this time Gabe does not call it that. Unfortunately, <laughs> makes me so angry. He says trash can concerto, and Sad. I was like, God damn it! Yeah, I want my con trash can co. Yeah, co- co- yes, con trash can co. That's what it was. Um, so now Whitmer's busted open, and Loke's working over the cut. Moff's bleeding too. Um, puts the ladder over Loke, drops an elbow on it. And Loke, oh, excuse me, Loke drops an elbow on the ladder that is on top of Moff, and Loke sells his elbow a lot. And I imagine it wasn't selling. It looked like it probably really hurt to drop an elbow on a ladder. So it does, that doesn't seem smart. Um, meanwhile, Punk says that Steamboat hates this style, but it's probably watching because you know how you hate something, but you watch it anyway because it just pissed you off, kind of like a car accident. <laughs> and, then, and then I then I just imagined CM Punk like watching car accidents and getting real pissed off about them. Like, somebody wasn't driving carefully. Um, well, he's strange, so he assumes they're all drunk driving accidents. That's right. And he watches them because he likes to get pissed off. Um, <laughs> it's just weird all around. Um, so... Um, Loke sets up a table, puts it across BJ's neck in the corner, just like they did in the Chicago street fight with Punk and, uh, and Ace, but Moff breaks it up before the Carnage crew can hit him with the ladder, um, so BJ is not uh, decapitated. Um, but Punk says that BJ is so bloody that he looks like a, yes? Menstrual horse. Yes, which Gabe is appalled by, but then Gabe says that he's attracted to Alice in Danger, so now I'm appalled. Um so it's just kind of a cycle. Um, uh, meanwhile, Loke suplexes BJ onto, on the ladder, and DeVito comes off with a moonsault onto him. Um, Carnage crew hits, like, they hit, like, you know, they have their usual spike pile driver, but they actually hit a conventional spike pile driver on Moff. Um, but before they can cover, BJ appears and hits them both with a Singapore cane. Then, um, and the crowd, you know, they're, like, 
hot and cold on this. Like, like they're not so into it, but Danger is trying to get them to react. Like, she's like pounding the mat and stuff. I don't. I guess she's. I guess she's in Devito and Loke's corner, which. Yeah, they shouldn't have said Ricky Steamboat because it was really Allison Danger that was in their corner. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Loke runs at BJ. BJ exploder suplexes him into a table that's propped in the corner, but he just barely hits the bottom corner of the table, and it looks like it hurts a lot. Uh, two count for that one. Meanwhile, DeVito appears with a second ladder, and Gabe throws in that the Carnage crew couldn't afford to put presents under their Christmas trees for their kids, which, I don't know, that's just like a random bit of darkness thrown into the match. <laughs> the, the, our wrestlers are very, very poor, everybody, just so you know. Um, all four guys, uh, they scale side-by-side ladders, and Moff and DeVito are on one, BJ and Loke are on the other. Um, so Loke and Moff, they lose their balance, and they both get crotched on the second rope. And then DeVito hits a rock-bottom-type move off the ladder on Whitmer, and all four are down. And that is when Mick Foley appears and gets the biggest pop of the match. Um, so Foley gets in the ring and does a promo in the middle of the match, which, you know, it's over, but I feel like it does take something away from the match that this guy's just standing there talking in the middle of this, like, hate, hate, hateful brawl. But he pulls out a... a a Christmas stocking and he calls it Santa's special socko and he dumps out, he dumps it out. And of course there are thumbtacks in it and they litter the ring, but Foley just stays on the mic, which I didn't like as they tease the thumbtack spots and Moff and DeVito, they, they, they hit each other with kendo sticks. DeVito hits an ace crusher on Moff for two. BJ hits a double arm DDT on Loke for two. And then BJ goes for an exploder on Loke. Loke blocks it. Hits a neckbreaker off the apron, through a table on the floor on Moff. And so you got Whitmer and DeVito alone in the ring. Whitmer hits the wrist clutch on the thumbtacks on DeVito, gets the win. Um, that gets the dangerous chant. Um, I, I, I just, I thought it was more fun and high energy than the usual brawl between these two. I actually thought the Foley involvement, in some ways it was good, but I thought the way he just stuck around, I didn't like. But, the crowd was more into the match after he showed up than they were before it, so I guess it was the right call. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I had a, I had fun watching it, and I don't normally have fun watching these two teams wrestle each other. Um, I like this the best of their matches, but I think I liked it less than you. I would put this as like another – basically on the level of every other match we've seen on this show so far, like – Two and three quarter star, above slightly above average, but not really that – Like I I, I'd, probably, this, I'd probably go like three and a quarter. Yeah, so we're not that far apart, but the way I would put this is just like you, not been a fan of the Carnage Crew, Moth and Whitmer feud or their matches. I would describe this as kind of like a rich man's version of their other brawls where it's like kind of the same match but just more of everything, which is better. Like, you know, there's every weapon, chairs, tables, bells, ladders, kendo sticks, thumbtacks, you know, there's – copious blood like these you usually get from these two teams brawl there's you know a lot of a lot of violence and it was one, it's one of those matches where i feel guilty not liking it more because these guys are really putting themselves out there physically and their effort level is really high and i think i was trying to think well why isn't this connecting with me a little bit more and part of me thought maybe one it's because we've seen Moth and Whitmer have a much better version of this match this year with Ace Steel and CM Punk. And so maybe I'm just comparing it too much to that, which is probably unfair. M- maybe part of it is – and this will go to um, 
this is on Gabe says this on commentary at one point. He says this feud isn't about hatred; it's about which team is the toughest. And I felt like that kind of summed up part of my problem with this whole feud. Is it felt like this feud wasn't about anything? Like I've mentioned before, despite the fact that we're covering every show, every segment in detail. I can't tell you why this feud started or when or what it's about, really. And, you know, even this match, it doesn't really feel like if a big fight without honor, end of a feud, like it's you should feel like a really hate heated, hate filled thing. And it just feels like more of a hard work stunt show. And yeah, can I, I can I, I can I I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I add like something something to that point? Go ahead. Go ahead. I think that. It's the Carnage crew. Like, I, I, I respect them. I think that they're in some ways underrated. I think they've had a lot of fun performances. But I don't think that they have shown that they're a, that they have the ability to show true, like, passion and hatred. Like, I think there's always something a little bit just like kind of like fun about them, if that makes sense. Like, even with Special K, like when they were like, we, you know, we hate them, we want to destroy them, they still look like they're having a good time fighting. And like, it's just it's hard to like take their characters seriously, and I think you have to do that in order to take their hatred of another team seriously. Does that ring true to you? That's a I think that's a fantastic point. I never thought of it before because when you think about their gimmick is uh, whenever I think of the country, I always think of just Devito always being like I love this shit. Like the gimmick is they love this kind of match. Like yeah. it, it's it's fun for them. Where for most wrestlers, the idea is this is the kind of match you only wrestle because it's so painful and horrific when you just hate someone. Like this is the idea. Like the Carnage Crew. Like I think Gabe even talks about like Carnage Crew wishes every match could be like this. Like yeah, yeah it, 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 it's not. You don't get this feeling that like this is so much like a. a a degree exactly. of pain they have to go to. It's like, this is fun. This is like, thank they're, they're thankful that finally they get to do another one of these. And yeah, yeah, it's almost like sometimes I think Mick Foley probably occasionally had a problem with like storylines that pro- portrayed him in his youth as like, Oh, he loves pain because it kind of cheapens the beatings he takes, you know, where like, Oh, well he's taking these huge beatings, but he likes it. You know, he wants this. So it's like, no, you're kind of, you know, you should sell this probably as like, this is brutal, it's not fun, but you hate this so much, you know, you're, I'm droning on, but willing to take it. But I guess going back to the match, I think that's a great point. And I think maybe the third reason this match didn't really hit for me is like you said, the Mick Foley stuff, because when Mick Foley comes in and gets on the mic, he completely steals focus from the wrestlers. On one hand, you can't completely criticize that because he is the most over part of this match and this feud but on the other hand if this point was to if the point of his involvement in this feud was to give him give these two teams some kind of hardcore rub like it's not like either team comes away from this bigger stars <laughs> sorry because of mcfoley i was just laughing at hardcore rub hardcore <laughs> rub that's that, that's uh never, never mind i'm not even gonna go there um but uh yeah, so yeah, they didn't get any kind of hardcore rub here. Not n- none of the varieties, and um, and yeah, like you said, fully his work in here. Even though again, it really popped the crowd. It kind of makes this match is supposed to feel like this brutal end of a feud seem like almost a comedy match because you know dumping out the thumbtacks from a giant stocking or not a giant stocking, but like a, sto- a Christmas stocking. Um, staying on the mic for the rest of the match, and there's a moment, and it is funny. It got a laugh out of me, but it's not 
it, it turns into like a weird comedy thing where Foley's doing like running commentary on the match at ringside with the mic and someone hits the double arm DDT and goes to the cover and Foley goes, no one kicks out of the double arm DDT and the guy kicks out and Foley, you, can, you can't quite make out what he says, but it's basically, it's, it seems like, like, oh, I guess he did. And you can hear the crowd laugh, but again, it's like funny, but then you start thinking, it's kind of changing this match into something much different where these guys are coming off of just like pawns for Foley's amusement and kind of a comedy thing. And again, these guys were taking brutal, violent spots, but overall not huge into this match, but it was the best match of their, of their series. They gave a huge effort to this. It sounds like, it sounds like given like some of the stuff you said before about Foley talking about how he made Randy Orton, it sounds like this was like peak egotistical Foley like here, like where he's just like, he's just like laughing it up and, and, you know, talking about the, and like taking spotlight away from people and like, but soaking up the accolades and getting into fights with Ric Flair. It sounds like he was probably not, He's probably at one of his more annoying stages at this point in his life. I feel like Mick Foley, like his ego and his generosity, they're always tied together. Like they're like they're not either or. I feel like they're both. To me, Mick Foley, he's one of those guys where he'll give a two million dollar donation to a uh, hospital, but he wants to make sure you name a ward of it after him. Like, like he's a good guy, but also like a lot of ego is mixed within it. So like, I do think he honestly did want to get these guys over, but he also wants you to know he's trying to get them over. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, but yes, although to be fair, I'm pretty sure he does do a lot of charity work that he doesn't, doesn't publicize, but, but yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. And I, I, I still love Mick Foley. I think, I think he's he's one of my favorite people ever in wrestling. Let me put it this way. I will always I, – I say that and it's not a complete criticism because something I always say is I will value somebody who is a braggy guy but does a lot of good things in charity work over someone that doesn't brag at all and is very humble and does no charity work. Like the, the yeah. former is better than the latter. If you're going to do nice things, go ahead and brag about it. Just do good things for people. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's I, a good I don't point. Care. That's a good point. So, even though, you know, we might say, oh, it'd be even better if you d- did charity work and stayed humble. You know what? As long as you're doing charity work, you want to brag, you know, have, have a good time. And in the pantheon um, of wrestlers, uh, Mick Foley is not among the most egotistical. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he just might be a little more on his sleeve about it. But um, I also thought it was interesting when this match starts, when the guys come out, Moth and Whitmer are wearing Mick Foley Ring of Hardcore t-shirts, which are just pictures of a a bloody Mick Foley from his past with like the words ring of hardcore on them. And I forgot that Mick Foley was this entrenched with the company that he actually had like a branded ring of honor t-shirt, which I assume he made money off of. But I, I wonder how many people actually bought a Rick ring of hardcore Mick Foley t-shirt. I don't know. But, um, on commentary during this match, Gabe noted that this could be steamboats last night in ring of honor as he's just signed to be an agent in WWE. And then punk, I thought this was interesting knowing that punk signs with them less than a year later. Punk says, Lord knows a lot of people up there need help. <laughs> and, and I, I thought, Oh, you're not doing yourself any favors there. Although punk will be fine. Um, and then this is the other Frank talent thing. Um, Frank Talent, at one point in this match, if you go and rewatch it, and the announcing does not call attention to it, but like when Foley is 
is at ringside after he comes to the ring and does his stuff. Um, Frank Talent just wanders by. He grabs a dented trash can and he, he holds the the trash can over his head behind Foley, like he's going to hit it with him. And Foley doesn't even notice. And then Frank like puts it down again. Like this was the night of Frank Talent just hamming it up apparently and and going into business for himself, Matt. But, he was he was as they say on one tonight. <laughs> so after this, this isn't going to be a long promo thing sometimes when i recap promos believe it or not i do try and edit my recaps down but i feel like this one is important for a variety of reasons it's steamboat's last one it sets up a big angle so this might be a little bit of reading but i tried to recap this angle best i could after the match the crowd chants for foley not moth and whitmer which again may be a sign that mick kind of stole some attention uh foley's in the ring he's raising arms he's celebrating and he prompts the crowd to give the wrestlers a round of applause Foley then grabs the mic and says the four guys in this match did all the work, but maybe this match was Mick's way of saying happy holidays to the crowd. Mick says they prove that Ring of Honor means Ring of Hardcore, or ROH means Ring of Hardcore. Mick wants DeVito to get up and show the thumbtack holes in his back because that's what hardcore is all about. The crowd then chants Carnage Crew. Mick says it's been a tremendous feud that he's proud to have been a part of. And while he doesn't need to see full contact hugs, he'd like to see handshakes. The two teams then, in fact, do full, on, full contact hugs. Uh, DeVito gets on his knees and bows to Mick. So after the country always talked about fully not giving them some respect, I guess they kind of get reach an understanding here. Uh, both teams walk to the back. And as they leave, Ricky Steamboat walks in. And Ricky is drawing a mix of you sold out chants and people booing those chants, I would say. That's what it sounded like to me. Soon the entire crowd chants Ricky's name, though. Mick says everyone knows where Ricky is going and they all wish him well. So maybe it's best to just end their little, you know, problem between each other without saying a word. Ricky at this point grabs a kendo stick that was in the ring and he smiles before Mick hands him the mic. There's some woos. There's a small Ric Flair sucks chant, too. So, again, a conflicted crowd. Uh, Ricky points at all the plunder that's still in the ring and he says that's something Mick supports. And he goes on to say that Mick brought the, the thumbtacks out that determined the outcome of this match. Uh, Steve asks what kind of life Mick has at home, which I thought was kind of a weird place to take it. Uh, Mick says if he had his way, he would have come out in the Captain Hook outfit his wife got him for Christmas, but his son, who was in attendance tonight, thought it made him look like an idiot and asked him not to wear it. So, Matt, does this mean that Dewey Foley? Attended Final Battle 2004. Current WWE writer, Dewey Foley. Seems, I, I mean, seems, seems quite plausible. What about Noel, yeah. though? She, not there. Frank the Clown, blissfully not there. <laughs> uh, Mick says he brought up the thumbtacks because he liked them. The wrestlers liked them. The fans liked them. Foley says he's done his research, though, and Steamboat isn't the softcore legend he's accused him of being in the past. He references strap matches Ricky had with Don Morocco, cage matches with Rick Rude, violent brawls with him and Shane Douglas against the Hollywood Blondes. Foley says he was wrong. Ring of Honor doesn't stand for Ring of Hardcore usually. He admits Ring of Honor is built on a foundation of pure wrestling and scientific know-how. And if, but, and he admits that if Steamboat is willing to admit that there's a place in Ring of Honor for Hardcore too. Ring of Honor says wrestling is like a buffet. And then he says, don't make a joke about my gut, which was funny. And, uh, he says Ring of Honor fans might like a pure wrestling main course, but maybe they'd like some hardcore dessert as well. And the fans do cheer for that. Fully. You must have loved that. You must have loved that part, right? I love anytime you can make a food analogy, I'm all for it. You know, yes. I just started thinking what, what kind of food dessert is hardcore wrestling? Maybe cherry cobbler. It's very red. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
Foley then goes on to say, it's funny that Rick is talking about pure wrestling where he's going to WWE, home of pure wrestlers such as Heidenreich, Snitsky, Luther Reigns, and Chris Benoit. And Chris Benoit's like, well, I got that one, right? And then It really, it really I, I, puts it in a specific time, right? Heidenreich, yeah, Snitsky, I'll, and Luther Reigns. Uh, and also, I was going to say, I was going to make a bad joke about Chris Benoit turned out to be the most hardcore of them all, but Oy I guess I just made it. I'm sorry. I'm to, sorry. To, to commemorate Yom Kippur, I will atone for that comment that you just made. Thank you, Matt. You, you, are, you are a mensch. You're doing it for both of us. I'm not Jewish, but I will, I will take the saving. Uh, Mick then admits that he was at Raw recently taking part in what he says is one of the most, quote, offensive, tasteless, racially charged angles in recent years. So Mick being kind of pretty honest here because I think it was with Muhammad Hassan. Hassan. Oh, yeah. No, it was bad. It was really bad because I I remember like Mick Foley was like the liberal wrestler, like the only one at that point. And it was like – and like he was like anti – like he was supporting John Kerry against Bush and it was like – and then he did an angle where he was like, I support America and like was really against Muhammad Hassan. I was like, Mick, what are you doing? And then it's like at the very least Mick knew that his angle was racist. So I guess that makes it – 1% 1% less bad to do? I don't know. Yeah, so yeah, anyway, after after that point, um Mick admits he at that raw he was also punched by Ric Flair at, backstage and uh, he says but most of all when I was at that raw I was watching Ricky Steamboat talk and interact with WWE superstars, and this is where he says, Raw's been picking up the pace in recent weeks since Steamboat showed up there. Foley says, no one, myself included, has the respect among the boys in the back like Ricky Steamboat does. He says, everyone in the Ring of Honor crowd may mock WWE, but they all actually watch it, and that gets some booze from the crowd, actually. They don't like being told that they watch WWE, even and I'm I, sure probably a lot of them did. But I bet a lot of – I bet some of them didn't. Yeah, I know. I'm sure. I mean, I wasn't a regular watcher at this point, I don't think. But um, Mick says, with Steamboat's guidance, Snitsky may be a good wrestler. Steamboat has a big smile and chuckle at that one. I think Dave wrote in The Observer that uh, Steamboat was not told ahead of time that Foley's comments would be would be touching on those things, and he was trying to hold it together at this point. Uh, Mick says, with Steamboat's help, the bad wrestlers will improve, the great ones will keep just getting better, and Triple H just might even become a legend. That gets booze and a big <laughs> fuck Triple H chant. Um, I noticed that the DVDR guys, I didn't have this in my quotes, but they took that as uh, Foley sucking up to Triple H. I took that as him, like, Doing a big dig to Triple H and prompting the crowd to shit on him, but I, I uh, honestly couldn't tell if he was being yeah. sincere or being like, kind of like, kind of like winking. I, I really couldn't tell. I took it as like, I guess you could say it as him being genuine, but you could also take it as like saying Triple H might become a legend. It was almost like Triple H probably already thinks he's a legend, but I'm saying he isn't. But like you said, who knows? Um, yeah. Steamboat says Mick is right. He has had violent gimmick matches with a variety of wrestlers. One fan in the crowd screams out, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnoodle. And you can tell, like, Ricky hears that. And he looks at that fan and he goes, you're going way back. And <laughs> that was a cute little thing. Um, Steamboat agrees with Mick that those matches were hardcore. He agrees with Mick that there's room for hardcore in wrestling, just that he doesn't want to see it in every single match. And at this point, the two shake hands. So that that's how the feud gets settled. We can talk about that in a bit. Uh, Foley says, now that they've got the niceties out of the way, 
Who wants to hear about Ric Flair? He brings up that Flair recently punched him in the face backstage at Raw, and Mick says the truth is he was disrespectful to a legend in the business, and he got punched in the face for it. He says maybe Steamboat was right. He's no Ric Flair. Maybe he forgot his place in the food chain, got in Flair's face, and got what he had coming to him. And you can kind of – it's hard for me to judge, but I think you can kind of audibly hear from the crowd's reaction that they were hoping that Mick was really going to lay into Flair, and they're kind of disappointed that he's basically saying – I was wrong. I got I got what I deserved. Um, Mick says there's a guy in Ring of Honor who has forgotten their place in the food chain and disrespected a legend and maybe has something coming to him as well. His name is Samoa Joe. Mick calls out Joe and says he'll sweep up the thumbtacks in the ring if Joe comes out, which Foley does indeed grab a broom and starts sweeping up thumbtacks. Uh, Foley keeps calling for Joe to come out. Joe eventually does run to the ring. He gets right in Mick's face, and Foley's tone is really interesting. Foley's tone makes a very sharp change where he goes from being kind of the happy-go-lucky Foley to like kind of a legit angry in a cool way sounding like he says to Foley, don't give me, I mean, he says to Joe, don't give me that shit. You're the one that disrespected me. And then Foley's tone, you know, keeps changing. There's some anger in his voice as he recounts how Joe recently made fun of him for missing in a recent ROH show for an appearance at a hockey game. Mick says, I'm just trying to support my family. And Joe, you punked me out in front of the boys. He says, Mick says, I was wrong to disrespect Ric Flair. And I feel better for admitting that. And I want to give you Joe the same chance to admit that you were wrong and to show me the proper respect. Uh, Mick says, until Joe has gone to WWE and achieved the success that Foley has, and Mick adds as a side note here that the offer is out there, Joe says, I mean, Foley says that Joe is one or two steps below him in the wrestling food chain. That gets some applause, but more booze than applause. Mick wants a handshake and says Joe will feel a lot better if he does a handshake. Joe shakes, and we get a few more boos for the handshake, actually. Uh, Mick says Joe is the best in this business, and he means that. And he's told the guys in WWF, WWE that, but he just needs to remember his place. Uh, Joe at this point says, I apologized, and you're right, Mick. I feel really good. That felt really good. But I know something that would feel a lot better. He opens up his arms for a hug, and Mick goes in to give a hug. But when he leans in, Joe hits Mick right in the head. Uh, Steamboat immediately starts yelling at Joe for doing that. Mick recovers and grabs a kendo stick. They have a standoff with Steamboat standing in between them. Joe just says, you'll have your time, old man. Just call me when you're ready to wrestle. Joe leaves to some chance for him. Steamboat tells Mick he's sorry that that happened, but he has to admit that was pretty hardcore. Steamboat thanks the crowd, says Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We end with Steamboat's theme and a big thank you, Steamboat chant. And in a classic Steamboat nice guy move, as he's walking up the aisle in his final moment in Ring of Honor, he actually stops to sign something that someone in the aisle hands for Steamboat to, to sign in the middle of the show. And that's that for the segments. So Matt... A lot going on there. That was Steamboat's wrap-up in Ring of Honor. I thought Mick Foley did a very gracious – it was pretty gracious. He, he Mick Foley did what he does occasionally do, which I describe as the, the Dane Feuerstein um, way of school of putting people over, which is you – you basically shit on yourself as a way of as complimenting someone else because, you know, he was basically saying, you know, I was wrong about this. I was wrong about that. You were right about, you know, you were right that Mary of Honor is mostly pure wrestling. You were right about Flair. You know, everyone in backstage at WWE respects you more than me. Even it was a lot of Foley being very self-deprecating to put over Steamboat, which I thought was pretty gracious of him. And, um, the, the the Joe angle was pretty hot at the end. It's just kind of a 
shitty thing that it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it goes somewhere, but it doesn't go where fans are hoping. And uh, I have maybe one or two other thoughts, but I, I, I think I've talked so much. How about you? What are your thoughts about this whole big long thing? Um, I thought it was, you know, probably the best Foley segment. Well, definitely the best Foley segment, the best that he's done so far. Probably the best one he does. Period in ROH. I um, I like I liked Joe's turn um, because it made him feel a little bit like Stone Cold Steve Austin in the sense like he's kind of being a dick, you know, like like he's kind of in the wrong a little bit, but also he's cool and he's badass and he's this generation. So you are on his side. He's still a babyface while he's doing it. And, like, you believe in him. And, yeah, the only downside is that um, it doesn't pay off. Because if it did, this would be a real great angle. Um, it just doesn't. <laughs> so, well, I mean, you know, we'll see in the next few shows that we do. Really, really, the next two shows. Because there is another big... There's On the on both of the next two shows, there are big angles with um, Foley and, and Jill. So, um, so, I guess we'll see whether or not those top this or not. But I like this a lot, and I thought Steamboat, for his part, he was just sort of classy and just standing there. Like, he, he didn't really have much to do, but he carried himself with grace. Yeah, this was, even though this was Steamboat's farewell angle, this was, uh, or moment, this arguably up till, like, the end felt more like a McFoley moment than anything else, which, again, you could say that's a theme with some of his segments in Ring of Honor, but I, I do think Steamboat still got some. You know, the, the segment ended with Steamboat getting chanted for, and it also people. was supposed to be a big Foley segment. They were they were building up yes. a big angle between him and Pass, and it seems like they were definitely planning on a match between him and Joe, right? Like that definitely. Yeah, the, was, the, at this point, that was the plan. Yes. Um. Uh, we'll get to that later or maybe on an upcoming show. There, There's mixed things from – some sources seem to say they thought there would be a match and some sources seem to think, well, we think there's going to be – He's Mick Foley, I'll put it this way. He had at least agreed to do physical confrontations where he would bump. The, the jury is – like the sources are mixed on did that mean he was actually saying I can do a whole match with this guy? Um the one thing I thought was weird about this – well, not weird, but we've talked – You know, people have listened to the last bunch of episodes know that me and Matt have not been fans of the just the nature of the Steamboat. Mick, uh, anti-hardcore versus hardcore angle, even if we like some of the performances within their mic work. Um, I, I thought the way this angle ended, it was kind of goofy because when you think – when you think – when you just think about what, how it ends, Mick Foley goes, oh – uh, I did some research and realized you used to do hardcore type wrestling in the 80s. And then Steamboat's like, oh, yeah, I did do hardcore wrestling. And then they're both like, well, Ring of Honor is a place for wrestling, but also occasionally a hardcore match. And it's like it's almost like they're the last to know all of this. Like it's an angle that didn't storyline that didn't need to happen because literally everything they're saying is stuff that was self-evident to every wrestling fan at the start of it. That yes, ring of honor has mostly regular wrestling, but some hardcore stuff. Yes. Steamboat used to do occasionally a match, a strap match, a cage match, like all of that stuff. It's just like they finally remembered it for the purposes of ending the angle. Almost like every wrestling promotion ever and every wrestler ever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I just love the idea of Mick Foley. Like, I did some research, and you used to wrestle, you know, in the eighties. Like, huh. <laughs> um, so we go backstage. It's intermission, and Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with the Embassy. Gary calls himself the Scoopster, which I love that now he's calling himself the Scoopster, not just a uh, Gabe on commentary. He he wants to know what's up. 
Uh, Nana says he's on, quote, an everlasting high, which I thought was a, a nice little turn of phrase. And he says no one can decline the riches of the embassy. Nana then is telling Walters about all the cool things that he and Jimmy Rave do. I love, like, me and Jimmy do this, you know, me and Jimmy do that. We go on boat rides, jet airplanes to Paris. We go to Saks Fifth Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that because it's almost like, obviously, he's telling us, like, you can do this too. But the way he's saying it, it's almost like he's just bragging about what he and his good friend Jimmy Jimmy Rave, too. Like, you know, me and Jimmy go on boat rides. Like, you should, you should see the stuff me and Jimmy do. Uh, well, they, they definitely should have put some money into like skits showing them on a boat, showing oh, them shop, was... showing them shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue, all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I would have loved to see like actual skits of like Jimmy Rave and Nana being best friends. Um, them get them getting into a bath with the Outcast Killer standing there with all that soap. <laughs> <laughs> the Ghana so holding Mr. Bubble. Yeah. <laughs> like more Mr. Bubbles, please, for Jimmy. <laughs> His torso is starting to become visible, gentlemen. Um so anyway, at this point the outcast killers interrupt to complain that they're two and zero recently and they aren't even booked for tonight. Nana tells them to take it easy and asks them to get his weapon of mass destruction for the second half of the show. He says this weapon is not as strong as the last weapon because he's had to sell parts of his weapon to Sign Walter. So I don't know if he's implying that the weapon of mass destruction is like a Frankenstein monster or something, but the way he said I had to sell parts of my weapon. He's like um, he's like one of those weapon characters from the Final Fantasy games. <laughs> you know. Um elsewhere backstage, Sugar Sean Price has found Trent Acid. He wants to know why Trent quit. Trent says, You haven't seen the right Trent Acid, and he'll be back. Don't worry. Uh I'd say if you're a Trent Acid fan, worry for a variety of reasons. And um jeez. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean I didn't mean it that bad, but like uh coming up. I mean it's a tragic end. I obviously anyone that dies that young had a lot more to offer. But I think especially even Trent Acid, if he had just retired at that age, I, I do not think he lived up to his full potential as a wrestler. And it, it, it's it's tragic for on multiple levels. No, it no it is. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's a sad story. Yeah. Um, but moving on to the fun wrestling, Jay Lethal, first match back from intermission, defeats the Weapon of Mass Destruction number two, scored to the ring by Prince Nana. Current, current, current WWE champion, um, championship holder, the Weapon of Mass Destruction number two. <laughs> In fact, yeah, he, as we are recording this tonight, is the Clash of Champions, and uh, apparently Sami Zayn, who was Weapon of Mass Destruction number two, aka El Generico, this is his. This is technically his Ring of Honor debut. Sure he is. loses to Jay Lethal in six minutes thirty-two seconds after he gets hit with a dragon suplex. Um, I, Matt, I, I actually thought this was a decent match. I thought this was a good little showcase. I mean, it couldn't be great or anything too special because it only went six and a half minutes, but. I felt like they did good work together for the time they had, but I felt like this was also another example of Ring of Honor not putting a guy in a great position to succeed in their first match because a lot of the commentary in the first half of this match is Punk and Gabe, but especially Punk shitting on the Mass Destruction number two, talking about how skinny he looks compared to the last Mass Destruction, how they were promised a bigger, stronger Mass Destruction. They weren't. I think at one point, Punk says, in my, I had my notes from, a, from a, like a source, and they said he that the weapon of Mass Destruction number two was a badass, but he crossed out the word ass. Like, you know, just so he was just bad, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and Punk, then Punk he, says, my correspondent is a farce. Yeah. <laughs> and, and basically, as the match continues, um, the weapon to El Generico does enough cool things like flipping a lethal into a power pump, power bomb position, but 
it being more of a hot shot onto the turnbuckle. You know, he catches a jumping lethal in midair with a power bomb. Like he does enough cool stuff that eventually Gabe and, and Punk start taking him seriously about halfway through the match. But and Gabe does give you a little wink. He says, uh, this mask weapon of mask uh, number two looks very generic. So little wink for you. And so this is another thing. Also, I, th- I think it's cage match that does this. They said that, uh, the weapon of mass destruction. Number two is flash Flanagan. No, that's number one. Number two is El Generico. This, this is clearly from the body type and the way he works. This is El Generico and that little nod. Um, as the match itself, usual kind of spotlight match for Jay lethal heel controls in the first half. Uh, Lethal makes his big babyface comeback, and Lethal, as always, some of the best babyface like comebacks in fire and wrestling at this point. Really good urgency when he makes his comeback this time. He really like sh- runs in place, shuffling his feet and like screaming like he's like Sting from the eighties, but in a really awesome way. And he always just has a really good fiery comeback, and he wins. And again, it's not much of a match; it's more just kind of a showcase for Lethal, and not the best way to show off El Generico, but. It was fine for getting lethal over. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was, I mean, I don't think they really tried to showcase El Generico. I feel like he was just a warm body there to have a entertaining match. Like, I, I don't even know if they considered this really a tryout for him. Um, but I guess it turned out to be because he was he would get started getting booked soon. Um, but yeah, the match itself, um, it was it wasn't a squash because. The weapon got, you know, moves in. You pretty much said all the ones that I would have said. But it was, it was just, it was short. There wasn't much to it. I'd say the weapon looked good because they set such low expectations for him. You know, they basically, like you said, spent the first half of the match making fun of him. So it really was just Lethal's match to lose. Um, I would still say that it was worse than the first Weapon of Mass Destruction match. Like, I remember just that one being a little more entertaining, but both of them were pretty similar. I would I would put them both in like the two, two and a quarter star range and like clearly they weren't meant to be better than that or else they would have been given more time. I, I, I did not understand why I still was annoyed that Nana said he was going to a party and then he was here and it was like, did you already go to the party and now you're back or what's what's happening here? But um, but as far as the match, yeah, it was, it was pretty much nothing. And it is a bit of a bait and switch, not that I think anyone was probably disappointed in caring that much about this, but on the previous show where uh, Jay wrestled the mask number one, you know, Nana says, you know, did a big deal about saying, I'm going to come back with a second, bigger, stronger, better mask. And then this time they, they, the whole idea is the joke is, well, it's actually a weaker guy. He looks like he has, you know, El Generico's body build, which is lanky, skinny, and um, they're making fun of him. I didn't, I didn't understand the point of this whole weapon of mask destruction concept to begin with honestly like were they it was really just to kill time for a couple shows is that it that's the whole thing i guess so as a way to keep um him apart from you know walters and rave but and uh I will say, though, just to wrap up my one thought about that, uh, at Ring of Honor, and they do are generally do a good job of this. They at least try to explain it away because they did have Nana say in that segment, backstage segment on the show, you know, oh, I spent a lot of my money signing John Walters. So I couldn't, my weapon, I had to sell pieces of them. So they, they did make the idea of the reason why you don't have a better weapon of mass destruction tonight is because he spent a bunch of money. I guess planned to spend a bunch of money because he had to know ahead of time to get John Walters. But um, after the match, Lethal says he's passed all of Nana's tests and he wants Jimmy Rave right now. And then at that point, the segment has a really up, like 
end like the, the the camera immediately cuts away to the next thing so it's like we don't even really get a second for it to settle and we just have to assume that obviously he did not get jimmy rave immediately uh by, by, to- by the way oh, they did they did after that first thing where uh, lethal slapped all the embassy they did say that lethal was going to have to wrestle the outcast killers in a handicap match and they kind of didn't never did that they just did went to the weapon of mass destruction now not that i am dying to see jay lethal against the outcast <laughs> killers in a handicap match but I always am annoyed that ROH, which you'd think pays attention to stuff like this, would just say there was going to be a match and then not explain why it doesn't happen, even though all the guys are around. Yeah, and, and even on the show, the, you could have done it because, I mean, you literally have the show. We just saw the segment. The Outcast Killers are like complaining that they, they aren't booked on the show. Like they were available. They're, they're literally here just to be seconds for tonight. So you could have had a match with them. But yeah. Like you said, I'm not sure, not sure anyone's thirsting for that match, but <laughs> cut to Julia Smokes and Homicide backstage. Smokes wants to know what's up with Snow White Steve Carino showing his face around Ring of Honor again. Homicide tells him not to worry about it. Homicide says, I'm focused on Brian Danielson. I'm, I'm, he talks about how he took his arm out on the last show in their, in their match. Homicide agrees to a best of five series. He's acting like he's agreeing to it right now and says, it's like the Yankees versus the Red Sox, but this time they're not going to choke. Homicide says the first match will be a tap-out match, and he ends by saying that Danielson is just like Carino, a worthless piece of shit. I I do love – one nice thing I do like about the Carino-Homicide feud is even when they weren't feuding, they would regularly acknowledge each other. Like it wasn't one of those feuds where like when they aren't wrestling, they just don't – pretend they don't hate each other like they would go out of their way even like this. It's Carino's first match back in Ring of Honor. Even though they're not playing on feuding anytime soon – at least I don't think so. Like, Homicide is still going out of his way to be like, fuck Steve Carino. Well, remember when Carino appeared at, um, at Glory by Honor, they did a whole thing. So it's like, yeah, basically, if they are in the same promotion, they have to acknowledge how much they hate each other. And yeah, that does make their feud unique and special. Yeah. And that brings us to uh, Steve Carino. In fact, CM Punk and Steve Carino, because they uh, wrestle along with Tracy Brooks and a couple of uh, Steve Carino's students at their side. And I think a couple of Punk students too, maybe. A big entourage. This was a Cody Rhodes-sized entourage, Matt. Punk and Carino defeated Generation Next of Alex Shelley and Roderick Strong in 17 minutes, 32 seconds, when Punk made Shelley tap out to the Anaconda Vice. Uh, Before the match starts, Carino has an insanely over-the-top long ring entrance with lights and all, where his theme song goes on for what feels like forever before he actually comes out. He comes to the ring with his own ring voice of his own and a new personal ring announcer because, of course, his previous uh, personal ring announcer, Bobby Cruz, is now the Ring of Honor official ring announcer. So this time, this announcer introduces himself as Bobby T- Brian T. Regal, I believe, and um, – he wishes everyone in Ring of Honor on and on the behalf of Team Carino a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, a Happy Boxing Day, and to the Rottweilers, a very special Kwanzaa. Carino then whispers into Regal's ear and Regal apologizes. I guess Regal – I mean uh, Carino telling Regal they're not black. Uh, <laughs> this would they, – they, things you wouldn't do in, 2000, in 2020 for $500, Alex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Regal goes on to say that Philly has been home to a lot of great wrestling superstars – and then he breaks out the classic note cards. We're getting another long uh, Carino note reading list where um, it's a list of great stars of Philly, Philly wrestling stars, including Rock and Rebel, which gets a pop, the Ghetto Blaster, Tom Brandy, Salvatore Sincere, Get it? the Fake Patriot. 
Yeah, yeah. For those for those who don't know, Tom Brandy wrestled as Salvatore Centier and the Fake Patriot. And they never um, they never mentioned uh, what was it? Johnny Gunn was that his other name? He had, yeah, I think it was one other. He had one other identity they could have put yeah. in, which they don't. Um, Don E. Allen, which gets a big pop, ECW country. J.T. Smith, another pop, again, ECW country. Uh, the recently released from prison, James Sandman Fullington is how they say it, which gets a laugh. Regal then goes to get a drink of water, but Bobby Cruz stops him and grabs the bottle of water and says, that's my gimmick, and takes a drink from it. Regal then says, in the spirit of the holidays, Crino is giving CM Punk the gift that keeps on giving, not the clap. But the knowledge that without him, Punk would probably be working the opening match against one of his students. The announcer that we, but we both we both make a chlamydia joke tonight. Yeah, exactly. This this show is great if you love the clap. Um, <laughs> the announcer introduces Creno from the greatest wrestling city, Philadelphia, and gives his weight as 110 kilos before clarifying. That's 242 pounds for the Virgin in the Green Lantern jersey, which, honest to God, might have gotten the biggest pop of the show so far. Yeah, people. yes. I was going to say, it's either this or the end of the main event. One of those two is the biggest pop of the night. Yeah. So to, to the Philly crowd, shitting on Green Lantern fan is as big as Samoa Joe losing the world title, perhaps. But calling, but calling, but calling him a virgin, didn't he propose to a real woman on Monday Night Raw? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things he was most famous for before, I yes. think, this era of wrestling. Many years um, before this. Yeah. Before he became the, the Indies resident timekeeper, I think he was like the super fan that proposed out of Raw. But um, anyway, Carino's entrance ends with streamers thrown by his own students. Matt, that was the entrance, but we got a whole match afterwards. So this was Carino's in-ring return to Ring of Honor. Like you mentioned, he returned in an angle for Glory by Honor 3. That his in-ring return got delayed from zero one had to have him as like an emergency call-in from some injuries. What do you think about this match? This is a return, and I guess I did not be I wasn't able because the Wayback Machine problems find the news wires from the era. But I'll just note part of this. I think Phil Schneider wrote in his live notes that and I'll have more notes on him afterwards that this was actually listed at the time as the final confrontation between Generation Next and the Second City Saints. So. um what do you think about the match and that as a blow off actually to that feud? Well, I guess, I mean I guess it sort of was, right? Um Yeah, I think so. Although it wasn't really the Second City Saints. Um right, if, unless unless yeah. Regal, unless uh, uh Carino was an honorary member. Yeah, it, it's Punk with his girlfriend and his buddy, but not really his stable buddy and yeah. Um, first of all, in the uh, the list in the entrance of Philadelphia Legends, I have to say I feel ignorant here of uh local Philly wrestling, because there were a lot of names on that list I did not know. Yeah, did, me did too. You, did you know who Jimmy Gennetti was, or uh, no. Larry Minners, if I don't even know if I wrote the name right, or DC Drake, or Tony Hitman Stenson? Because I didn't. Um, but anyway, um, the match, it was entertaining. I, I there, was, there was a part of me that feels like it didn't totally know what it wanted to be. Because I feel like there was a part of it that was like this serious, like, you know, intense match. And, and whenever um, Shelly and uh, Strong were on offense, you know, it lo- they looked really good. They did it normal stuff. But then there was also just a lot of goofiness with uh, Re- with uh, Carino and Punk where they would like – like um, there'd be a thing where um, like Punk would be working on Shelly's arm. Then he would tag in Car- – no, no, Carino would be working on Shelly's arm. And Carino would tag in Punk. Like, he'd hold the arm, tag him in, and then Punk would, like, put him in an arm ringer, come around, and tag Carino right back in. And, the, and like, like almost like he was, like, trying to, like, annoy him by not staying in the match, by, like, tagging him in. Yeah. So there was that stuff going on. Um, there was, like, um, Punk 
telling Karina to go to the top rope and Karino says, are you kidding me? And refuses. So then <laughs> Punk just picks up Karino and uses him for extra weight as he drops his knee on Strong. Like, so there was like a whole comedy match aspect to it, which I don't know. I couldn't totally understand what they were going for, but it was entertaining. I have to say, um, Carino actually does a baby face thumb to the eye on Alex Shelley, um, uh, which, uh, you know, that's nice for a turn of pace. Cause usually that move means you're a heel in ROH, but he does the baby face version. Um, but then Generation X, when they when they take over, they actually do do the quick tags and actually try to win. At one point, there's a Shelly sequence, and Gabe says, Russian leg sweep right into a sub- – no, a pinning combination. No, a submission. So that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, so Generation X, they're working on Punk's neck. Um, as Shelly has Punk in a, in a hold, Strong walks in and just kick punk, kicks Punk in the back of the neck. Carino comes in and does the same thing to Shelly, but Shelly holds onto the hold, and Strong comes in and just kicks the crap out of Punk's back. Uh, meanwhile, Brooks is distracting the refs and Strong, so Carino comes in and kicks Shelly enough times to break the hold. So that was a fun sequence of like trading kicks and holds and stuff. Um, Shelly does a slingshot into a big boot by Strong uh, for, on Punk, and then Strong hits a senton while Punk is over Shelly's knees. So, like, even a team that really never teams, like Shelly and Strong, like, they still do good tag team stuff together, which I think actually is good. It gets over, like, what a good unit Generation Next is. By the way, this is Shelly's first match back in, like, over two months. Um, yeah. And Shelly, just as he's walking in the ring, he just casually says, I'm back. Um, and that was pretty much the whole thing. But, but their offense is really fun, I, I think, if, even though they're not, you know, a, a normal duo from uh, from this group um so they're working over carino's back and neck and punk breaks it up uh he like shelly has this hold where he has his leg over carino's head and he he just breaks it punk breaks it up by kicking shelly's leg but he accidentally kicks carino in the ear too which is not good because carino does not have a good ear <laughs> he was yeah. deaf in that ear from a homicide slap um so uh, Shelly and Strong, they do a cool combo of moves on Carino, and uh, and Shelly goes for a frog splash. Carino moves, tags in Punk, who knocks Strong off the apron, hits a German suplex on Alex Shelly, goes for a rolling German suplex, but Shelly kicks him off into a big boot by Strong. They do a, kill, a series of kicks, strikes, and Punk's hit, Punk hits a not-great Shining Wizard on Shelly, and all four guys are down. Um... Punk, uh, he gets he goes for the Anaconda Vice at one point, but on Shelly, Strong breaks it up. Uh, Carino and Strong, they fight to the floor. Shelly hits the Shell Shock on Punk. Carino gets in time to break that up. Um, Carino, he blocks a Tornado DDT by Shelly and holds Shelly for like a heart attack clothesline by Punk, which is a good spot. Like, like Shelly is like spinning him around, but he just holds him. And Punk hits the clothesline, gets an Anaconda Vice on Shelly, and gets the first ever Anaconda Vice tap out. I think, in ROH. So that move now will officially be one of his finishers. Um, I, uh, I, I, I like the match, but I, I think that the crowd heat suffered because I don't think the match really ever got a, became a, had a consistent identity. I think like Punk and Carino really wanted it to be this goofy, silly thing. And I think that Generation Next wanted it to just be a match. And I think in the end, the match part won out, but I think that the goofiness kind of took away from the, the vibe. So I think the crowd almost didn't know what to make of it at times. But I enjoyed it. I would say two and three quarters. Three stars, maybe. Three-star match uh, is probably where I would land on it. So um, I thought this was outright good. Um, I This was my favorite match of the show so far. I would do like three and a quarter stars. Like, 
it's not anything special, but, um, I agree with you. This match doesn't really know what it wants to be, or maybe it does, but what it wants to be is still confusing because, um, before I, uh, did my research, I just watched the match first and I thought even then it was confusing where it was like, you know, generation next and the saints are, or at least punk are supposed to be feuding. And the whole first part of this match is just like you said, a bunch of comedy and it's our, Honestly, it's the best part of the match. It, it's the most fun part. It, it's, it is f- genuinely funny wrestling comedy. The crowd loves it, but the problem is the rest of the match, after like the first third or whatever, I think they basically tone down the comedy and it becomes a standard tag with, uh, a punk gets isolated for a while. There's a hot tag. Uh, Carino gets a hot tag and then he gets beaten up a little bit, but then eventually they go to the finish, which everyone coming in, you leave and do the spot where all four are down at the same time to get some applause, blah, blah, blah. And I felt like that match was just solid, but the highlight was the best part. The most entertaining part of the match was actually the comedy part, which ironically is also the part that doesn't really make sense. And then when I did my research and found out that apparently this match was being built as the final confrontation, you know, the end of this feud, it felt even weirder that they made it such a comedy intense match because you really, you feel no hate between like these two teams at all. Like, obviously, they're wrestling, and maybe there's a little bit of dislike at, like, oh, you kicked me, you interfered, or whatever. But it's like, you know, you compare this to how Punk acted during his feud against Raven, or even the feud against the Prophecy, which had a, you know, a a big curveball thrown at it when Daniels had to be pulled off those shows. And, like, those all felt like they had more hatred. Like, this feud felt like it had zero hatred, even though, in storyline, the Second City Saints, I mean, I mean, the Generation Next took out Colt Cabana for months and injured his shoulder. The, I don't think there's ever been one match in this feud that really felt particularly like there was much anger between the sides. Um, but I, again, I, most of this rating and, Again, yeah, the crowd wasn't that into it in the second half. It felt like the comedy was the more appealing part, but the comedy was really enjoyable and the action was fine in the second half too. But just looking at spots, um, first off, there's one spot, Matt. I don't know if you noticed this, but during Punk's walk to the ring with Punk's big long entrance, the lights keep strobing on and off. And there's a moment where he's doing, he always does that big wind up where he like twirls around one arm like he's going to do its clobbering time. And sometimes he says that and sometimes he doesn't. And you see him start to do the motion and then you see the lights go out and you can hear in the dark someone, I think Punk say, I think I hurt my elbow doing that. And when the lights come on, he's rubbing his elbow. And I, I did not notice that. No, <laughs> I go fans. If you want to go back and watch this entrance, I think punk literally like hurts his elbow swinging and like admits it to like a fan at rings. Like, I think I hurt my elbow doing that. Um, <laughs> And like you said, there was the funny part where, you know, Carino keeps tagging out and Punk keep like, there's a lot of jokes in this match made at the expense of, even though Carino seemed to be fairly good, in fairly good shape by modern Carino standards, there's a lot of jokes in this match basically being about Carino being fat or out of shape. Like, like you said, Punk keeps tagging back out as soon as he tags in and Carino just keeps acting like, God damn, I have to come back in. Like, what the hell? And you know, the part, like you said, where, um, Punk gets Carino on his shoulders and then drop, drops the knee and then Punk sells his back and it says something like, you're really fucking heavy. And, you know, the crowd just – and, you know, good on Carino, I guess, to be allowing people to poke fun of him that way. Um, there's a moment where, uh, like, 
Credo does something and he says like right to the crowd, I'm a hell of a, I'm a hell of a baby face, he says. And then later he says steamboat before he does an arm drag. I think Punk does the same thing. And then later Shelly yells steamboat, but then he just does a wrist lock, which is a funny little heel thing. Um, there was one part I also didn't get where, um, so the part you talked about, Matt, where, uh, Tracy Brooks stands on the apron and she distracts Roderick Strong and the ref and then, um, Credo throws a bunch of kicks to Shelly's back. He, after that, Credo turns to a fan and he says, I couldn't do that a year ago. And I thought, you couldn't throw a bunch of kicks to a guy's back? Like, like I, I didn't quite – maybe there's some context. Maybe the fan said something. But like Credo literally says something to a fan. He goes, I couldn't do that a year ago, right after those kicks. Maybe there was something, wrong with, quite... maybe there was something wrong with his foot a year ago. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, – so yeah, that was uh, – that that was basically it. It was fun, decent stuff, but a weird way to end the feud. And going back to uh, – let me see if I can just find uh, Phil Schneider's quote from live. He wrote, really weird way to end a feud. This was listed as the final confrontation between Generation Next and the Second City Saints, but the Gen Next team were pretty super super superfluous. I always forget how to pronounce that word. Superfluous. Superfluous. I think they spelled it wrong. Um, to the match. The focus was on CM Punk and Carino interacting with each other, and their opponents were along for the ride. Punk and Carino had a lot of amusing shtick, but their opponents were basically Pez Watley and Devin Storm on NWO Saturday Night, which is maybe the most DVD, DVD VR reference ever. Um, I, I actually agree with a lot of that. I, I do think the match, it started to become more of a wrestling match in the second half, but I do agree in the first half of the match, it did feel more like the Carino and Punk comedy show and, and Strong and, and Shelly, even though, like you said, they did show themselves to be a good unit together, were kind of along for the ride in that first half, just basically being the backdrop for a bunch of funny comedy, but it was entertaining. Um, after the match... We get a big angle. So uh, the face team leaves. Austin Aries joins Shelly and Strong in the ring. Aries grabs the mic and he says that three months ago in this very building, they both he, he and Shelly both looked into the camera and said, Samoa Joe, we're coming for your title. Aries says that night Shelly looked into Aries' eyes and told him that no matter what happens, remember where your loyalties stand. Aries says that's funny because since Shelly said that, He's been absent, taking care of more important things, which, of course, immediately gets a big fuck TNA chant. Uh, Aries says tonight he gets his shot at Samoa Joe and that Ring of Honor world title. But before he takes the top spot in the company, there's one more spot he wants, and that's Shelly's spot as the leader of Generation Next. Aries says like Shelly has done to so many competitors, he's giving him an ultimatum ultimatum he has five seconds to either step down or get beat down which is the line shelly has used in the past he hands shelly the mic and before shelly can even say half a sentence before five seconds has even elapsed aries just attacks him punches him roderick strong pulls aries off only to hit shelly with a half nelson backbreaker himself so instantly we know where he's aligned aries says shelly thinks he's got talent on loan from god well aries says i'm your personal jesus which becomes very we, – we see what the connection of that is very soon. He ends by saying tonight he ascends to the top of Ring of Honor and no one can stop him. So this was a big angle, you know, and it's pretty crazy to think that they did this big angle just two matches away from like the biggest match of Aries' life. It's kind of a big half – big, you know, 45 minutes for Austin Aries. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I, I mean I liked it. Uh, like the other big turn on the show, which is uh, the Walters one is very matter-of-fact. Aries comes in, there's not a lot of, like, he's just like, hey, you left, I'm taking over, boom, bye, 
And then, like, it's funny because it seems like the crowd almost expected Aries to turn on Shelly because it didn't get a big pop. But actually, what got the really big pop was Strong hitting the backbreaker on Shelly. That got actually a bigger pop than Aries attacking Shelly, which I thought was very interesting. Like, almost like one was expected and the other was a surprise. And it almost works to their advantage that Evans wasn't there because they get to sort of play up the uh, which side is Evans on thing. Um, which, um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it was a big, big deal, um, which I think is much more solidified by the ending of the main event. Like you said, um, the, this angle is another one of those Ring of Honor angles, which is not always the best thing, but I think sometimes like this, it's refreshing where they don't telegraph it. They don't make, I mean, they do telegraph it. They don't make it a mystery because yeah, like a few shows ago, this promo Austin Aries is referencing, you know, they literally had a thing where Aries basically kind of insinuated right then that like, I want to be the top and there's only going to be room for one of us in the top. And so it's like no surprise when they get to the show, he literally references that promo is basically like, you know, you know, you told me to be loyal and I said, you know, there's, we're going to, the, we're on a race to the top and I'm taking your spot. And the one thing that I found surprising was Shelly always was like the guy on the mic for months. Like you get a mic work on every single show. He's basically like 2004 CM Punk in terms of getting like live mic time. And on this show, he gets none to state his side, to do anything. Like he's just, he's almost like he's a prop almost for the Aries to ascend. It's interesting the uh, the Death Valley Driver guys. I forgive me. I forget which one because I didn't put this in the notes. Refer said they the- they theorized is is Gabe. They quoted. They said Bill Watson, Alex Shelley for going to TNA because and there is a thought. Like I I was a person one of these people. I was a big Alex Shelley fan, and I always wondered why he didn't get pushed hard. Hotter, especially even after this, like I thought, oh, Shelly's going to be a big baby face and get one over on Aries, and maybe he'll even be the next Ring of Honor champion after Aries, you know. But you know, he never gets a big push. Maybe at least what some people like me would think would go, match up with his talent. But I do think, looking in hindsight, knowing all the strife between TNA and Ring of Honor, maybe a big part of it and part of this angle was the idea of like Shelly has a ceiling because we can't risk pushing him too high because he's TNA. And I think there was always that when you look at the way Ring of Honor booked from the Feinstein scandal on, they always – they would push guys that were in TNA. But in terms of giving them titles or stuff like that or long-term stuff, I think they always had a certain hesitance afterwards after they lost uh, Styles and Daniels temporarily. So maybe that's part of not getting mic time even too. Maybe it's just sort of like we're only giving you so much now. The only thing that throws a monkey wrench into that theory is when they started giving Shelly the big push, she was already in TNA. Yeah, that's the one thing. So, although, again, he did just miss two months. But but, but was that – but I still – I said this on another show. Is that really because of TNA? Because like TNA ran – weren't they still running shows on like the middle of the week? I mean I know they they had their first Sunday pay-per-view during this time. But – they weren't like running every weekend and they weren't running on Saturdays as far as I know. Were they? Maybe, maybe they were, maybe I'm just, but I remember looking up cage match and not seeing shows that Shelly was on, on the days that ring of honor ran shows most of the time. Yeah. I'm not sure either. One other question about this, Matt, does this count as Austin Aries turning face? Cause generation next has been a heel group and the fans like, 
you know, they chant fuck TNA when Aries brings up that Shelly's been missing from the company, which is, you know, that kind of makes Shelly look like the asshole, not Aries. And then the foul, the fans, I think, are happy to see, like you said, especially strong attacking Shelly. So in a weird way, you know, like on the surface, it feels like this is Shelly turning face because two guys are like kicking him out of a group and not even giving him a chance to give them an answer. But in a lot of ways, it does feel like it's Aries turning face, especially with what comes later and how Aries reacts in the moment after winning the title. It does feel like he's starting to act more like a face. Yes and no, because uh, he def- they're definitely still heels for the first few months of 2005. So it, it's, it's inconsistent. Yeah, I yeah. Would I would say I'd say it's it's more back to like 2003 style, where it's just kind of like they're situationally faces or heels. Yeah, um, and that brings us to the semi-main event. Brian Danielson defeated Loki by disqualification in 20 minutes, 57 seconds, when they brawled into the crowd and Homicide and Smokes attacked Danielson. Okay. Um, Before you start, I know because I know you get the first of you, but I'm just going to say, if I was you know, a, a fan of ROH to the degree that I became at this point in 2004, because I was still up in college, but if I was back in like – going, you know, like really into it, I would have definitely driven to Philly and this would have been the reason, this match right here. Like, just on paper I'm talking about. Just because I love their first match so much and I love both guys. This match, just, this on paper, which I think is good context, yeah. would be such a draw for a fan like me. To, to, to add in some context, I would say, if someone had asked me, like maybe before Joe Punk 3, if someone had asked me, Name the three matches that – of all the guys that Ring of Honor has access to, what are the matches you that Ring of Honor could possibly book that you'd be most excited to see? My two that would be tied for first would have been Joe Punk 3 and Loki Samoa Joe. And then my match right behind – like one tier behind them would have been do Danielson Loki again. Right. Like of any match they could even conceivably make just like – yeah, they hadn't wrestled in years, like, yeah, like Danielson said. You, you want to see this match so bad, and that is why I am sorry to say this might be the most disappointing match we have ever covered on Through the Years. It is not the worst match. It is, I would say, I, I don't know. It, it's maybe two and three quarter stars, maybe three if you're being generous. But Yeah, with, in, some ways, in some ways it's like a good match by normal standards, but... <laughs> yeah, I would say the gulf between what... My expectations were and what was delivered. This is the most in the history of the podcast because with these guys, you expect their, their, their ceiling is five stars, best match of the year. You expect their floor might be four stars, great. And you, you don't get that. Um, what you get is you get an opening third of the match that was very by the book. It's a lot of basic early stage of match offense sequences. You've seen these guys having lots of matches before, but done well, but just kind of low key, no pun intended stuff. Um, it, it feels like maybe the first 10 minutes of a slow building, like 40 minute classic. But then what happens is after those first eight, nine, I don't know how many minutes it turns into low key, just zeros in on uh, Danielson's arm, which is playing up the story of Danielson's arm got hurt by homicide in the last show. And, you know, again, they're playing up the, they're building a lot on this show to this tap out match on the next show. And so, you know, the arm work is fine. It, it, Danielson does a great job selling. They're, my favorite point in the match, actually, is at one point, Danielson is just lying, like, on his back with his head propped up on the bottom turnbuckle. And, you know, 
Key's been hitting him. And Danielson starts pulling himself. He acts like he's knocked out, but then he grabs the ropes with one arm and he starts pulling himself up. And he, he eventually stands up and he just like starts looking around and he gets this creepy smile on his face. It's almost like for modern wrestling fans, like when Kota Abushi occasionally in New Japan has moments in huge matches where he gets really beaten up bad and he just almost like goes crazy where he just kind of starts no selling almost and looks to the crowd with a smile. Danielson does this in 2004 and I forgot he did this thing that got a big pop out of me. And that makes it, it's a great comeback there. But then, you know, there's a few big moves. Danielson starts, does the superplex. He does a, uh, airplane spin and roll and, and um, tumbles out of the ring and then they fought, brawl in the crowd for a minute too including there's a crowd spot which i think matt you point out to me i'll let you describe this on your turn um you know danielson does an airplane spin in the crowd they keep brawling and then um homicide and smokes come out and they attack danielson the dq blah 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 uh, and so the problem for me was i felt like the first 10 minutes were building to something and then the build became some limb work and then just as the match is starting to kick into a higher gear it um uh, it, it uh doesn't it just goes to the, this weird brawl finish and i kept trying to think that's the way i feel but i didn't know I, I didn't feel like I was putting it in an elegant way. And then when I read the Death Alley Driver video review afterwards, sometimes you read something and someone puts exactly what you want to say in a way more elegant, thoughtful way. And so I thought this was the best part of their entire review of this show, this live event. This is Tom K. He was there with Phil Schneider. I've been mostly quoting Schneider, but this is his quote. I think, Matt, before I hand it to you, this will be my final word for now. This is how this is his quote on it, and I think it sums up my thoughts in some ways. He writes, this was a match with a schmoz finish. The secret to a schmoz finish, finish is try saying that three times fast, is to promise the perfect finish and then deny it to the fans. That means the entire match needs to build toward that, only to have it taken away. This match wasn't building towards anything, and so instead of the schmoz denying the fans a finish, it really felt like it denied the fans a match. A schmosh that steals the finish makes you from you leaves the audience wanting to see a cage match or a no DQ match. A schmosh that steals the the whole match just leaves the crowd feeling cheated. And Matt, honestly, that is kind of the way I felt about this match. I felt like instead of getting denied a finish, it kind of felt like I was expecting one match and they didn't really deliver the match at all. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I um, no, I mean, it does seem like they. They didn't know what they were going for here. Like, um, they, like, I don't know if you mentioned it and I just missed it, but like, one of the big spots of the match was the beginning because Loki comes out and he's wearing his gangsta pants and he takes them off and he's just wearing plain black trunks just like Danielson. And Punk is like, Loki's wearing his underwear. And it did look like he was just stripping down into his underwear. It was weird. Like, yeah, did- I know it was supposed to be the idea of like, and I didn't mention that, so great bringing it up. But so I guess like kind of like the mirror match, like they both have the same gear, you know, red trunks, you know, I mean, black trunks, black kick pads. But yeah, especially with Punk's teasing, it was more like Loki's wearing his underwear. Yeah. It was just, it was just so, it just set a weird tone, I would say. Um, but even Punk says that Key and Danielson made him a fan of ROH. Like, I'm sure a lot of people fall into that boat. And it's like the be- the beginning of their match in 2002 was like this interesting like MMA pro wrestling hybrid thing. 
And at the beginning of this, like you said, it's just really slow feeling each other out wrestling, which is, you know, not necessarily bad. Like, they're great. They're both great wrestlers and they do it well. So, like, it could be building to something. But, you know, Loki throws in some of his heel stuff. Like, at one time, Danielson gets a face lock on Loki and Loki bites Danielson's thumb to get out of the hold. You know, you wouldn't have seen that in 2002. Yeah. But just in case you weren't sure they were going slow, at a couple points, Loki puts on a nerve hold, which is always the uh, the indication like that this match is basic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, like yeah, then like you said, they they start doing the arm stuff. Um, Danielson does like an interesting sell because Loki puts uh, his arm in a hammerlock position, and Danielson like can't get out of the position. So Punk is saying like his shoulder is dislocated. Like, that kind of stuff is clever and fun, and I think it does elevate the match to a little bit better than, um, you know, than it could have been. Like, I think it, it, like, in some ways, this is a good match. Like, there's good things about it. It's there more, are moments. Yeah. But they're just that. They're moments. Right. It's, it, but also, it's more like in relative, relative to expectations and, and like potential, you know? Yeah. And, and like, to what, to like build, it's like, it, like you said, it feels like they're building to something that never gets there. Like, that's the problem. It's like all of this stuff that they did in the early part of the match could have been part of a great match. You know, they could have had the exact same first 15 minutes and the match could have been great, but it would have required at least another 15, 20 minutes of really good stuff to make it a part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like there's actually points here where I hear the beginnings of boring chants. And like, could you imagine ROH in 2004 boring chants for Brian Danielson against Loki? Like that's insane, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a, like I I knew remembered watching this that the reputation even my reaction watching this years later was it was disappointing and I was still disappointed rewatching it knowing I was probably going to be disappointed. <laughs> um, well, like like but like as far as like the fun stuff, like there is a point where Key is kicking Dragon's arm and Dragon like actually hulks up like Hulk Hogan style and yells, "That's all you got!" and it's like no selling and like yeah. Loki's actually backing off like a heel against Hulk Hogan and going for a handshake, but then kicking, but Dragon <laughs> catches the leg and knees his thigh, does some leg twists. Could have been a more effective Hulk up, but I thought it was entertaining. Um, and like I also enjoyed the surfboard where he stretches Loki's head all the way back into his crotch, and Punk says that he's teabagging Loki. Um, but I think like you know I named all the good stuff like. You know, after that, like you said, they do the airplane spin to the, and they, you know, they, uh, they fall out, they fall outside. Um, and, you know, they're fighting in the, in the crowd. So, like you mentioned, Danielson is doing an airplane spin in the crowd, but he's like walking around as he does the spin. And there's a guy who's watching, and this guy is backing up, backing up, backing up, and he falls over the leg of the lighting rig. And like, it's very noticeable, and I feel very bad for him. And like I almost want to post the the gift, but I kind of don't because I don't want to embarrass the guy. Um, but it's but it's 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 very noticeable. Um, I'm glad it's not me. Funny, like I, I also loved for those like you won't know this. Matt was so excited, like Matt was watching the show before I was, and he was like, "How do you like cut a clip from a from a video file?" And I like told him, and this was the clip he cut me. Like I love the, just just capturing your imagination, and it is it is like you feel bad for the guy, but laugh at the same time, and it's especially funny in the context of the match because it's right near the end where things are supposed to be breaking down and getting wild, and then there's just this poor fan that trips over a lighting rig, like. <laughs> Oh, yeah, poor guy. It's it's like it's you know it's a blooper. It's like one yeah. for the blooper reel. But 
it's also like one of the most memorable parts of the match to me. <laughs> you know, like it's, it was. It was. Yeah. Like, oh my god. <laughs> like you're right. But like, yeah. So this, like, the way the brawl goes at this point is Jay Lethal comes out, attacks Homicide, and um, and then the students come out and they get beaten up by Julius Smokes. And Lethal and Homicide continue to brawl. So Lethal and Homicide is like they weren't really feuding at this point. Like this is sort of like their first big interaction, right? Um, yeah. So Lethal and mm-hmm. Homicide continue to brawl. I guess lo- I guess Lethal is there because of low key. Yeah, that low match key. They had maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't really make that connection. But Loki, like, the thing is, Lethal and Homicide are brawling, and Gabe calls it a riot. And I'm like, Gabe, you like that word way too much because that is not what a riot is. It's two guys fighting. Um, Meanwhile, Danielson is just, like, helped to the back. Like, it's almost like like what they used to call a sports entertainment finish. Like, they don't actually have a finish. They actually announce the the result of the match on commentary during the next match. Yeah. Um, that's how, that's how they do this. But, um, you know, that's when, uh, Loki gets back in the ring and the cameraman, we actually follow the cameraman as he climbs over chairs to get back to the ring. And I guess you can say what happens next, but yeah, the match, um, yeah, the, I, I think maybe I liked it a little more than you, but like still like, yeah, like I the most disappointing match. I would say it's, it's up there. And, and just to be clear, like, to give some context, this is not a match where like we're disappointed, but people love that at the time. This is pretty much universally considered like a surprisingly disappointing match. Like like Matt said, there was occasionally a, the beginnings of boring chess that got quickly shot down by other fans, but the crowd was quiet for a bunch of this and not a great way. Even though you could tell they were really excited at first, and then that that slowly got drained out of them, and they would perk up occasionally for something. Um, like the DVD VR guy, like, you know, that's always an acronym for me to say, but like, um, you know, they were huge Danielson fans at this time and key fans and they were disappointed. And, um, the live reports from the match said that was disappointing. And in fact, we'll go to Dave Meltzer's thoughts weeks later when he got the tape of final battle, he wrote Danielson and low key wasn't good at all. It isn't as if their talent and athletic ability wasn't obvious, but what they were doing for the most part wasn't clicking. Even with some cool spots thrown in, they lost the crowd about nine, minutes in they lost me about three minutes later they kind of got back people back because danielson did his tapatia aka rito romero special slash dragon sleeper combination move which is so cool looking it should be a finish and i will say like you mentioned that too that is right like that is it is like he stretches low key so severely and it looks so cool that is a moment where the crowd was starting they were starting to lose the crowd and for for a time like that does get the crowd back into it but the problem is they kind of don't take that anywhere right well that's kind of like the end of the match part of the match because then they go outside yeah yeah so and it goes back to what you said which is they had another 15 minutes going in that direction this could have been a great match yeah but we don't get that so um uh yeah that that is most of the notes for that so going to what happened after the match like I said, this match ends in a DQ with the homicide and smokes interference. Jay Lethal comes with some stu- ROH students and others brawl with the Rottweilers. As Gabe says, like Matt said, it's another riot, which at this point, Matt, uh, G- I mean, Gabe must think that every fight that is not in a ring that is more than three people is a riot. Uh, Danielson's help to the back. As Gabe says, this must have been the Rottweilers' plan all along, which 
Seems like a weird plan. Uh, the Rottweilers return to the ring and Key argues with the ref. Key grabs a mic and screams at the ref that he had no business ending the match. Danielson couldn't continue. Key keeps screaming over and over that he should be declared the winner as he throttles ref Hansen before he eventually punches him in the face. Gabe screams that Key has crossed the line and broken the code of honor. Key starts to strangle ref Hansen with a belt. and Gabe Justin, Dan, Dan, uh, Brian, uh, Daniel Bryan, Justin Roberts style. I was going to say, like, Daniel Bryan, what a weird twist. Gabe screams someone has to help him or that Ref Hansen is going to die. And in a funny little bit of timing, the second Gabe says that on commentary, Key releases the hold on his own volition. <laughs> and uh, that's that. So one note that was did not make – I don't think, Matt, unless I missed it, that did not make tape. This comes from Dwayne K from a live report he sent in to PW Insider. He wrote, Homicide then stole Danielson's cloak, which Danielson wears to the ring. Homicide wore it to the back, mocking Danielson. Um, Damn. I wish I had seen that. So, yeah. So I don't think that part made tape. Um, no, it didn't. And, and Matt, this is also a funny point. So Dwayne K wrote his live report. The non-finish was possibly due to Low Key and Danielson working for rival promotions in Japan. For those who don't know, at this time, Key was working for Noah and Danielson was still working for New Japan. And then Mike Johnson wrote this as a note on this guy's live report. He wrote, note from Mike Johnson, I believe it was done to bring the crowd down prior to the Ring of Honor title match. Matt, do you really think they intentionally fucked this, like, had a boring match to bring the crowd down? I, I... I really doubt that for some reason. I guess it's not it, impossible. It doesn't seem like Ring of Honor's MO to bring the crowd down with a with a disappointing match before like that's not usually their philosophy. Their philosophy is generally like everybody tries to have a great match. And by the way, if you want to bring the crowd down, they could have there was other matches they could have put in the semi main event to bring the crowd down. Right, not, not yeah, right, not do this match here. Right. Yeah, that that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't hold water for me at all yeah that, that, yeah it just doesn't make sense even though i get that it's it is crazy that these guys had a disappointing match um sometimes it, yeah, sometimes I, I, it happens yeah even the best people in the world that's something you know you know it, script occasionally through the years sometimes i stumble over my words even though really i'm the best okay, in the world i, I yeah. can't pretend to be confident the so, best um, the best podcaster in the world trevor dane <laughs> oh god god damn you uh, so uh, I guess one thing we should mention about this too, Matt, is uh, I'll just read from the Pro Wrestling Torch. Ring of Honor posted a storyline declaration regarding Low Key last week. Quote, Ring of Honor officials are going to make an example out of Low Key for striking referee Sean Hansen on December 26th at Final Battle 2004. Breaking the code of honor like this will not be tolerated. Do not expect Key back in Ring of Honor anytime soon, if ever. And in fact, I believe, you know, Low Key does not wrestle in Ring of Honor again till Manhattan Mayhem, which is like halfway through next year. Yep. And so, uh, man, how many times are they like, Loki is, he's crossed the line. He's not coming back. Um, eventually, eventually it's permanent, but it takes a long time. He really is their Sabu. I mean, people made that comparison before, but like he's on the outs, but he's back, you know, and he's like one of the guys that built the company, but obviously he doesn't get along with the guy who runs it. And, but, but, but Sabu is like, they, they, like that, he's only gone really one short period. Yeah. Loki is like gone most of the time. Although, to be fair, on the other end, Gabe Sapolsky never did a promo in the ring where he said, fuck Loki. <laughs> no, 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 just no, just on commentary constantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just on commentary. You got to live out his dreams there. Um, so we cut to a clip of AJ Styles wrestling Paul London from 2003 out of, I believe, Night of the Grudges. 
Um, Gabe in a voiceover tells us there's breaking news as AJ Styles has demanded to get to wrestle Jimmy Rave in a match in Ring of Honor. And Gabe tells us TNA has given him permission. Gabe says AJ Styles will return to Ring of Honor, possibly for this one night only. So, yeah, AJ Styles is coming back. And uh, it will not be one night only. But initially, I guess there was some thought maybe it could be. But... We're getting that, and they, 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 I like the way they sell it here. It's like breaking news that, oh my god, AJ Styles coming back. And that brings us finally, Matt, to, I almost feel like, not really emotional, but like a strangely a tiny bit, um, the Ring of Honor world title match. Austin Aries defeated Samoa Joe via pinfall in 1734 after hitting the 450 splash. Matt, like, we've been covering a world where where Samojo was the world champion for so long. So much has happened in the real world. And we're finally at the end of it in our rewatch. Like this is it. it, it it's over, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've been just like covering this show, but really like it's building to this, which is one of the very biggest moments in the history of the company. Um, I, um, I don't know if you want to say before now. Yeah. Let's do this before we talk about the match. So, what were you thinking when you heard this match was signed? I mean, I know you, t- you sort of talked about what you were expecting with Punk versus Joe. What were you expecting with Aries versus Joe? I did not think that Aries was going to win because I still thought that – here's the thing. I still thought they were going to do low-key versus Joe while Joe was champion. I didn't know what was going to happen there, but I thought – because they were still – you have to remember, they were teasing that occasionally. Like even on – um, after the last show, at the end of the last show, after Joe beats Punk in the third match of their trilogy, and he's on the mic, he he says something to the effect of, you know, I don't care who's next, like Nigel McGuinness, John Walters, and then he says, low key, your time will come too. Like it still felt like that was coming. So I felt like there's no way Joe loses the title until he has a match with Key. Whether or not he loses to Key, I didn't know. And so the fact that all of a sudden, right after the Punk feud, he loses it. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, and like, I, I guess like Jeff Schwartz on an honorable mention sort of made it sound like a lot of people knew that Aries was winning. I wasn't following ROH closely enough just yet. So like when I heard the news, I was surprised. Like, I, I did not see this coming at all. I, I really hadn't, wasn't too familiar with Austin Aries at this point. Um, it's crazy because Austin Aries was, you know, if you talk, if you were looking in December of 2003 and you were like, who's the next big guy, Austin Aries, I think a lot of people, who were like independent wrestling fans in the country didn't know Austin Aries, right? Um, you know, it almost felt yeah. like he came out of nowhere. And I know he didn't. Like he was obviously in, um, you know, other, you know, like other major promotions, you know, Super, Super 8. 8. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Super 8 in 04, right? Not in 03, right? Um, yeah. So well, like well, – these- He's not really in the company until – you know, a few months into the year with Generation Next, that show, you know, well, he had like a, a, a do or die match or something. Well, so, so like, yeah, so Roderick Strong, he had a tryout match on the, like a, on a pre-show in September of 2003. Aries' first appearance, even on like a dark match in, in ROH was March of 2004. His main show debut was April of 2004. By, um, by December, he is the world champion beating the greatest world champion in ROH history um, in a major moment. It's a really meteoric rise. And, um, you know, you know, whatever people say about Austin Aries as a person, you know, he should wear his masks, but um, he's was really freaking talented. And, um, you know, he really did make a great name for himself. And I, um, you know, I, I, um, 
I, I think it's a remarkable story. Um, it's a remarkable story that it worked as well as it did also. I guess we could save this. I'll get to the match. Um, if that's yeah, okay. we, we could talk about Joe's legacy and, and some of the other, and I got some notes on that, but yeah, m- m- might as well maybe it'd be cleaner if we, we should, we, I mean, you were about to do it anyway, but yeah, we, let's review the match first, I guess. All right. So, um, you want me to go first, right? Yeah. I, I saved it for you. Thank you. <laughs> so, okay. So first of all, it is, it's a great match. Like it really is. I, I, I don't think that it is top five of the year. Um, since we're going to talk about that later, but it's a great match um, because it's different. Like, you know, Joe had been building into these longer and longer matches, and this is a lot more like his previous style of match in that it is explosive, and it's, what, like, would you say 16 minutes, 17 minutes, something I, like I that? I think it's 17-something. Uh, it's yeah, which is on the longer end of Joe's matches, like the, if you took 2003-style Joe, but it's very short compared to his recent great matches, you know? Um, yeah. the, the punk matches, the Danielson match was in the forties. Right. Um, so, so Joe, so first of all, Aries comes out to personal Jesus cover by Marilyn Manson, obviously the original by Depeche mode. Um, yeah. so like that's his new entrance and like he has lighting as part of it. Like he feels like a big star now. So like that clearly is, I don't know if that would indicate to the crowd something big was happening, but it showed that they were, you know, definitely changing their presentation of Aries. And, what I like about this match is it, that in some ways, it's like a traditional Joe match in that he dominates for a lot of it. But what's different is that Aries, what, what, what allows Aries to overcome Joe's dominance is, is his resilience and his explosiveness. Like he would just come back with these like big, hard hitting, like sudden moves. Um, so, um, you know, so Aries. Jumps Joe with the bell. Joe cuts him off pretty quickly, but Aries is able to escape, and they get back to a stalemate. Um, you know, Joe blocks headlock takeovers from Aries, which is, I think, a fun spot because you know Joe got caught by the headlocks with Punk, so Punk gets to say that Joe, you know, he scouted it, and so so like when Aries tries to take him over, Joe actually just like blocks it, like he doesn't reverse it, he just blocks it, like no, you can't take me over, and then he does a bunch of headlocks of his own. Um, they do a wacky crisscross spot, which Aries ends by drop by which uh, by drop kicking Joe in the knee, and then going to work over the knee with the dragon screw leg whip. Um, Gabe mentions that Aries was training in the past week at the New Japan Dojo, and Punk says that's basically like being in Japan. They got a rice cooker there, which I which I enjoyed. Um, Matt, I basically live in Japan. Then yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what do you mean basically? You only basically have a rice cooker. Um, <laughs> um, it's on layaway. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, uh, like, Aries goes for his shin breaker suplex combo. Joe blocks that suplex and cuts Aries off with an enziguri. Then he just does a bunch of, like, slaps and kicks to Aries' abdomen. Um, meanwhile, during this, Gabe announces that Danielson was ruled the winner of the last match by disqualification, which is, I don't know, that's just a weird way they, of approaching that, but okay. Um, so now Joe starts to really dominate. He beats Aries up in the corner, and the crowd is actually kind of quiet during this part where Joe is dominating Aries. Like he's like almost toying with him. Um, Aries tries to come back with strikes, you know, go for a brain buster. Joe blocks it. Um, but Joe does go for his tope. But Aries, what he does is as Joe is going, Aries runs into the ring and goes for his own tope. But Joe cuts that off with a kick and Aries is like dangling over the top rope. And I like that spot because, you know, Aries, like he's, he's getting these advantages by being fast. But this time Joe just, he sees it coming. 
Joe does the ole ole kick. Then he throws all of the timekeepers, tables, chairs out of the way to do a second one. Um, and at this point in the match, you would say like Joe's title doesn't feel in jeopardy at all. Aries is just being clobbered. So Joe actually goes for a third ole ole kick, but this time Aries moves. Uh, and he, and he, uh, and Joe's leg goes over the guardrail and Aries punches and elbows away at them. And he does an ole ole drop kick. And then he jumps into the ring into a corner elbow, but Joe gr- just suddenly grabs the choke. But Aries just rolls out of it. And Gabe is like, not a lot of people escape that. And that's sort of like when you start to see like, oh, Aries is very resilient and like sudden. Joe goes, Joe gets Aries up for a power bomb, but Aries snaps it into a hard hitting Rana for two. Aries does a series of drop kicks to Joe's face in the corner. He goes for a third. Joe catches him and hits an island driver for two. And that was a great spot because the crowd really bought that might be a finish. The kickout got a really big pop. So the crowd was quiet for a bit, but now they're like getting more and more into it. They get this dueling chance. And I think because of all of Aries's like reversals and just like how explosive they are, I think you guys, you start to see the crowd sort of like sensing something. Um, Aries fights out of a muscle buster. He, uh, he gets a ton of punches to try to knock Joe off the ropes as they fight on top. And he does knock Joe off and he hits the 450, but Joe kicks out. So at this point, it's like they both kicked out of big moves. Joe blocks the brain buster, sends Aries to the outside and goes for the tope again. But Aries jumps up on the ropes, hits a big sunset flip for a great near fall and then turns it into a Boston crab for another great pop. And he, he blocks the lariat, grabs the fish hook stretch, breaks it on the referee's count. Then Joe blocks the brain buster for a second time and he puts him on the top rope and just slaps the crap out of him and hits a big kick to the head. Everyone's standing. Joe goes for another another muscle buster, but Aries escapes and turns it into a crucifix bomb. Um, and like, okay, so you ever play a video game where? Um, yes, Matt, I have played. <laughs> no, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but like, I'm go. You'll see what I'm going for here. Yeah, like yeah. you, like so you're fighting this boss, this final boss, and like you can never beat this final boss. And, like, you keep plugging away at it, plugging away at it. And then, like, maybe after trying for, like, 15 times, maybe it's, like, five days later, and you realize, like, you're starting to beat the boss. And, like, you realize, like, the boss is, like, shook and he's reacting differently and maybe he's, like, flashing different colors. And you're like, oh, man, like, I'm actually, like, I think I'm going to beat him this time. Do you ever have that happen? Yeah, almost like you get to a new place in the game. Like, I've never been this far before. Yeah, and that's the way Joe is selling here. Like, when, um, when Ares kicks him to the head... Like he's like, wow, I don't remember Joe selling like this. And then when Aries hits the crucifix bomb, like Joe's like, whoa, like wobbly. And then Aries just comes back with these like running strikes, and Joe sells it like he's the final boss in a game, like about to be taken down. Like he's just like, like you know, like you could just like hear the sound effects, like as he's like rocking into the turnbuckle. And Aries hits a low kick, then a kick to the head, then the brain buster. Then the crowd's just going insane because Aries runs up, hits the 450, three count, one of the biggest pops in ROH history. Roderick Strong is jumping up and down, huge Aries chant. No one seems disappointed at all that this happened. Everyone's going crazy. Um, I just like the way they just like built and built and built to that moment to where it's like, is this is like, it's like, it wasn't, it was like a shock, but it was like they, got you ready for it. It's like they, the way they sell, they sold uh, the moves, the way they reacted to things, the way Joe was like moving. It's like, you could just tell this was coming and you were like, you doubted it, 
but also it's like they made it clear at the same time and i thought it was the perfect combination and really like the like it's not like this was like the most intricately laid out match in history it's not like joe vs punk 3 where like everything had all this thought it was just like there was just a very simple story but it wasn't the story they ever told before which is aries is just he just has these combinations and this resilience and this explosiveness and he's just able to put it all together and just take down Joe in a way that nobody else had. And of course, you also have the other element of Joe just finished uh, the hardest three matches that he's ever had with a, with somebody. He's had one at one difficult title defense after another. It's the end of the year. He's worn down. He's ripe for Aries's combination of skills, and Aries is able to catch him and beat him. And it's an incredible moment. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a fantastic match. And that's a really great review. And now I'm going to have to try and do something, say something good about it that fits your level of stuff there. Um, I'm getting tongue tied, but maybe just because I keep imagining now since your video game analogy, which was very good, by the way. Now I keep thinking of like what video game boss would Joe be like King Hippo in uh, Mike Tyson's punch out? Maybe is, I, I, I'm that, actually thinking more like Mike Tyson in Mike Tyson's punch out. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And your persona. Absolutely. So. Yeah, I have pretty similar feelings to you. I I think this is a great match. Um, but like a great in the sense of like it's four four and a quarter stars somewhere. There. It's like a low great, but like the emotion of it. I, I guess this is the way I would put it. Um, this won't just like you said not to tip away too much, but this will not make my best five matches of the year. If we had an award for best five minute stretch of the year or best one minute stretch of the year. The final five or final one minutes of this match would be in contention and could possibly even win. Like the final five minutes is just amazing where I think it's right after um, uh, Aries Rana's Joe where Joe has him up for the powerbomb and Aries Rana's him. But unlike just a lot of Rana's where you flip the guy and they kind of fly away from you like – Aries ends up sitting on top of Joe and Joe still has his arms locked around Aries legs. Um, like he's trying to power bomb, even though he's in a pinning predicament and the crowd pops huge for that. And it's like at that moment, I feel like it's when the crowd starts to feel like for some reason, that spot is just so cool. You can feel this energy building with every moment after that, all the way to the finish where the crowd's like, this could happen. Like, I, and I know you said Jeff Schwartz said that, um, a lot of people knew. I'm sure some people, maybe some people knew, but it really did feel like in like watching this match back again, it felt like those final five minutes, it's like more and more people in that crowd are starting to realize like they weren't coming in. Like they were excited to see the match, but all of a sudden it's like every, especially that last minute, that, that last minute is one of my favorite minutes in Ring of Honor history where Air, like you described all the moves where Aries is just hitting every big bomb and Joe is selling them incredibly. And it's like with every move, you can feel the electricity in the crowd. It, like it's just getting bigger and bigger. And every move of the crowd, you can just you can almost hear, hear their thoughts and thinking, "Holy shit, this is going to happen! This is going to happen!" And then when it does, like it, it's not one of those. It's funny because for people like you and me, we were really surprised that Aries won. But when the way this match has worked, like I, didn't you say just say it was like they're almost like preparing the crowd? Yeah, for Aries to win. Yeah, because when when Aries wins, it's not a pop like, like, it's not the Undertaker Brock Lesnar WrestleMania pop where it's like stunned silence and then, oh my god, what did we just see? It's like, they're ready for it. You know, 
you're exactly right about that. Like they have gotten them right to the point where they're expecting it in that second and then they get it and they lose their fucking minds. It's one of the biggest pops in Ring of Honor history. This is Matt. It's a just incredible level of Ring of Honor. Pop. Yeah, the first, the, probably the first pop since Just Incredible's debut that could compare. And for those who have not listened to old shows, we are not being sarcastic. The, the, up to this point, Just Incredible's surprise debut in Ring of Honor might have been the biggest pop. But this is – I'm, t- I'm t- I, told, I told Trevor he's got to repost that to Twitter because yeah, people I'm, will not believe us. I'm going to dig up the, the, the file and cut it up again and do it. I, I will do that. But um, – so the the one thing I would say that hurts the quality of this match a bit is – and this is, again, something you really talked about, which was um, the first 10 minutes, it's not bad by any means, but it does feel like just another day in the office for Joe. Like he's really dominating and it doesn't feel like a special match. It feels like like a middle-of-the-road chode title defense. He doesn't feel like he's being very – really challenged much. And the way I almost felt like this match – what this match felt like, it was, it was a match where it was like – 10 minutes of a beginning, five minutes of like the hottest end you could imagine, and then like two minutes of a middle maybe. Like the sequence where they're on the outside and Joe does the Olay kicks and then Aries counters with the uh, Olay drop kick of his own. That felt like maybe a kind of a transition point, but really it felt like mostly like one kind of match where it's like, oh, this is just kind of not the special thing I remember, and then a very short sequence, and then the final five minutes, you're like, oh, this is exactly what I remembered. Like, this is why I remember this match being great and being so exciting. And um, what the other thing I really like, a couple of things I want to mention. Um, first off, you you already described a lot of it, like Joe selling as the final boss. But I think Joe, in, like overall in this match, he really and how he bumps makes Ares look like a million bucks. Like he takes that crucifix bomb or drive or whatever you call it, like amazingly well. His kind of out on his feet stumble cells that he's only done, I, I think, once or twice for Punk before this. Um, like everything, the way he sells Ares offense and even like that kick at the end that Ares does, it's like right in Joe's face. Like, holy shit, it, 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 I would be almost mad if I was Joe on that, but he just takes it. And um, and the other thing I think why I like this match, why this match is great is it's kind of like the punk matches. You need the context, but when, in, a, in modern wrestling, a lot of times when people talk about like, oh, these guys don't know how to tell a story or these guys tell a story, a lot of times in matches I'll hear people say, oh, that match had a story. The story was these two guys were each trying to win and hitting – like throwing all their moves they could at the other guy. And I always feel like that's not a story. Like you're, you're kind of covering – that's like the story of every match, especially these days. But I feel like in this match, that's what it kind of was, at least from the Aries end. But it worked because – it's actually different in this reign because if you think about Joe's title reign, most of the times Joe has ever lost a match during his title reign, it's always about someone working it differently or finding some special weakness. So like you think about Joe lost in that six man tag where it was the group versus the prophecy and it was Dan Moff and it got him because of like a roll up. And then Colt Cabana won survival of the fittest because of roll-up. And we established, oh, that's a weakness of Joe. And Homicide did beat Joe in a non-title match, but he had, it was a no-DQ no match, and he had to use a noose to, cho- noose to choke him out. And, you know, Joe even said afterwards, like, you could only beat me no-DQ. And then Punk doesn't beat Joe, but he gets two draws. But it's because, you know, he um does headlocks. And in this match, in that final minute, it is literally like Aries – he does very briefly in this match early on 
try and work on Joe's leg. And they even bring up, oh, Brian Danielson worked on the leg against Joe in their match and it didn't work. And Joe doesn't even sell the leg. Like it's not even like he's selling it for a while and then ignoring it. It's like he immediately just gets up and like lets you know, like, no, you didn't hurt my leg that much. Like, fuck you. And but then at the end of the match, those final five minutes, it's all about Aries is just he's not trying any special strategy. He is just the young gunslinger who is going to throw everything he has at this guy. And unlike everyone else, everything he has is enough. Like he hits him with every big movie has in that final minute, like all his coolest stuff, all his biggest stuff. And in a lot of other wrestling companies and a lot of other matches, you would just say, Oh, that's like every match. He does all this stuff and he wins. But for some reason it felt special to me because it was like the first, not only does Joe lose, you kind of thought the way Joe's title reign went, that he was going to lose from some special weakness. And instead it was just like, no, the young hot prospect just, he's better. He just, his, his moves are better when he hits all his bombs. Joe can't take it. And do, like, do you agree kind of with that vibe? Am I, or are you being crazy there? Like it's just selling that end like that. No, I mean, I mostly agree. I, I do think there is something to like Aries also had like a special kind of resilience and explosiveness that he was able to just like, bounce back and hit this, these really high impact moves, you know, without like being too beaten up by Joe's hard, hard hitting offense. Like, I think that was another element as part of it, but I mostly think that what you said was totally correct. No, And I agree about that too, because the other thing I should mention is you keep talking about Austin Aries resilience, which by the way, he should start a group with that name, but um, <laughs> no, um, Aries, uh, I, 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 t- I said this in the low-key match on the last show, and it really comes through here, too. Aries has a special quality where I think it's both the nature of his offense and how mo- much momentum and how he executes it. And also, just that he usually in his matches, he makes these little comebacks every every once in a while so he doesn't get dominated for too long. Where I feel like a lot of other wrestlers wrestling Joe in those first 10 minutes, they would have come off like they're eight levels below Joe. And I feel like Aries has this ability to really take a beating, but you never feel like he's out of the fight or like he's completely like a level below. Like he doesn't really feel like the underdog, even though I guess in this match, everyone that faces Joe is the underdog. Like you like when, whenever like you you see him taking these huge beatings, you go, holy shit, he's getting the crap beat out of him. But every time he makes a comeback, you instantly are like, oh, but Aries could still win this. Like it's not like a, a super duper Mikey Whipwreck type underdog thing, even though I would say this is like the biggest Aries has I've so has sold so far in ring of honor like you said where he's um dangling in the ropes like he's knocked unconscious and there's a couple other moments where he is just selling like huge for joe like both these guys are selling really big for the other but yet you never really feel like he's like he has no chance there's never a moment at least to me and i think that's another thing a special thing aries has like you, you call it the resilience like th- that i think really makes this match something extra and yeah it's just a great match, not one of the best matches of the year, but one of the most memorable matches of the year and still a great match. Um, Matt, we should probably talk about the legacy. Of, I think two things, the legacy of Joe's title ring and also um, basically I, I think we talked about before we were going to have a little talk about who else Joe could have lost to. But first, there's a bunch of notes about this match that I'm just going to try and get to quickly. Um, so... The Observer wrote, they actually, this was one of the rare story times uh, up to this point in Ring of Honor history where the, where uh, a new story in Ring of Honor got like 
a, a first few page article on its own. So Dave wrote the 21 month reign of Samoa Joe as Ring of Honor heavyweight champion ended surprisingly. So Dave didn't know, I guess, on um, December 26th in Philadelphia when Austin Aries gave him a brain buster and finished him off with a 450 splash at the 7, 1734 mark. Joe was the longest reigning major champion in U.S. wrestling. And aside from rarely defended titles in Mexico, which really don't mean a lot nowadays, had the longest major reign in the industry aside from Kenta Kabashi as GHC champion, who is still champion, winning it from Mitsuhara Masao on March 1st, 2003. Joe won the title from Xavier on March 22nd, 2003 in Philadelphia. At the time, the belt meant nothing. Gabe Sapolsky's idea was his biggest name wrestlers, in particular Low-Key, AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, Raven, and Brian Danielson, were already over and didn't need the belt. The idea was the belt would make a mid-carter into a star, but instead it just meant few took the title seriously. And it was no big deal when Joe won the title. Joe, on the other hand, given a tough guy aura portrayal, kind of a weird choice of words there from Dave, and and was a successful attempt, I don't, Dave's phrasing there bad, at attempting to put the all-time drama of the title match being for the title of truly the best gunslinger, as opposed to a prop to elevate someone. Th- that sentence was just horrible by Dave, but anyway. Um, <laughs> he has his moments. <laughs> yes. Uh, though his having many great matches capped off by the three-match series with CM Punk, or through having those great matches, he put the belt on the map to the point that New Japan was willing to pay heavily to get it for Hiroshi Tanahashi. There was no hints of a title change, which made people think when it was over that it was a late decision because Joe would be leaving. In actuality, Booker Gabe Sapolsky decided, for a number of reasons, this was the perfect time for a title change. For one, Joe established himself with the lengthy reign. Suppose he felt it was the best to take the title when the rain had peaked, and he felt that after the win over Danielson and the three-match series with Punk, that the rain wasn't going to get any better. As Joe had beaten every contender, people thought he had a, ch- had a chance to beat him, except low-key, and he could only book a draw finish between the two because low-key wouldn't agree to a clean job because of Japan. He felt by doing it now, Joe would be regarded in the future as having a legendary reign rather than risk him having a reign that dragged at the end. He felt Joe established the title enough to where Ares, by winning, becomes a bigger star. In addition, Mick Foley has agreed to work all the Northeastern shows for the next few months, and with his antagonist, Ricky Steamboat, finishing up on December 26th, they move to a Joe versus Foley feud. What was is questionable if they will ever get a match... Well, I'll repeat, while it is questionable if they will ever get a match, Foley has agreed to do some physical confrontations, and it puts Joe in with the highest profile star he's ever worked with. The match, described as a four and a quarter star bout, saw Aries get a lot of near falls, which got the crowd behind him, and the finishing pop was a huge two minute standing ovation. So Matt, I'll guess, I'll say first, do you have any thoughts about that? So, I do think, like, going to what I was saying before, I think the torch does kind of hint at that there could be a match between Foley and, um, Joe, but with Dave, Dave goes to stress that it's questionable, you know, just that Foley is willing to take bumps. I mean, as far as the uh, the Foley thing, it's just like, I don't know what to think. Like, they they're, they build up matches with Steamboat that they can't have. They build up matches with Foley that they can't have. I don't like that, if that's true. You know, like, I, I, I just, that just, it just doesn't feel right to me. But, you know, it's... That's a, I think that's more for a later time. Yeah. Uh, as far as Joe's title reign, I mean, I think that Gabe was exactly right. I think everything that Gabe said was 100% right in terms of like the timing, the logic of when to do it, how it affects Aries. I, I, this is why I think that Gabe sometimes doesn't even get the credit he deserves. Like, 
he knew exactly when to take the title off of Joe, who to give it to. And I think that he just made it a fantastic decision. And I, and I, and I, you know, I know that you have thoughts on this, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was an easy decision. And I think that he should get credit for making it. No, I don't think it was an easy decision. Actually, we can seek into actually, even though I have other notes to talking about who we think could have beaten Joe, but I'll just say first, um, I agree with you. I think this was the exact right time, and I'll say this, which will go into the conversation, the exact right guy for to beat Joe because I'm go- I don't think there's literally anyone else Ring of Honor had access to that would have made sense because I think of it this way. I'm using Gabe's own criteria, which is at this time – and this would change after Aries, but at this time, Gabe viewed the title – as something you put not on an already top indie name, but on the guy you think could get to that next level. That's why he gave it to Xavier. That's why he gave it to Joe, and it worked with Joe. And that's why he gives it to Aries. And I think going by that logic, there is nobody, nobody else that you, he could have put it on because at this time. And I, and like you said, and like Gabe said there, I do think for that logic, Gabe said it in talking to Dave. This was the time he had. Joe had beaten every other. Um, top guy that you would buy except for key and if you can't have him beat key then what can you do so uh, i'll just say going through the names nigel mcginnis is not ready yet he's great he deserves to be the world champion and will be he's not ready at this point yet in his career john walters never going to be ready you know pure champ they were kind of teasing a few he's never going to be ready uh colt cabana Great guy who can work all up and down the roster. I don't know if he, I would ever say he'd be a world title guy, and and if so, it wouldn't be this time. Um, Punk, you just did the feud already. Danielson, you just did the feud already. Although you could get a rematch out of that, but again, Danielson had a Japan commitments. Uh, Alex Shelley, I thought maybe, but Alex Shelley is a TNA worker, so can you trust putting the title on Alex Shelley? Uh, Doug Williams, not a full time guy. Like Matt, who else? Homicide, they had just done an 8 billion match feud. It would have been a very anticlimactic finish. Um, who else could have they have possibly have given this belt to at this time? Well, I think even if you take for granted everything you said, which I don't necessarily, like, I think that, you know, you build up guys and, like, they can get there. You know, was, was, was Austin Aries ready in four months before this? Like, probably not, right? Um, but even that, it, it, then you would have had to keep, keep Joe going for another four or five months, which, Look, I guess yeah, like but you could have like I. Sorry. Go okay. Ahead. No, I was just gonna say uh, that's a good question because do you think this is the way I see it? In terms of matches, you fresh matches you could put Joe in that people would pay to buy a DVD or see live. I think as a B show main event, you know, he wrestles Nigel on the next show without the title. That would have worked for the title. Um, maybe you could have done a John Walters match. I wouldn't have been super excited about it, and you would have had to take the title off of him first. You could have done that. I think you could have gotten one more Brian Danielson match because he only had the one match against Joe. You could have done the rematch. I think that's mostly it. I mean, I guess you could have done an Alex Shelley Joe match. Um, you de- you definitely could have. I mean, listen, I'm not. I, I think this was the right decision, as I said. But the idea that you couldn't have kept the title on Joe for another six months, even, I don't agree with. Like, I think first of all, you had guys coming in. You had. Um, Brian Kendrick coming in. You had James Gibson coming in. You know, like this was like, you know, you could have done another thing with Homicide. You know, I don't think a full feud, but some other matches. And you could have done the match with Loki and done a draw with him. Like, it's not like you can't have draws with Samoa Joe. Clearly, we've seen that you can. Um, so that would have been a bummer, though. 
I maybe, but you could have done it. Like I, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm just saying. Like if I was in charge of ROH, I'm not. I'm not at the time. I'm not saying. I don't know that. I think that Gabe made a really smart decision. I don't know that it would have been so apparent to me that this was the only way to go. No, and I don't mean to downplay Gabe's smarts because I, I do think at the like we'll get into it. I think on the next either next one or two shows, even guys like Dave were like kind of doubting if Aries could be the guy. And I think even people that were pretty big Aries boosters were like, we're not sure this is going to work, you know, until they saw it. And, um, it's, it's a heavy crown. Like to be, I'm reminded of this. this is such a weird comparison, but, um, I remember when Howard Stern went off, off the air on terrestrial radio and went to, um, satellite radio, I, I might've used this comparison actually for an earlier title thing in the past. Actually, I think I did when Joe won the title, but I remember people saying like David Lee Roth took over Howard Stern on regular radio right after that. And people hated David Lee Roth and his show was a huge failure. And I remember people saying like, you don't want to be the guy that replaces Howard Stern. You want to be the guy that replaces the guy that replaced that re- you want to be the guy that replaced the, that replaces the guy who replaced Howard Stern. And I think in the same sense, like, being the guy that directly follows Joe is a huge, like, you know, it, it's a huge expectation, you know? And I think even the fact that they got the crowd to accept this, because there's a world where if, if, if Aries isn't built up the right way, that the crowd doesn't accept this, but they accept it huge. And I think Gabe deserves full credit for that. And the timing, you know, like just like this was the right place at the right time at the right guy. Yeah. Um, so going back to the notes, well, first off, I was going to ask you, do you think there's anyone else at this time that could have beaten Joe that you would have think would have been a good choice? Like at that exact moment? No, but, but or do you think preconceivably they could have built someone up in, cause that, I guess that was your point in like four or five months. Yeah. Like they're like, yeah, Joe could have had the belt for a while longer. That's, I think that's my, that's more what I'm thinking. Hmm. Because even then, I'm thinking like again. I'm what, not like, saying that. I'm not saying he should have. I'm just saying like it would have been conceivable. Yes, I, I, I get it. I, I don't mean to like nitpick your thing. No, I, I get it. And actually, you you kind of have changed my mind about. I, I was going into this thinking that Joe Joe's title reign could have only lasted like another month or two before he exhaust the matches. But you bringing up like that you can build up guys and remind me that Spanky and Noble come in. Like no, yeah, they could. You're right. They could have stretched it more. So you definitely like have con- actually swayed me on that point, as you often do. But um, so some more notes from around this time. Pro Wrestling Torch wrote: There is talk of a Foley versus Joe match on a Ring of Honor show early in 2005. It's something Foley has yet to agree to, but participating in the angle is a positive sign that he may be strongly leading toward leaning toward it. So there you have um, the torch saying talk of a match, but again, it doesn't quite sound like the torch is like that might be more of the torch speculating. But again, that's why I told you earlier, like, you know, it's kind of blurry if Foley ever agreed to a match, at least if at least if you read the newsletters at this second, but, um, so going to the pro wrestling torch, 
They also wrote about the ring. When Joe won the title, many questioned whether he was worthy of the spot. Within a year, he was considered one of the top wrestlers in the country. During 2004, he had a number of Match of the Year candidates, most notably two stellar 60-minute draws with CM Punk. Joe and Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky were telling people that the decision to change the title on December 26th was made more than a month ago. One Ring of Honor wrestler tells the torch he thinks it's too early for Aries to be given the title. Quote, but Joe was in the same position when he got, this horse said. The crowd went nuts for the title change, which sent a message to all Ring of Honor fans that Sapolsky's booking is anything but predictable. You wouldn't believe how hot the crowd was, says Torch contrib- contributor uh, Derek Bergen, about the final minute of the match. I don't know how to describe this match other than to say it was the most amazing moment of any show I have seen this year. A Torch reader at the event, Jay Music, which by the way, that's an awesome name, writes... Best match I've ever seen live. I and everyone else was so into Aries winning that it was incredible. As incredible, an incredible match, the most excited I've ever been about a pro wrestling match. So, um, so I got more notes again, but first, I guess I would just say we, we've acted on a lot of recent shows. We've said like, oh, when did, we've wondered, when did uh, Gabe decide to, uh, make Aries the champion? And I guess, it wasn't that long before. I, I think what I told, what I, when I, is both, um, I guess Michael Laney, one of our great listeners who often has, um, great notes for us, he, he said he read it in an interview that Gabe said it was at a, uh, it was at an airport, I think, with Aries, talking to Aries after the first, like, FIP shows he did. And, um, I believe, uh, Jeff Schwartz and, uh, Shane Hagedra uh, from an honorable mention said basically the same thing. So that's when, and I, and I believe the timeline when I looked at it, I forget when it was exactly, I think it was around the time of what did I say? Like Midnight Express reunion or something like that. Yeah. Like well, somewhere, well, somewhere. Yeah. It was like right before that. Yeah. Yeah. So it is interesting that it wasn't like that long away. You know, the, the Aries push had started before that, but the Aries title win wasn't in stone at that point. Um, just looking at the notes here, then Dave eventually got the tape and he gave his personal thoughts on the match. He wrote J Joe versus Aries was really well put together. I'd give it four and a quarter stars and I came close to four and a half. They got over constructing a great match storyline, but I wasn't blown away with the feeling that the match was off the charts, like in the TNA big matches on the last two pay-per-views. But I like this more than Joe versus punk three because of how great the last three minutes were. Oh God, you might, you must be angry. Oh, here we go. This was more of a match that would be better live than on tape just because of the atmosphere of seeing the title change that was so elusive since they had a great Noah Budokan Hall caliber emotional crowd pop for the finish. At the beginning, because Joe is so ridiculously much bigger, it was almost silly to watch, but they built around that with Aries unable to get Joe up for suplexes and playing off the size difference. The deal was that Joe got tired and Aries responded with some great fast-paced offense to the point people believe that they might see a title change, but deep Deep down, didn't believe it was possible. First off, I don't know if Dave is a mind reader. Like, I don't know how Dave can feel confident in saying that. But anyway, <laughs> Dave writes, then they did believe. The last few minutes of this match in particular were just awesome. It was just a great job by both men the way they built the, cr- the crowd and got them into the near falls with the 450 splash finisher. Um, okay, I got more, so many notes, but Mike, I mean, I, I was going to say Mike Johnson, but Matt, Matt Feuerstein, um, I was just going to say, uh, what was I going to ask? God, I'm getting discombobulated here. Oh, okay. I was going to say. You're overwhelmed with notes. This is is something we could say on, um, 
get into on future shows, but this is something Dave will go back to, which is his worry that he wasn't going to be able to take Aries seriously as champion because he was too small. And that was a thought some people had. Like, even in Ring of Honor, that Aries was too small, which I yeah. don't think it come. But but that was not like we'll get into it in a future show. Yeah, I just got Dave, nothing. I just got nothing to say about that. I just can't bring put my put my head around it. It's just like it's ROH. <laughs> he's yeah, all, he's like, already he's already over. <laughs> like even here, he says like at first I thought it was a little silly seeing Aries trying to wrestle Joe. Like some people felt that way. But um, Mike Johnson wrote on PW Insider as noted on Sunday night here on PWInsider.com. Austin Aries defeated Samoa Joe to become the fourth Ring of Honor champion. This had been the plan for several months, and based on the live reaction and the post-show discussion of the show, it was a good move for the company, as they really tapped into the excitement of the moment, which then led to a ton of spirited debate online. According to several I spoke to in the company, Joe had no problem dropping the belt as long as it was done in a way that made the belt strong, which the company accomplished. Quite a few people told me that the title change was among the greatest moments that they had witnessed in the history of the company. One fan who has attended every major Ring of Honor event since 2002 said that the reaction live blew away the crowd reaction for the great Muda and Jushin Liger. So, and I will say this was one of the biggest pops of all time, I think. And I mean, I would bring up up to this point. Yeah. I mean, and, it was, I mean, I mean, you got to keep in mind the cra- the size of the crowd, you know, like it couldn't be one of the biggest pops of all time. Cause there just weren't enough people there compared to like, you know, Goldberg winning the title in the Georgia dome. You know what yeah. I mean? But like, that was the slip of the tongue, but yeah. 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 But, 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 but even still like, you know, for that, for the crowd of that size, it is one of the biggest pops of all time to this day. Yeah, and especially when you consider like that, guy, like they were comparing it to the mute Muda and uh, Liger pops. This pop sounded comparable to me, and this crowd was like less than ha- like a half to a third of the size of the crowds for those shows. Also, a way bigger. I mean, I think yes, comparable in loudness, but like way more emotional. You know, like those were like, "Yay, we're seeing fun people." This is like, "Oh my god, I'm like feel I'm feeling things." You know, it's like a different kind of pop. People talk like I know the Voices of Wrestling podcast on a recent episode did a thing about how they miss companies like Ring of Honor on the U.S. indies that are storyline based and with character development and stuff. And they talked about how most of the super indies these days, you know, with some exceptions, I know our friend Dr. Keith Lipinski at AAW is trying his best, but like it's mostly just matches with no angles, no interviews, nothing. And fans are just there to see great matches. This was a match. Where the fans were there to see, I'm sure they wanted to see a great match, but w- all that cheering in the last five minutes isn't because it's a great match, even though it is. It's because they think they might be about to see history. Like, they care about who wins and what this means. Right. Yeah, to- and, it's a totally different thing, yeah. Yeah. So, finally, I think the last note on this match, Matt, thank God, but one of the best notes is from our friend uh, Eric Eels. He is a... a Big fan of the show, really, you know, and he, he used to work for Ring of Honor for a long time. And uh, he wrote, emailed us a note today, just in the nick of time. And it's a really nice, cute, I would say, dare say, Matt, adorable anecdote. Let me just read this off. I was sitting at the sound table that fateful after at Christmas night with my longtime friends and co-worker, co-workers, Wade and Mary. I, along with the crowd in Philly, was fully invested and cheering Aries on. And during the main event, Gabe came out to watch things play out. And at two fifty two hours fifty five minutes on the DVD at on the top right of the screen during the hard camera shots, you see Gabe throwing both fists in the air, starting to move around, getting excited that his plans are coming to fruition. And to see a guy like Gabe, an infamously grumpy guy like Aries, who had to deal with the year 
with the year with all the controversies, splitting up the company from RF Video and losing two friends, dealing with the TNA stuff, MLW, and the brief H2 attempting to move into their turf, it was a very nice moment to see. However, the hard cam did not catch the best part. As the three count hits, Gabe runs over to Allison Danger, also watching in the corner of the building, and he picks her up and literally spins her, her or spins her around. He is in such a happy mood. It's one wow. of the best memories. <laughs> It's one of the best memories I have of the 10 years I worked on and off of the crew. I may have not been there for live for Joe versus Kabashi, but I was there live for Gabe's cathartic moment. And I went back after reading that, and it's something you really do have to look for. But in fact, if you look at – I won't give a timestamp, but – when you see Joe, um, Ari stand on top on the top turnbuckle for the second and final 450, if you look on the hard camera shot in the back row on the right side, there is what appears to be Gabe Sapolsky raising both arms high in the air before the match is even over and starting to like march to the left side, possibly towards Alice in Danger, which I don't see. But like, it is definitely a moment, if that's Gabe, which I think it is, of him like he is freaking out because he realizes this is going to work. Like based on the crowd rash, and it's a really cool, neat little Easter egg, which I am so thankful that we got that little moment in. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you, um, thank you, Eric. Yeah, that, that, that's a great little anecdote there. Um, so after the match, um, PW actually, I do have a note. God damn it, uh, PW wrote <laughs> regarding his ring. Joe released a public statement. Yes, it's over. First off, allow me to thank the fans, not just of Ring of Honor, but in general for all the kind words and bids of thanks I have received via email and on my message board. I honestly think that my contribution to the company that is Ring of Honor was small compared to the efforts and achievements of everyone involved, but it is really good to know that something I have enjoyed immensely has been enjoyed by people who have been there to watch it unfold. This week will be spent in honest reinvention. I have a bag that is 20 pounds lighter and a willingness to fill that the void. I have been told that 2004 has been my best year to date my only goal now is to ensure that 2005 is that much better thank you all thank you all happy new year i will see you all there so very nice little gracious statement from joe um after the match immediately after the match Aries seems overcome with emotion possibly crying or at least trying to act like he's crying i don't know if it's legit or not the crowd chants Aries as strong holds him up J- Jay Lethal, who was at a Joe's side during the, uh, during the match, holds uh, um, checks on Joe, who holds on to the Ring of Honor title as the crowd then chants Joe's name. Crowd then chants Match of the Year, but mostly Thank You, Joe. Crowd goes back to chanting Aries loudly. Lots of chants at this point. Joe grabs the mic and says before he gives Aries the belt, before he hands him his blood, sweat, tears, heartache, and most of all, the biggest triumph of his career, he asks Aries to do one thing. To carry the belt like a champion, like he has self-respect, but most of all, carry it like he respects the fans who pay and love the belt just as much as he does. He reaches his hand out, and Ares accepts the handshake, which I should know is a nice little thing, too, because Ares wouldn't wouldn't shake Joe's hand at the start of the match, and so that's a nice little touch, too, like he does shake it here. And again, another very babyface thing, Um, Ares accepts the handshake. Joe wraps the title around Aries' waist as the crowd chants ROH. And and then, as we've talked about, in a rare occurrence of Ring of Honor, no backstage promos. This is it. We end with like a minute or so of Aries celebrating and walking to the back. And that's the show. It's in a rare thing for Ring of Honor to not have promos to end the show. So, um, Matt, that's the show. Before we get into the show, I guess should we just say, I mean, is there anything we can say really to sum up Joe's title reign, except that it is not just probably the best title reign in Ring of Honor history. It is probably one of the best title reigns in all of wrestling in the past 20 years. 
or long. Yeah, I would I would say the entire time I've been watching wrestling, which goes back to I would say thirty years. <laughs> so I um. Yeah, I mean, in American wrestling, at the very least, you don't, you know, this was the thing that brought back the idea of the long title reign. You know, WWE wasn't really doing them at this point, at that point, you know. Um, and, um, you know, at, at the, it's funny because Joe actually, his title reign was um, concurrent with um, Kenta Kobashi's long title reign. I, I don't remember exactly when Kobashi lost the title. Didn't he lose it to, um, so, yeah, so, cool. thank you, Bill. Um, when Kobashi lost it to, to, uh, to Rikio, thank you, um, Trevor, uh, gave me that name. I had forgotten it. Um, um, a couple months after this, and, but, but they won the title the same month in, uh, in, um, in March 2003. Um, obviously, Kobashi won in that very famous match against Misawa, and, uh, Joe won in a much less famous match, a much um, less memorable match against Xavier. You know, when Kobashi won, it was a really big deal. When Joe won, it was just another indie title change. And it was like, oh, okay, Samoa Joe, that's the champion. Like, And in that time, you know, Kobashi put the GHC title, made it the most important belt in Japan, I would say, um, which is not that surprising. But Joe, much more surprising, made ROH championship matches like the the big thing in um, – in American wrestling, um, you know, in terms of like, at least for a fan of a certain level that followed stuff that closely, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, in the early months of Joe's title reign, he, you know, a lot of times his title matches were not the uh, main event, you know, even throughout he would have like, even, even the first Joe versus punk, uh, 60 minute draw was not the main event, you know, throughout his title reign, he didn't always get the main event spot, but his matches just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but I would say it wasn't really until 2004 that his title reign really felt super special. Like, I would say the, the Briscoe match and then the, um, the Homicide feud and the Punk matches were what made his title reign feel as epic as they were. So it's really like – it was a very slow-building title to where it really felt like a big deal. But by the end of it – Joe was considered one of the best wrestlers in the world, one of the hottest prospects in the world, you know, one of the guys that could be a big star. He developed his personality, his character. He felt like a superstar. And it, you know, it really took every moment of that title reign to get him to the level that he became. You know, if it had ended a little bit sooner, maybe even if it had ended a little bit later, his legacy wouldn't be the same. The title's legacy wouldn't be the same. But considering he made the title super meaningful, he put ROH on the map in terms of like getting attention for the quality of matches. He had a really great variety of opponents. He had a lot of different styles of matches, and he just had like really great matches. I I think that you know it's I it was a pleasure to watch this whole thing from beginning to end. You know, knowing where it went, I just thought every every step of it you know turned out beautifully. Uh, and I one of the things that strikes me is. I don't know what's for sure, but I'm pretty – I'm like 99% sure And from things I've read and quotes from the guys. Like no one, even Gabe and Joe, knew when this title reign started that it would become what it did or last as long as it did. And I think that's – it's a testament to just running with something. You know, that momentum can build and, you know, you don't always, you know, I think you should always have a plan, but you should be prepared to deviate from it. But in stuff like this, sometimes things like sometimes the best things in wrestling oftentimes happen completely organically, like kind of under your nose where it just sneaks up to you and all of a sudden you realize, hey, 
Like, like the Undertaker streak was like that. You know, they didn't start having him win all the time to be a streak. They just woke up one day and said, Oh, Undertaker hasn't lost yet. And sort of like the Joe world title reigns like that, where it's like, it feels like people just started to wake up one day and were like, Oh, Joe's held this for a long time. Joe's pretty fucking awesome. Like this is something, isn't it? And it just kept building, kept building. And it, it, you know, people sometimes say, Oh, like Joe made the ring of honor title, or even occasionally like being the champ was important for Joe. I would, I always say, and I've said this before in the podcast, both things helped each other out. The title was worth very little at the time Joe got it, but Joe definitely became a bigger star getting to play the role as champion and getting the focus on him. And it was one of the times, it doesn't happen too often, where the title and the wrestler made each other simultaneously. Oftentimes you see in wrestling, the title is really well established and it puts over the young guy or the superstar takes the new title and gives it a lot of credibility. This was both the title and Joe needed each other, I think. Maybe the title needed Joe a little bit more because Joe would have been fine, I think, probably without it. But I do think the title reign itself, apart from even the matches, gave a boost to Joe's career. And it was – I honestly have to admit I feel a little melancholy because this was one of my favorite parts of being a wrestling fan at the time. And you know, I'm sure I might revisit one of these uh, – some of the highlight matches from Joe at some point in the future of my life. But in terms of um, revisiting it all like this – this is probably the last time in my life for me. I, I'm probably not going to go through it all again, Matt. Um, and uh, it was really fun to do that with you. And it, I mean, w- this is not the end of the podcast, but it is the end of kind of a chapter of the podcast and a chapter of our uh, our wrestling fandom, I guess. So all the listeners, here's what we got to do for Trevor. We got to help him, therapize with him to get him to be willing to listen back to his own voice on a podcast no. so he can relive these, uh, so he can relive uh, the matches that way if he's not going to watch them all again. No, no, no. And uh, we should, uh, we still got some stuff to get to. So how about screw the therapy as I frequently say. No, actually, therapy's good, folks. But um, Matt, what'd you think about Final Battle 2004 as a show? Because uh it was a show. It's a different kind of show, I'll say, but I should let you go first. Yeah, I mean, really, the only thing that anyone needs to watch is the main event. Um, it's not like it was a bad show. It, it was it was spotty. It was hit and miss. But it was, I would say, up until the main event, pretty below par for recent months of ROH. And uh, given how much the main event matters, like, just watch that. <laughs> like, no, I, I, I didn't think it was a great show. I It was... It was so so, but I think that the ending was so spectacular that it makes it a really special show altogether. I think this was shaping up to be one of the worst shows of like the reborn post Feinstein era until the final match. I mean, the final match is again like it's a, it's a one match show, but it's a special match. It's a great match. It's not one of the five best of the year in our opinion, but it's a great match. It's a it's a moment in time. It's one of those things where. If you just even if you don't even care about match quality, if you just want to see like really special momentous moments in Ring of Honor history, you have to see Aries Joe. It is a very, very important match in the history of this company. And I, I the one other thing I will say about this show is overall the quality wasn't great except for the main event. But what I did like is it did feel kind of like a WrestleMania in the sense of so many things happened. Like it felt like this was the end of a huge story with Joe losing. Um 
I guess technically the Saints next generation next feud ended. You wouldn't know from just watching the DVD. Um, John Walters, a champion, joins a heel stable. Aries kicks Shelly out of um, Generation Next and assumes leadership. Trent Acid quits the company. Like, there's a lot of stuff they actually that happens in on the show. Yeah, I would argue that more like other than the main event, it actually feels more like the Raw the night after WrestleMania than a than a WrestleMania itself. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of even even how almost like the key uh Danielson match almost gets sacrificed, you know, to build for this homicide uh feud. Like everything there's a lot of things being a lot of things being put up here to pay off in the future. Yep. And then they got the one big match at the end. But um yeah, so one match show. That's final battle. So Matt now it's time to put on our tuxes. It's time for the year end 2004 extravaganza. So first off, I how about we just go into how do we sum up – what do we think rewatching it 2004? Because this is – I'll go first on this, I guess. The way I look at Ring of Honor up to this point, I kind of separate it into chunks. Like I would say almost all of 2002 is the figuring it out year. It's it's Gabe and company throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. We've talked about the first few shows had a lot more segments and different things. And you know the announcers were changing all the time. And it feels like by the end of 2002 um, – Gabe has kind of figured out what he wants Ring of Honor to be. Uh, 2003, till, from the start of it till near the end, feels like kind of just um, the year where the undercard got more depth. It stopped being just the Danielson, Key, and um, and uh, Daniel show. And uh, the undercard's got more depth and, and it just kind of started humming along in a good clip. And I would say 2004, I would say I separate into two chunks. I would say the last ha- last section of 2003 and the first part of 2004 up till reborn stage one is like the first time in ring of honor history where the company starts feeling stagnant for the first time. Like it's not, it's there's not that there's not still good stuff there and it's, or that's painful, but it feels like some of the first crop of stars has graduated and it's time for a new crop and like stuff like the field of honor tournament and stuff. There's just so many guys that he's trying to push Matt Stryker, John Walters, um, BJ Whitmer and Moth, uh, even initially for a little while, looked like they could be in the singles. And it's just none of the guys are good enough to fill the shoes of the guys they're replacing, even though they're not necessarily bad themselves. And then I feel like, as soon as um, Re- Reborn Stage 1 starts, once Feinstein leaves, it really does feel like a different company. Like, Gabe's booking feels better and fresh. I think AJ Styles and um, Daniels leaving, even though they were great and significant like con- contributors to the company, it forced them to – it opened up slots and forced them to push young guys even harder than they probably would have before. And I, I, I just feel like it's almost like a tale of two years in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's not uncontroversial to say that like a lot of things changed after the big split with uh, RF Video and Rob Feinstein, and you know, Reborn is an apt name. Um, if I take the year as a whole, um, I think you're right. The way that they started the year really needing a shot in the arm, some changes. But then when those changes finally came, like they really came, you know, like you really felt a jolt of energy when Generation Next came. Right, and you really felt the quality of the main event style matches improving as Joe came into his own with his title reign. You got even got some great tag team title matches because I think the Briscoes, even though they left, you know, before the end of the year, I think they were really coming out strong. 
those last few yeah. months. Like those, their matches with Punk and Cabana, um, some of the singles matches, um, you know, this cage match with Joe, obviously, and, um, you know, just some of the matches with the Rottweilers. Um, but, um, you know, I think, you know, they, they, I also just think besides the really great matches, which there were a ton of, the consistency became incredible. Yes. You know, like they, you know, one of my big complaints about 2003 was the, um, the heel face dynamics just made no sense a lot of the time. And I think one of the things that Gabe really focused on after this, after the reborn era was really making faces and heels, you know, and making them clear. And I think that helped a lot. Um, you know, you had Generation Next as a big heels up until like I guess this show where now it's like are they heels are they faces? But um, <laughs> but but up until this they were like they were pretty clear heels. CM Punk and Cold Cabana made really clear face turns. The Rottweilers were heels, and it just made the storylines make a lot more sense. It made the the shows just really flow, and you had these really consistent shows where it's just like. There were a lot of shows where you're like, oh, I mean, this wasn't a memorable show, but man, it was it was good all the way through, you know, like like a show like um, I don't know, Scramble Madness, which I mean, uh, Scramble Cage Melee, excuse me, which that is was like the one I was going to use, yeah, yeah, it's like you never even think of that show, but it's like, oh, it was like a lot of good stuff on the show. Um, I remember you, us going like, if this is the worst of the year, the worst is still pretty good, like yeah, it, exactly, it's not great, but still. If this is the worst, holy cow. Right. Glory by Honor 3, a show that I really haven't thought about in years. And it's like, oh, wow. Well, how entertaining was this? Um, you know, I, I mean, we'll get to it in the awards, but like it was hard for me to think of the best shows of the year. The one thing I will say is you'd still – they still didn't get to the point where they have these spectacular epic top-to-the-bottom cards with like lots of great matches. That would come. But – you know, they, they they were up. They were still at the level of where they had lots of really good matches and one really great one. You know, like that. That's that's sort of much more like what ROH at their best was at this point, which is still great. I'll take it. You know, but um, it's just I, I expect things to get better from here, even. And this was really good. I feel like at the end of 2004, they're kind of in the same, a similar place as they were at the end of 2003, but like a better version of that, where like. Or maybe the end of I, I forget when because I feel like the undercards took a jump in two thousand three, but they still they went from like, oh, these are kind of crappy undercards, at least in hindsight, to oh, everything's at least like average and watchable. And this year, I feel like the undercards took another jump where it's like, oh, there's a lot of, of slightly above average and good on the undercard, but nothing too usually not that many great matches other than the one or two highlight matches. And I feel like We've gotten to the same point in late 2004 as we got in late 2003. We were like, we're we're kind of ready for that next jump in overall quality and consistency. Like, I, I feel like yeah. the last few shows we've been on maybe a little bit harder on the undercards just because we're like, okay, we've gotten used to how good this undercard can be. We know it can be better again. Like, bump it up again, and we'll that's, get that I think in the future. That's true. Um, and also like. Uh, but also, I don't know if we'll ever get another era where with like qu- the main events of this quality as consistently. You know, like Joe's title reign is pretty special for top level main events. The one critique you could have is that the great matches were very Joe centric in uh, the second half of 2004. Yeah. And maybe you want to see a little bit more different people having these top level matches. Um, but like I said, I think we will. So before we get into our awards, I just have one quick little nerdy thing I did the last couple of years. I compiled the Ring of Honor attendance statistics, and um, 
all I do is I go to do back to all the uh, observers. And again, I, I want, I always make clear with this. I'm not saying the observer is consi- necessarily the most accurate source, but it's a consistent source. So I'm not cherry picking like a high attendance from one site and then a, for a different show, a different one. It's consistent at least against itself. And I thought it'd just be interesting to do a little comparison again, just very quick. Uh, 2002, they ran 12 shows in Ring of Honor. They sold 5,250 tickets overall for a total of 437 fans per show. 2003, they bumped it up. Instead of 12 shows, they ran 20. They drew 11,900 fans, which is an average of 595 fans a show. So they, they raised it by over like 150 fans per show, which by that standard of the first year was really good. This year, 2004, they ran 23 main shows. I'm not counting like do or die. So three, only three extra shows. They drew 14,975 fans and they averaged 650 fans. So they drew an, they average, they ran three more shows this year and averaged an extra 55 people per show. So not as big of a jump as the, as two, as year one to year two, but still good. Uh, their biggest attendance was, at our best, drew 1,800, which was a record for them. And that's, we've talked about that was the first time ever they really were able to piggyback on WrestleMania week and reap the benefits as pretty much every wrestling company would in the future. And, uh, Weekend of Thunder Night 2 drew 1,200. And so that was their second biggest. Th- those were, in fact, the only two shows that drew over 1,000. Although Glory by Honor 3 did draw 950 with Mick Foley. Um, the lowest attendance of the year was Survival of the Fittest with 300 people. That was the show where after the Feinstein scandal, they lost their um, access to a Maryland promoter's license and had to run in a Ramada Inn greeting room or Holiday Inn, one of the hotels. And if so if you if you disqualify that saying that's not fair, the lowest would actually be 375 for Death Before Dishonor 2 Part 1, which was their one and only show in Wisconsin, which I guess that was a one-show experiment. So that's just some little stats from the last year. And finally, Matt, oh, do you have well, any thoughts? I, no, no, I was actually going to ask you, because um, you always told me that you remember 2004 ROH as the, your favorite year, the best year in ROH history. So make a prediction. Do you think that, in your opinion, this year will be topped by the few, by the upcoming years that we are going to cover? I think it will. I think this year has the most nostalgia for me, because 2004 is the year I became like a buy-every-DVD fan of Ring of Honor. Um I think if you just made like you you said this earlier about this might year might not be top for like just the number of top 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 and great matches. I feel like if you just made a compilation like here's my five hour compilation of every year, 2004 might be the best year in Ring of Honor history. But if we if we're just talking about depth uh, of everything, I, I don't I think 2005 and six will top it. It'll be interesting to see if there are any years that can match 2004 for great matches too. But um, I, I think we're going we're gonna to get our chance to see pretty soon. And that brings us to the awards. So we will do our awards, and then we'll run down a couple other awards, sites awards, and then we'll do a little pre-2005. And then I will finally treat myself to a frozen cold beverage for my throat. Matt, awards are always a fun thing. We In the first year, we did five awards. One of them was Best Surprise. We got rid of that in, 2000, in 2003 because just weren't that many surprises. We're going to stick with those same four awards that we did in 2003. Um, we're going to do, we, so our awards, we do a top three for the four awards. And we also have the freedom to say, oh, we also had honorable mentions. If we did, we don't have to. And on top of that, 
our match of the year is five because there's there's more to choose from with that award and it's more interesting. So we're going to start as we always start, Matt. Worst thing of the year. Worst thing of the year can be anything. It can be a match. It can be an angle. It can be a storyline. It can be a trend. It can be anything. In 2002, we both had the same worst thing of the year, and that was the opening in-ring segment of Air of Honor Begins, Rampant Hobophobia. That's kind of one of the things we initially were famous for on this podcast. People kept saying, holy crap, that rant. And uh, 2003, my top three were third was the second and third Ring of Honor Riots. Then the lack of clear faces and heels, and my worst was the man-on-woman violence streak. Matt, in 2003, your third worst was unfocused booking. Number two was the SAT's washing machine, which for people that don't know, was an incredibly dangerous move that the SAT kept using despite the fact that they nearly killed people with it. And then number one was the misogyny of violence against women. So basically, both the last two years, we've had the same number one. Will we a third year? Let's see, Matt, my number three is the horrible production because this the production's always been somewhat of a problem for Ring of Honor, but this was a year where it seemed like for a span of shows, every show there was a different production problem. Like it was always video, but it was like some episodes, the, the glare on certain camera angles would be too bad. Some shows, the color balance, the white balance would be off where the color tint of everything would be different from the, um, the, uh, the local, the handheld hand, cam versus the hard cam. Um, one show, I swear to God, I think the hard camera might have been slightly crooked. And of course, there was the famous show where backstage, all the, at least some of the segments were so dark, you could not see facial expressions or who was talking. Uh, Matt, it, it, the company deserved better. I mean, there, there's so, that's the one thing that bugs me about being so many great matches in 2004 is that for people that aren't prepare for the production like there are some great matches that truly deserve better production yes and uh th- that was also my third uh for this category too the exact same thing um just like there were there were there were entire shows where like they were just like unwatchable because like parts of it would just feel like pitch black or just like weird like weirdly off colored everyone looked like green or like sick like Midnight Express Reunion, everyone looked orange. And then this show in the same building looked completely different. It was just like incredible inconsistency on top of the just really bad production problems. And they didn't feel like all these problems would be so difficult to solve either. This was a company, you know, I realized they split from Feinstein and Gentry partway through the year. But this Ring of Honor has its roots as a company that worked that was RF video which was all about selling footage but also shooting footage i mean dating back to the ECW fan cams that Gabe and company shot and i'm not saying that those were great production but you would think going in that like the one thing this guy these guys are starting a wrestling company well maybe they won't know how to book and handle talent but they're definitely going to have production down and it's the opposite it's like the content is very good and the production from this company that's built around filming wrestling shows is it's not good and it, it's Continues to be crazy three years in. I will say at the end of the year, there seemed to be some light at the end of the tunnel. The last, yeah. the last few shows of the year, you know, it's not like the production was great, but like there were no obvious like, oh, this is terrible. This looks terrible situations. Yes. I will go now to my second, which was almost my number one, the overrating of the Rottweilers. And um, people have listened to last shows have been seeing me hear me losing my patience with them. So I want to say this. Uh, the wording of that is very specific. The Rottweilers are not the worst wrestlers in Ring of Honor. They're not 
horrible wrestlers. A lot of the, most of their matches are at least average. And you're talking about the Havana Pitbulls in particular, yes? I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean the Havana Pitbulls. Sorry, that. Thank you, thank God for Colonel Everett. Homicide, low key, great. The Havana Pitbulls, um, because Ricky Romero, I mean Rocky Romero, Ricky Reyes, um. Everywhere I've been looking as, at my as, re- as we've talked about in the past, that should be the name of their tag team. <laughs> everywhere I've been looking at, everywhere I in research, we'll see in a second with some of the other sites awards. Havana Pitbulls, people keep saying, oh, they're one of the best tag teams in the world. Samoa Joe in his 2000 shoot interview said they're one of the best tag teams in the world. I remember people on like message boards like Death Valley Driver said they're one of the best tag teams in the world. Matt, I talked about earlier how in Ring of Honor um, – a lot of guys in their first match don't get a great job to shine. In Ring of Honor, Gabe rolled out the red carpet for these guys. Their first match in Ring of Honor was a high-profile non-title match against the champs, the Briscoes. It was okay. They they um they early on they got the char- joined the Rottweilers, which gave them a bunch of really charismatic, super over top names in the company and a mouthpiece in Julia Smokes. They got to a main event, Death Before Dishonor completion in a half an hour match. Them and Homicide against. Uh, the Briscoes and Joe, again, just okay. They got to wrestle, win the titles pretty quickly against uh, a good tag team, Cabana and Punk, in a long match. Again, not that good. And they've had some good matches, but they've, they've, I would say this, they haven't had one match this year in Ring of Honor that is four stars. And on top of that, um, every match that they have been good in, like uh, the, 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 uh, every good match they've had, I would usually say the other team was the better part of the match. And I thought this was a, uh, something I was desperately hoping on this rewatch that my memories that I would have matured and I would have seen something watching these guys that I missed the first time. And I'm just completely disappointed with them. Like it, it, they are as disappointing as I remember. And I can't wait for them to lose the titles. And I'm, that's no, no reflection on what they've done in other companies or what Rocky Romero in particular has become. But man, oh man, they are fucking disappointing, Matt. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I don't feel as strongly as you about it, but I, I do agree with you <laughs> like, like that, that they have not lived up to the hype. I, um, I do think part of it is probably um, can be chalked up to just like, again, like the era, like what they did back then was more impressive then than it is now. But, of course, you do also can judge by crowd reactions, and their matches never get great reactions. Um, I I actually think my favorite Pitbulls tag team match was the one where they defended the titles against Special K at Scramble Cage Melee. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. For me, it's either that or the Strong Evans one. Yeah, the Strong Evans one was good, although... You know, it's hard to compare. It's hard to say because they, they, you know, when Romero and Homicide wrestled Strong and Evans, that match was so much better. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in a way, their bet, their 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 finest hour was probably that first Special K match so far. Yeah, weird. So, what is your second worst thing of the year, Matt, in Ring of Honor? Uh, my second worst thing is the continued, constant misogyny that permeates. Um, the wrestling culture of 2004 and Ring of Honor being no exception. Clearly, there was less uh, man-on-woman violence in 2004 than there was in the previous two years, being that in the previous two years, they were on like every show. Um, but there was still plenty of it, you know, not the least of which being um, Alice in Danger taking a cop killer and, and it getting a gigantic babyface reaction. And uh. then... 
and then Gabe, like right after that, being like, oh, the what the what the Rottweilers did was so disgusting, spitting on the belt, like you know, just like act, you know, basically forgetting about her them being violent against a woman, you know, a lot, you know, just a constant like berating of Alice in danger, either to her face or on commentary by CM Punk or Mark Nolte. Um, you had Mark Nolte's ridiculous rants about how the women in WCW were two big pains in the asses, so that's why they got rid of the women's division. And, um, <laughs> you know, call, being like Rate Lacey, the only thing Lacey knows about wrestling is that she can't do it, even though clearly she's a wrestler and a good one. Um, you, know, um, you know, Gabe continuing with his, oh, she's hot comments, but Gabe actually being the voice of reason on multiple occasions in terms of like telling Mark Nolte that he's being too misogynistic and using that word. When, when Gabe is telling you you're being too misogynistic in 2004, you know you're being too misogynistic. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, just, just a continuation of like the creepy vibes. Um, I, I, I can't wait, and it's coming soon. Dave Prezak. On commentary, I feel like we're we're close to the end of this. And, and there's at least a show, uh, maybe more. I mean, no, no, there are multiple ones where Dave Prezak and Gabe commentate together. So I wonder if we'll see anything funny there. But, yeah, that'll uh, be interesting. I, it's weird because, like, I know, like, we'll see. But like, when Ga- when Dave Prezak and Lenny Leonard take over commentary, does I feel like that g- ends the period where we will be quoting the commentators on our reviews because they they do their best to just blend into the background yeah that that's that'll be a bitter that'll be bittersweet for sure and going to you like i did not include um the misogyny this year i i I won for both of us that was our winner last year for this award i feel kind of guilty for not including it but quite frankly i've gone numb to it in in a way when i was a kid like trying to talk my mom into letting me watch violent movies and um play violent video games i was always like mom desensitization isn't a real thing it won't make me numb to this mom i'm sorry desensitization is a real thing because i think if you listen to matt and i on this podcast like it is like a 55 episode experiment in showing how outraged and how much time we talked about on the first episode to now where it's just kind of like yeah it happened i mean this like, is, they it's, wore us down, it's, matt. it's the uh, it's it's a version of the presidency of donald trump right where like <laughs> each thing it's just like oh i uh Okay, I mean, yeah, of course that happened. <laughs> Whatever. Like one murder is a tragedy, a hundred is a statistic. Like it, uh-huh, it, it, uh-huh. they 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 made the number of, of of horrible aspects of misogyny. Like it, it's too high now. It's a statistic, unfortunately. But I'm glad, Matt, you still are not numb to it. Like I sadly am. So finally, our number one, Matt. I'm just gonna say it. I think yours is the same. I first wasn't gonna have this my number one, but then I realized. Because almost I didn't want to acknowledge it, but I realized it's kind of crazy to have this not be the number one. And that is the entire Rob Feinstein scandal. Is that your number one, too? Yeah, yes. Just the, and I'll phrase it this way. Um, owner of the company uh, gets involved in a, uh, in a uh, alleged underage sex sting, and it leads to massive changes in the company, a sale of ownership, uh, a power struggle – um, you know, wrestlers pulling out. Yeah, so just, yes, that entire scandal um, is uh, the worst thing that happened to ROH in 2004. Yeah, I'll just say, like, um, you know, 
what we, you know, to cover our asses, we can't, I mean, and look, there's no proof, there's no like video evidence we can't say of what Rob was accused of, whether that happened or not. But I would say even if you just took that away and just like the, how both sides handled it afterwards, where, you know, it, the, everyone swore Rob was away, but then it became pretty obvious that, you know, Rob had just basically handed the comedy to his friend and former roommate Doug Gentry and was just waiting for things to cool down until it reached a point where he kind of realized that they probably would never cool down enough for him to come back and you know how it cost him the TNA relationship and it was just an ugly mess and quite frankly it, it's something that if it happened today I don't think the company would have survived it but you know in a weird thing weird way Matt the company came out of it stronger. Like I think Carrie Silken being the full, full owner was better for the company. I think the product is better by the end of the year. I think that it's more popular and getting better publicity, at least in the newsletters by the end of the year. Like in a weird way, it's a scandal that almost killed the company that probably would have killed it today, but they come out of it better. It's, it's weird. Yeah, I don't want to say that it's like the best thing that ever happened to it while at the no, same time being the worst, weird. but like – they certainly made lemon out of this uh oh lemon excuse me they certainly made lemonade out of this extremely sour lemon like when it happened we were a few months into this year and people in the news source were like even Gabe was giving quotes like I don't know if Ring of Honor survi- will survive but we'll give it our best try and by the end like no one's even thinking about Rob Feinstein anymore and it's been like what 8 months or something 9 months right it it it, it changed a lot so um, my only honorable mention for that category was the Carnage Crew Moth and Whitmer feud slash, slash the Foley Steamboat feud mixed into it. We've already talked about it a lot. Not great. I, I will say the Carnage Crew, everyone makes fun of the, 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 the who shit in our bag storyline. That was more entertaining and gives me more of a chuckle than that feud that I just said in the honorable mention. So I, I agree. I'll also throw in the uh, the Trent Acid thing because I was like, what, what, like, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> Absolutely. And so that brings us next to show of the year. Um, in 2002, my winner was Honor Invades Boston. Matt, your winner in 2002 was All-Star Extravaganza. In 2003, my top three were Final Battle 2003, Death Before Dishonor, and then my winner was the one-year anniversary show. Matt, in 2003, your top three were the one-year anniversary show, Do or Die, and then Death Before Dishonor was your winner. Uh, going into this, Matt, I'll just say this was one of the toughest um, categories for me to get a top three for. Toughest category uh, of all the three years we've ever had, I, in my opinion. Yeah. What, what's your number three? Yeah, so I'll just say, like, I thought this year had a lot of good shows, but no really standout, spectacular great ones, which was what made this so hard. Um, so my number three, I vacillated between lots of shows. Um, I ended up picking Midnight Express Reunion. Um, just because I enjoyed a bunch of matches on the undercard. I enjoyed Loki against Jay Lethal. I really liked Homicide against, um, against Nigel McGuinness. I enjoyed the Midnight Express reunion part of it. And I just, you know, the main event was great. Like, and, you know, which was a Danielson, Danielson against Joe. It was a great 40 minute match. Um, it had, you know, just, it was, it was unique. It was exciting. And I really liked the post match which set up a bunch of things for the rest of the year with CM Punk asking for a rematch, the uh, the the dream partner match with uh, Liger and Loki and Danielson. 
I, I just thought it, it, it was a really smartly booked match with a, a show with a bunch of good matches. They didn't overstay their welcome. It was like a six-match show, something like that, seven matches maybe. And it was just solid from top to bottom, and the main event was one of the best matches of the year. And like I said, it's not that it was like a spectacularly great show, but just there were so many shows of similar quality that it was like that's just the one that, that stood out to me. Um. My, I'll, I may or may not be able to talk about that show later, but my number three was Death Before Dishonored 2 Part 2. Um, this could have been one for me. I mean, all three of these shows, honestly, on a different day, I might put them in a different order, but I think these were my three best. But Death Before Dishonored 2 Part 2, it's a show where it's probably the most consistent show of the year where a lot of shows this year in Ring of Honor, like you were saying, like, there's great matches on top, and some undercards are better than others, but usually there's a mix of good matches and just average or a little bit above average matches. This was a show where I felt like almost every match on the card was good. Like, by good, I mean like three to three and a half stars, maybe even three and three quarter. But the one caveat to that is I felt like some of those matches that were good, you were expecting to be great. Like, Key versus Mark Briscoe was a little disappointing, but still good. Homicide versus Jay Briscoe, a little disappointing, but still good. Even, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm not even sure, but like, even, okay, Ch- Chad Collier and Rocky Romero, people remember that, like Gabe keeps saying all this year, the Ring of Our Message Board says that's a dark horse for match of the year, and I remember people hyping it like that. On hindsight, it's not as good as people remember it, but it's still a good match. But that said, everything on the undercard pretty much is good, and then the main event is a great match, and it, that hardcore tag team main event, Ace Steel and Punk versus um, Moth and Whitmer, I think it's one of the best co- versions of that Ring of Honor like tag team garbage brawl. I think it's probably the best version of that. And so you got consistently good undercard, great main event. That's good enough for number three for me. Um, your number two, Matt. My number two was uh, Reborn Stage 2 uh, from April of um, 2004. It was the debut of ROH in Chicago. Um, it's really kind of a coming out party for a lot of guys. You know, it had a really great four-way match that involved um, Austin Aries and Rocky Romero and um, and Nigel McGuinness. It had a tag team scramble that with uh, with Jack Evans and Matt Seidel looking spectacular. It had uh, <laughs> it had a not very good world title match with Matt Stryker, but it had a great match between Homicide and Brian Danielson that people still talk about. You know, just great technical stuff. Um, and on top of that, it had a really great tag team main event with uh, CM Punk. And, like, they were, he was still a heel, but Punk and Cabana were babyfaces here against the Briscoes. One of the, Brisco- one of the best tag matches in ROH up till this point, I would say. And just, like, just a really good feel-good ending with them winning the titles. It felt like a really big show. It felt like, like, thing, like, it was it was right after the the turnover in the in the power balance of the company and it really felt like they like things were going to be okay like they had this really good direction things felt much fresher than they had in months the crowd was super hot for the show um you know they were showcasing a bunch of new talent they were doing it well it was just it was just really good vibes all around and i thought it was a great show or close to, or at least as close to a great show as we got this year <laughs> I think that's a really good pick. That that one just barely missed my list. My number two is All-Star Extravaganza 2. And um, this one, it was hard for me to kind of evaluate because I feel like there is a two-hour-plus version of the show. If you just take the best stuff, if you take 
the Punk Joe 3 main event, if you take the Heenan Cornette, you know, promo and, and tag match, if you take Key Aries and you take Homicide Danielson, that's like a two hour plus, two plus hour show. That's fa- my show of the year and fantastic. But the show's over four hours and then there's a lot of just average to decent on the rest of it. So I will say, no show this year felt like more of a major big time event than All Star Extravaganza Two, which also kind of um went away went away went away with me. Um, you know, it felt major between the Heenan Cornet stuff and especially the main event. So I was kind of like, well, how do I push over the highs are so high and the whole vibe is great, but the lows are kind of meh. And I, for me, that's number two of the year. I can't say it's the best show of the year, but it's good. It's really good. And Matt, what is your show of the year? Uh, my show of the year is All-Star Extravaganza 2. Um, I agree with most of what you said, except I think I enjoyed the undercard more than you did. I, I really liked the first John Walters versus Jimmy Rave match. I really enjoyed the uh, Aries against Loki match. I, I, I don't hear people talk much about the Danielson versus Homicide match on that show, but I thought it was really, really good. Uh, the... Uh, the um all the stuff with Heenan and Cornette, the match and the promos were super fun. And then of course the main event was um just one of the best matches, you know, you'll see. So um, you know, in, in so many ways. So I agree with you about the bloat of the show, but I and I think that did take it down a bit, but I just did not see a show that was better that over you know even so even though i wouldn't say this show totally overcame the fact that it was much too long and bloated i think that it was good enough that it was still better from top to bottom than any other show of the year and i'm a sucker for a show that feels like a big deal and this show felt like a big deal in a lot of different ways me too about that sucker part but um not sucker in general sucker for big show well i am a sucker in general too but anyway matt um my, your number one was my number two. Well, my number one is your number three because my show of the year is Midnight Express Reunion. Um, I feel like this show kind of splits the difference between my three and two. It feels like a bigger event than Death Before Dishonor 2 Part 2 because you got the big Danielson Joe match. You got Key Lethal and you got, which is a really memorable match. And you've got, um, the Midnight Express Reunion, which was really well done and felt like a neat little thing. And, it has the great match on top with Daniels and Joe, but it's it's kind of like it doesn't feel as big of an event as All Star Extravaganza Two, and maybe it's not quite as consistent as Death Before Desire Two Part Two, or it's close. But I feel like it, it kind of splits the difference. It's it's a show that's very good top to bottom. Plus, it feels kind of special, even if it doesn't feel quite as special as All Star Extravaganza Two. So I'm kind of I'm kind of trading a little bit of top match quality and a little bit of um, specialness for something that still has both of those things, but is more consistent and compact. I think the one thing that, that, that separates us on that show is that you like that elimination tag team match a lot more than I did. I think if I liked that match as much as you, I would have had it higher also. That was one of our bigger like gulfs in opinion this year, and yeah, and that does make a big difference. If if I thought of it, like going vice versa, if I thought of it what you thought of it, it would probably be my number two or three. Yeah. So, and that brings us to match of the year. Now we're in the big boys match of the year and wrestler of the year match of the year in two thousand two. I had American Dragon versus Low Key versus Christopher Daniels. You from uh, Era of Honor begins. You had 
American Dragon versus Low Key from Round Robin Challenge. In 2003, we expanded to top five, and we had almost the exact same list. So at number five, we both had AJ Styles versus Low Key versus Paul London from the one-year anniversary show. At four, we both had Paul London versus AJ Styles from Night of the Grudges. At three, I had Brian Danson versus Paul London, two out of three falls. And at two, I had Homicide versus Samoa Joe from Do or Die. You had them flip-flopped. You had three, Homicide versus Samoa Joe from, from Do or Die, and Danielson versus London at two. At one, we had the same match of the year, Steve Carino versus Homicide from Bitter Friends, Different Enemies. So, Matt, we had... The five same matches and only two matches slightly, slightly out of order. Will we be seeing simpatico this year? It, probably not. Let's find out. My number five is Samoa Joe versus Brian Danielson from Midnight Express Reunion. This is a great match. Um, it is a match where even though there were other matches this year with the punk matches were all about Joe being frustrated and being on the ropes, I don't think there's any match this year or during Joe's entire title, entire title reign other than his losing to Aries where he's quite on the ropes like this. Danielson takes a lot of this match and Joe at the very end, it just like he gets desperate with those desperation knee strikes and it's a, it's a different feeling Joe match than any other match he's had in the, in the rain before the punk, other than the punk matches, it's the longest match he's had in this title reign. Um, and I think it's a match where Joe and Danielson are my two favorite Ring of Honor wrestlers ever. And I would say in terms of just their Ring of Honor careers, Joe's my fave. I think if you take their whole wrestling careers, Danielson's my favorite. But on this night, I thought Danielson out-wrestled Samoa Joe, which is pretty amazing, and a, a nice feather in his cap. Uh, Matt, how about you for number five? All right, so my number five, and I was struggling with number five. There were, It was between two matches. One of them obviously didn't get to make the list, but the one that did was CM Punk and Ace Steel against Dan Moff and BJ Whitmer from Death Before Dishonor 2, Night 2. Um, just like you said, like probably the best tag team brawl in the history of Ring of Honor, like as far as, far as just like two on two tag team. Um, they just did everything, and the match built and built and built, and the crowd was up for it. And the vibe was just great, and it, it actually did feel intense and hate-filled. And, you know, just, you know, the right amount of blood, the right amount of weapons, the weapons spots, they didn't feel overly set up or slow. You know, like, the, it was the first match I ever saw where the crowd threw the chairs in the ring and they actually wrestled on top of the chairs. <laughs> um, just, you know, just so many big spots, you know. Like, the fact that they, they had barbed wire boards and, like, it actually they actually felt like seamlessly woven into the match instead of super contrived, um, you know. Just a lot of great you know ring generalship by Punk and and Moff honestly, who had a great match himself there. Um, Ace Steel you know got to shine a bit. I I um I just thought this was a super exciting, entertaining brawl that holds up really well. Sixteen years later. Matt, we were so close yet so far because I can tell you that was the last match I cut off my top five list. It was between that and Joe Danielson. So I completely agree with you. It's one of the best weapons brawls Ring of Honor's ever had, one of the more violent matches they've had up to this point, and just that they find the perfect sweet spot between like having really inventive, cool weapons moments without feeling like everything is just staged around them and it's kind of an artificial match. It's it's great, and I oh, I kind of wish we I I wish we had so we could both have the same five and keep the trend going. But I'm not going to change now. I, it was my number six. I'm sure I'm my sure number, we will have other differences too. 
My number four is Samoa Joe versus CM Punk from the World Title Classic. That's the first of their trilogy. Um, it's 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 a really good match. It it, it has the the problem of it has to set up what's coming next on the next two matches. It it it, it has you know a, a one or two maybe brief little lulls. It it it. It, it, it's not as great as the other matches, but it's great. And I feel like it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild of uh, the world title classic. I mean, I mean of the punk Joe matches because people, I think underrate it just because other matches, those other matches were great. I feel like this match deserves a little more attention than it's getting. And um, if this was their only match this year, I think people would be, hyping up a bit more but it wasn't their only match of this year um matt how about you for four well i'll just say um that was the match i cut that was the one that could have been number five for me um you know it was tough to cut it um i i really had to decide which one i was which of those two and i just felt like the 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 death before dishonor tag team match was like the best version of something and this match you know joe vs punk one was so great and, you know, I really don't have much negative to say about it, but it just, there were just so many great matches this year that I just couldn't, I just couldn't get it in there. Um, yeah, it's tough. This was, this is such a tough category. Yeah. Um, my number four was Joe against Danielson from Midnight Express Reunion. Um, I mentioned on that show, like, th- in my memory, this match was, like, as good as any of the Joe versus Punk matches. And on rewatch, it wasn't. So on that level, it was a disappointment to me, but it was such a great match. Um, you know, just like, just the, you know, just Danielson, you know, like, like you said, ha- like just having one of the great performances that he had this year, you know, really like, you know, roping Joe in and like, and, and getting advantage of him on the mat. And then Joe just having to basically just like struggle out of the holds and just pound the crap out of him to get the win. Um, just, just a great vibe, a great atmosphere, you know, just a, such a such a good match. I, um, you know, I, it was great to go back and watch. I recommend everyone go back and watch that match. Yeah, and um, three for me is Samoa Joe versus Jay Briscoe from At Our Best in a Steel Cage. Uh, this is, in some ways, it's completely different from all other Joe matches because it's a cred- incredibly brutal steel cage match. But on the other hand, in some ways, it's kind of like one of the best summaries of Samoa Joe's title reign because I feel like. One of the things that makes Samoa Joe special is a lot of wrestlers, they can wrestle matches where they look 50-50, where they look like they just are barely better than the other guy. And a lot of wrestlers can work matches where they squash a guy and look like miles better than the other guy. I think Samoa Joe is one of the rare wrestlers who has the special skill where he, at the end of his matches, he clearly looks like the, uh, the best wrestler, but the other guy doesn't feel like a jobber. Like you go, that guy is great. Samoa Joe's just amazing, though. And in this match, Jay Briscoe takes a hell of a beating. It's the spectacle that, you know, we've talked about the crazy amounts of blood, the spurting on the camera, the coagulation you can see forming on his head. It's, it's a complete spectacle, and Jay does take an absolute beating, but it never quite feels like a squash. And I think that's a testament to both these guys, but especially Samoa Joe. And when you were talking, you made a great point that kind of made me wince about the, uh, the Death Before Dishonor hardcore tag match about being the best example of something. I mean, I don't know if this is the best example of a cage match or the best example of what makes Joe's title reign special, but it is something that sticks out of the year and of the reign. It's not just another great match. It's 
it's something a little different. It's something that's a little special in a way, and so that's why it's my number three. Sounds like we're going to have the same top three in some order or another because this is my number three also. Um, I've loved this match for years, and you said everything about Joe. I'm going to talk about Jay Briscoe. Um, this was an incredible performance by, what was he, 19, 20 years old at this point? Jay Briscoe. Um, just, you know, just like the, the, the comebacks, the, the moments, the, the blood. <laughs> you know, he one of the most incredible blade jobs uh, good and bad that you'll ever see in your life, right? We talked on our review about all the different elements of this blade job, um, but it was not just that. It's like all the different moments, you know. Like in some ways, this was a squash match, but then Joe's—I mean, but Jay's big hope spots were just so spectacular. Once they start throwing the big moves, and like that one spot where, like, you know, the cage breaks, and they and Jay and Mark both realize, oh my god, we can get out of the cage here. Uh, like that was such an incredible spot. Just the pacing of the match, the crowd reactions. This was a spectacular match. Just so good and short enough that I feel like anybody could watch this match. It's a breezy watch if you're okay with blood, and you'll just have a great time. And I think we can do our top two because I think we both kind of know how it's going to go out. Where my number two is Samoa Joe versus CM Punk from Joe versus Punk 2. My number one is Samoa Joe versus CM Punk from All-Star Extravaganza 2. That's their third and final match. Matt, what were your top two? Yeah, my number two is Joe versus Punk 3 from All-Star Extravaganza 2. And my number one is Joe versus Punk 2 from Joe versus Punk 2. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, we kind of went into a lot of this on our last episode where we kind of covered the whole trilogy on the All-Star Extravaganza 2 show. So, but just to recap, I mean, Matt, I'll just say for me, these top five, like I I felt like my bottom three, I could have shuffled them into different orders. That was hard. I felt like my top two were a very clear top two. We've talked about why we've leached like the other one a bit better. But in my opinion, would you agree that these two matches are kind of like one level in a great year for Ring of Honor's top end matches? I feel like these two matches, whatever order you put them in, are kind of at a level above everything else. Yeah, I mean, the only match that I really could say that I've seen in the other two years that compare to these is the, for me, is the low-key versus Danielson match from the second ROH show. But what puts these show, these two matches at a different level is, you know, like that they're part of like a greater arc, you know, a great feud that's like building and, you know, a rivalry and like two characters have been established for years, whereas those two guys just had a match. So like, I am very interested to see if in 2005, 2006, 2007, if there is a single match that can top these two matches um, for everything that they everything that they offer as like a regular watcher of ROH. And, and I have a hard time feel, believing that they can. <laughs> One thing that's interesting is when we look at our 2002 match of the years, like I had a, the three-way from Era of Honor Begins, you just had Strick Key, Danielson. Um, those matches don't really have storylines. And our match of the year... For 2003, you know, that was built around a very heated, angry feud, Crino and Homicide. And this year, Joe versus Punk was built around a very intricate storyline that really built off their history and the history of Joe's place in the company. And when you look at the matches, you know, if we talk about, oh, you know, Joe versus Punk 2 was the first match in Ring of Honor to get five stars from the Observer. If we look at those signed post matches that get five stars in the Observer in 05 and 06, Joe versus Kobashi and uh, the Dragon Gate six man in 2006, 
those matches are completely context free. There's no story to them. And I wonder if we're going to miss that. I mean, I'm sure like, I want to go out on a limb and say, we're probably going to like those matches, but I'm wonder if we're going to miss the match that isn't just great, but great. Cause it has like history behind it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's something to see. I, I, I really don't know. I think it's just going to, they're just a different kind of great match. Something I think is interesting, too, is the matches we both left out. These were the ones on my cutting room floor. Uh, Danielson versus Aries, best out of two out of three falls from testing the limit. Just a little too long. Survival of the fist final. Just the Aries-Danielson part is great. The rest is good, but not great. Um, and Aries, um, uh, Joe, we just watched. You know, great, great moment. But I feel Aries is, almost, is Mr. Honorable Mention in this category for me, I guess. Yeah, some other matches that I feel like are worth mentioning honorably is um, the uh, Generation Next Tag Team match, um, which is uh, Evan, Strong, Aries, and Shelly against Walters, the Briscoes, and um, shoot, who's the, who's the last guy? Jimmy Jacobs, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Was was that him? No. No, it was... Uh, was it uh, Matt Wal- Stryker or... I th- uh, see, this is why we couldn't actually put it on the list. We don't remember yeah, exactly who was in it. You can't be a warrant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I don't actually think it was Matt Stryker. I think it was Jimmy Rave, actually. Um, but um, but it was... No, that was a really damn good match. But yeah, the the Survival of the Fittest match and Joe versus Punk won were the two biggest matches that didn't quite make my list. I also really, really liked Joe versus Homicide from Death Before Dishonor Night 1. Um, I thought that was a really good match. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think the matches that we picked, um, I feel pretty comfortable with. And finally, we get to the main event of our awards, the Wrestler of the Year. In 2002, I had Low Key. You had American Dragon. In 2003, I, we had the same three, but again, different, slightly different order. I had Paul London, then Samoa Joe, then Homicide at one. You had Samoa Joe, then Paul London, then Homicide at one. I have a feeling, I don't think it's a stretch to say, we're probably going to have the same Wrestler of the Year again this year. Uh, not yes. the same. Jack, Evan, Jack Evans. <laughs> Jack Evans. But, um, Matt, who was your number three for Wrestler of the Year in 2004? This would be the American Dragon, Brian Danielson. Um, he maybe could have had a shot at number two if he was around more. But even the times that he was around, you know, great matches, two great matches with Homicide, the two ex- uh, spectacular matches with uh, Austin Aries, especially that Survival of the Fittest match. But even being able to have a really good 75-minute match is impressive. Um, one of Joe's best matches ever. Um, yeah, and also he's just, uh, you know, good match with Liger. You know, two, actually two good matches with Liger. Some other pretty good stuff. Uh, you know, good match with Alex Shelley. Um, but also he was gone a lot of the year too. That can't be taken away. But he also, he also was able to expand his personality a little bit with the short haircut, acting kind of wacky, playing to the crowd more, doing more promos. I think he had a, a really, really good year. Brian Danielson would have been my number four. He was my last cut. Um, I love the guy, but he wasn't there the whole year, which I don't think hurts him very much because he had such a good output when he was there. But I also think there was a bunch of matches this year where I was expecting great and I just got very good. Like the second homicide match, the Alex Shelley match was just good. And quite frankly, the low key match we just watched kind of pushed him down to four because there was a number of matches but his top end matches he are really really great and um 
I, it pains me to put him at four, but I had to go number three, Homicide, be, our number, our winner from last year, because Homicide was one of the rocks of this company this year. There were three guys that were just consistently, they carried the company in a year of flux where guys bounced in and, you know, bounced out and new guys started to come in halfway through. Homicide was one of those guys where he, he does not have the top end matches of last year. He does not have a match as great as do or die against Joe, as great as, um, versus Carino. He doesn't have as one even as great or as much of a spectacle as the Trent Acid matches, but he has a lot of very good. And, I, and Homicide's one of those guys where, even if he has a match that's just good, like I never leave a homicide match without feeling like he worked his ass off to try to make that match good. Right. And on top of that, you know, he was the center of the big heel stable of the year. The homicide Joe feud carried a lot of the year. And, um, I, you know, he just, this company desperately needed some top guys to be, to give them some consistency. Homicide was one of those guys. He's my number three, Matt, who's your number two? Yeah, well, as far as, just want to mention as far as Homicide, I, um, you know, I, I loved Homicide. I, I guess just for me, ROH is a promotion all about matches, and I just couldn't think of the top match of the year candidates for Homicide. So that's why he didn't quite make my top three. Um, my number two is CM Punk. I feel like that should be pretty obvious. Um, besides the Joe matches, you know, and the, uh, and the, um, the match that he had with, um, you know, in, in Chicago with the, the, the street fight with Moff and Whitmer, you know, he also just had, you know, good matches uh, with the Briscoes. He had lots of really good promos. His stuff with Steamboat was very memorable. Um, he had he was pretty good on commentary a lot of the year, honestly, a lot better than he was last year, except for some of the, you know, upsettingly misogynistic moments that he had. Um, but he had a, you know, uh, him and Homicide, like that's actually one of their, both of their best matches this year, that, that opener that you just, I just totally had forgotten about until I watched it. Um, couple good matches with AJ Styles. Um, CM Punk really came into his own in the ring this year and continued to be really good as, as a character. CM Punk is also my number two. Um, I, no one was called on by Ring of Honor to do more this year. He was one of the top stars. At one point, he was the top heel. Later, he was the top babyface. He was the trainer at their school. He was the part-time color commentator. Anytime they needed to do a big in-ring promo against a legend, you know, Punk was one of the shortlist guys, you know, with Steamboat doing that storyline, then later doing that impromptu promo with Foley. He was just like Mr. Everything for the company. And, um... Yeah, he had the great – he even had – stretched a bit where, he, you know, he had the great Joe trilogy and he had other really good – the matches you mentioned in the ring, like straight-up wrestling matches. But then he had the, the great hardcore tag brawl that you don't expect from a guy like Punk. So my number two as well. And Matt, um, you t- t- tell the people who are second – for the second straight year who are um, – and I just want to make note. We do not tell each other our awards before, but I just – I know for a fact. Matt, who is our Wrestler of the Year for 2004? That would be Jack. No. Um, yes. Um, I am surprised. I'm surprised you didn't make your top three, though. I know how much you love Jack Evans in 2004. Um, but, um, no, uh, I mean, what, what else can you say about Samoa Joe? I feel like we've talked about him so much. You know, one of the legendary years in American wrestling for any wrestler in our lifetime – um, turning the, that belt into something special, turning the company into something special, carrying himself like the man. Um, 
I, I don't even. I feel like I've said all I can say about Samoa Joe. He's the wrestler of 2004 for ROH. Yeah, for me, I would just say like, um, you know, all five of if you might have noticed, all five of my matches of the year for this year were Samoa Joe matches. And um, but more than that, he's just his presence, his title reign, just the uniqueness of the you know of of him being that kind of playing that role. How rare it was at this point in wrestling history, and even like. After the Feinstein scandal, you know, I've, we talked about on the At Our Best episode, one of the things I remember mentioning is like, you know, Kerry Silken did no PR. Uh, Rob Feinstein, for understandable reasons, did no PR. Doug Gentry said almost no thing to the public. It was almost all Gabe, but it was Joe too. Joe made very strong public statements. Um, Joe did an entire multiple-part torch talk. You know, it was just him and Gabe who did the torch talks for Ring of Honor kind of addressing this. Like Joe kind of took the reins of the company both in the ring and out of the ring and was like, I'm not going to let this die. And in fact, I don't know if any if Ring of Honor would have died if any one wrestler left. But if there was one wrestler whose absence might have killed the company in the wake of that scandal, it might have been Joe. Like, I don't think there's anyone else you can where you can even ha- like. I think even Punk or Homicide or Danielson, they would have survived without. With Joe, I have to say, I'm not sure they might have died without Samoa Joe after this. And, yeah, it's, um, it's tough to say, but he definitely would have been the one. He was the beating heart of the company. Him, yeah, him, and him guy, and Punk, him and Punk, but especially him. Yeah, he's the only guy where for me it's even a thing I can debate with myself and go, well, maybe, maybe he was the one holding it up. But my honorable mentions other than Danielson would just be Austin Aries and Jack Evans. You know, they both had half the year. Jack Evans didn't have one great match, but Jack Evans, it did pay me to leave him off the list. Matt. It drove me nuts because he's just fun in every single performance. There's not a Jack Evans performance in a match this year that I haven't enjoyed. Even if he's only just doing two or three spots in a tag match, every time he entertains me, he just hasn't been in a great match, and he wasn't around all year. But it is what it is. C'est la vie. Um, next up. So that ends our awards. Um, I'm going to go to uh, – normally I would do just the Observer Awards. This year I was thought I was going to do the Torch Awards. But quite frankly, the Torch Awards aren't that um, interesting, and this is already a Herculean – just an incredibly long episode. So I'll just say um, the Torch Awards are not fan votes. They're uh, just the votes of the four, five or six columnists. Uh, Joe finished third for Wrestler of the Year behind Benoit and Triple H. Um, and, just... and remember, the Torch just covered American wrestling. Yes. Um, let me just – Chris Benoit, if you're talking about things that make you feel uncomfortable, Chris Benoit won a lot of awards this year, Matt. Um, best I mean, I mean, Benoit. I voted for him a lot of awards that year, so. How dare you? No, um, Benoit won rest, in-ring wrestler of the year. Eddie Guerrero won second. Joe got third. Um, blah, blah, blah. Just doing a quick uh, – I'll have, you know, Doug – I mean, Pat McNeil of the Torch gave Doug Williams five for best in-ring wrestler. So a little love to Doug Williams. Um let me just see here quickly. I'm just going to skip by these. Okay, Matt, this is what bugged me. I got to say this before we move on to the Observer. So the Torch has best TV series and best pay-per-view and they – or best DVD or something like that. And they included uh, Ring of Honor as a best TV show. So instead of Ring of Honor – them voting for any individual show, they just said the Ring of Honor tape series was the third best TV series of the year. Yeah, that's goofy. Definitely. In fact – 
in fact, Bruce Mitchell gave the Ring of Honor tapes as his number one TV series of the year. He writes, don't tell me they're not a TV series. I played them in a series on my TV set. <laughs> Matt, he really said that. Bruce uh, Mitchell is so funny. Yeah. Um, their match of the year, they had um, Triple H versus Mike, Shawn Michaels versus Benoit from WrestleMania 20. Their runners-up, um, Benoit, I mean, Samoa Joe versus CM Punk from Punk Joe versus Punk 2 finished second. And I think that's enough for that. We can go finally to the Observer Awards. The Observer Awards, always interesting to me because they were voted on by anyone that reads the Observer could or subscribe could vote. It wasn't a panel of experts. It wasn't Dave. And this is always really interesting. And it just is a, just a bunch are, of damn idiots like me. Yeah, and generally people that are – people that would vote for Crispin Benoit, those heartless – no. <laughs> uh, but And generally they were also you know more worldly, although they still, I've found, had certain biases to certain major promotions in certain countries, but more worldly. So – Wrestler of the year. I'm going for these awards. I'm generally, unless you ask Matt for some clarification, I'm going to do what I've done in other years, which is just read the winner and anyone that was in Ring of Honor that got made placed, and then whatever comments Dave may or may not have had. So, the Lou Fizz Ric Flair Award for Wrestler of the Year. You have to remember this is an award where that's not just best in the ring; that's best in the ring plus drawing ability. Kenta Kobashi won. Benoit finished second. Samoa Joe finished third, and Dave had a bone to pick with that. Dave wrote, Samoa Joe, 25, is certainly an unlikely contender for the award. He held the Ring of Honor title during the entire year period covered by the award and had many great matches. Still, he's a virtual unknown to most wrestling fans, even in his native country, headlined for a company that doesn't even have one television outlet. It's probably not popular in a lot of circles, but I can't see how Joe could be ranked ahead of Triple H. And he was. Uh, Triple H finished seventh. I guess it's just how much people valued each different element of that. Like, people valued the performance more than the drawing, I guess. I don't know. Next, we got to Most Outstanding Wrestler, and this is just in-ring. Chris Benoit won. Kento Kabashi finished second. Brian Danielson finished third above Samoa Joe. Samoa Joe finished fifth. CM Punk finished eighth, or I mean ninth, above Kurt Angle. So, some heavy Ring of Honor representation there. Um... Feud of the year. Triple H versus Shawn Michaels versus Chris Benoit was the feud of the year. Then Randy Orton versus Mick Foley. And then Joe versus Punk finished third. Joe versus Homicide finished fourth. And CM Punk versus Ricky Steamboat finished ninth. So for a company that, you know, people said, oh, they don't do storylines and all that stuff. It had three of the top nine feuds of the year. Um, moving on. Tag team of the year. Matt, um, blood's going to boil. Uh, Kenta and Naomichi Marafuji won. America's Most Wanted finished second. Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero were the third best tag team of the year, according to the readers of The Observer. Above Ultimo Guerrero and Ray Buccanero. Above Christopher Daniels and Elix Skipper. Above Masao and Ogawa. Above Colt Cabana and CM Punk, which finished seventh. And above the Briscoes, which finished ninth. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> Yeah, that's maybe one of the reasons why I got stirred up, maybe. Stuff like that. Um, most improved, Randy Orton won. Samoa Joe finished fifth. Austin Aries finished eighth. Um, I guess Joe had a better 2004 uh, than 2003, but he was pretty great in 2003. And I feel like Austin Aries got this award because to a lot of people, knowing about Austin Aries was an improvement over not knowing who he was. Like, I feel like that's yeah. sometimes what this award is. It's like, oh, I didn't know who this guy was till this year. Exactly. I'm um, sure that's true about Joe for a lot of people also. CM Punk was number 11. He was the first honorable mention for that award, by the way. 
Best on interviews. Mick Foley won. CM Punk finished fifth. Jim Cornette finished tenth. So I guess they kind of cast Ring of Honor. Most charismatic. No one from Ring of Honor hit the top ten. Punk finished eleventh. Mick Foley finished nineteenth. Colt Cabana finished twentieth. Colt Cabana getting into the mix there. Good for him. I feel like um, Punk probably should have been in the top ten. Probably, definitely. Like, let's see who finished above him. Uh, Randy Orton, Naoya Ogawa, Sean Michaels, Chris Jericho, Ric Flair, John Cena, The Rock. I, don't I, know, know, I mean, yeah, those, are, those are charismatic guys, I have to admit. <laughs> Bob Sapp, Kenta Kobashi. Like, it, it, it's a pretty tough category at this point. Yeah. Um, best technical wrestler, Chris Benoit won. Danielson finished second. Doug Williams got sixth. And Nigel McGinnis got ninth. So good for Nigel. Um, Bruiser Brody Memorial Award for Best Brawler. Benoit won. Joe finished second. Homicide got seventh. CM Punk got 11th for Best Brawler. So maybe just that hardcore tag match went a long way because I don't know if he did that many brawls, but he finished 11th in the award. Just a bunch of people, just a bunch of people seeing the Raven matches a year late. He was considered a better brawler than Mick Foley because he finished 12th. Um, best flying wrestler, Rey Mysterio won, AJ Styles finished second, Jack Evans finished third, Dave Rowe on this category. This is an interesting category. If the category was best wrestler who sometimes flies, Mysterio should get it. But I don't think when it comes to innovative flying moves and doing them in great matches that Styles can finish behind Mysterio. There is the power of the reputation here, as this is Mysterio's sixth win, breaking Liger's all-time record he shared with him at five. Evans is actually the best flyer of them all, but he's nowhere close to the level of all-around wrestler as those in the top ten. Six of this year's top ten were repeaters from last year. Dropping out of the list and Matt, I love this is a whole. This is, I wish Dave was still this funny. So Dave wrote, dropping out of the list were Teddy Hart, and he writes in brackets, lack of visibility due to insanity. Juventud Guerrero, he writes in brackets, lack of visibility due to a more to a more mild case of insanity. Dragon Kid and Amazing Red never came back fully from knee problems. So I like two people missed out because of insanity. Um, next up, most underrated. Brian Danielson finished 12th. Paul London won that award. Poor Paul London. Promotion of the year. Ring of Honor finished second behind only pro wrestling Noah. Very high praise. Uh, Dave wrote on this one. It was a three promotion race this year. Of the three, Pride was by far the most commercially successful and also put on the consistently hot big shows. Ring of Honor is a cult thing. Ring of Honor is a great independent and I don't feel insulted watching it, but I'm not sure I see it at this level. And I don't know. I mean, I look at the rest of this list. Is it better than WWE? Yeah. Is it better than CMLL? I, I can't really speak on that. Would I put it better than Ohio Valley Wrestling? Yes. Would I put it better than TNA? Yes. 2004 New Japan? Probably. IWA itself? Yes. I mean, I don't know. But um, worked match of the year. Kenta Kovashi versus Junakiyama from July 10th at the Tokyo Dome 1. Then Triple H versus Shawn Michaels versus Chris Benoit from WrestleMania 20. Then Punk versus Joe from Joe versus Punk 2. Then Joe versus Punk. And then in seventh was the first Joe versus Punk match. The third match did not qualify from the schedule because Dave Meltzer's crazy. Uh, rookie, oh, and he has weird rules. Rookie of the year was Petey Williams. Austin Aries finished fifth. Here's who finished above Austin Aries in rookie of the year. Petey Williams, Tetsuhiko Nakajima, Ken Doan, and Chad Toland. So... People, Shingo, people definitely saw good things for Ken Doan back then. He was considered like a huge prospect. Um, best non-wrestler, Paul Heyman. Cornette was third. Steamboat sixth. 
Foley seventh. Julia Smokes finished ninth, Matt. Good for Julia Smokes. And Prince Donna finished twelfth. So Ring of Honor had quite a lot of the non-wrestling wrestlers. Um Best television announcer. This is where it gets funny, Matt. Um, Mike Tanay was the best television announcer. Mark Nolte got sixth. Uh, CM Punk got eighth. Jimmy Bauer got tenth. And now here's the crazy thing, Matt. Worst television announcer. Jimmy Bauer got sixth. He was simultaneously, according to the obviously because different people vote for different things, the tenth best TV announcer and the sixth worst. I'm going to go as far as to say this. If people listen off, they know my opinions. I'm going to say that they were wrong on both lists. He was not one of the 10 best. He was not one of the 10 worst. Yeah, um, I agree. Best major wrestling show was the Tokyo Dome Pro Wrestling Noah show. Number 10 was at our best from Ring of Honor, the highest charting Ring of Honor show of the year for them. And then the only other Ring of Honor show that charted was Ring was Death Before Dishonor 2, the Chicago Night. So that's part two, finished 14th. Um, at our best, didn't even our make our list. So I don't know. I, I, I was I considered it, but no, it didn't make it. Yeah, this one's funny, Matt. We're getting through this most disgusting promotional ta- tactic. Number one, what a what a innocent time we lived in when the worst thing that happened in wrestling was the Kane lead a pregnancy wedding miscarriage angle. Uh, what a world where you know there's gonna be ten things this year that are far more disgusting than that in a real world setting. But Matt, this is what I love. Number eight was a tie between Ring of Honor lying about Feinstein being out of the company and TNA using Lex Luger. Those got the same number of votes. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> well, at first I had the same reaction to you, but then I had to realize this was after um, – not that long after um, Elizabeth was found dead of a drug overdose in Luger's house. And a lot yeah. of people kind of blamed Luger for that. But he wasn't charged with any crime or anything, right? No, he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, and I have to. I did laugh, whatever, because they're literally on top of each other, tied for eighth. And it just says TNA using Lex Luger, and then Ty Ring of Honor lying about Feinstein being out of the company. <laughs> That's one hell of a tie. Um, who? Um, also, Matt, this is full. I'm just going to read a few others because this is always a fun category. So number two was the WWE Raw Diva Search. Number three was WWE Exploiting 9-11. The Diva Search was worse. Um, I, 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 feel, I feel like that's vague. What do you mean, Exploiting 9-11? Well, actually, their full thing was WWE Exploiting 9-11 in Hassan Angle. Oh, okay. Number four was... I, 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 I don't know. I, I know we're like five hours in and I shouldn't be ranting, but it annoys me that the thing that they said was offensive about that was that they were exploiting 9-11 and not that they were racist. <laughs> number four was JBL goose-stepping to WWE title. Um, number five was Cena and Carlito Angle playing off Brody stabbing. Number six was Triple H pushed all year. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I love that award. Anyway, um, best booker was Gabe Sapolsky won the award. Um, promoter of the year was Nobuyuki Sakiabara from Pride and Dream Stage Entertainment. Then Misawa. Then I love this. So most promoters of the year are just like the name of the promoter, right? This year, I feel like the voters didn't know who ran Ring of Honor after the fault of Sapolsky. I mean, after the fault of the Feinstein scandal. So this is how they finished third. This is how it is written in the Observer: Kerry Silken slash Gabe Sapolsky space space ROH. That's what one third for promoter of the year. Basically, I don't know whoever runs Ring of Honor. <laughs> and finally, best gimmick: CM Punk straight uh, JBL one. CM Punk finished fifth. Generation Next finished tenth. 
Carlito finished second. Eugene finished third. That history did not was not kind to second and third. But no, Matt. That brings us finally to the end of this insane show. Thank you for sticking with us, people. Thank you, Matt. I guess I am my man. You're a trooper. We can just yeah, my voice is going, but we can preview just briefly. 2005. I'll just say 2002 had 12 shows. 2003 had 20 shows. 2004 had 23 shows. Matt. 2005 has 34 shows. We're going to be doing this year for goddamn ever, which is good because it's going to be that long to recover from this year end episode. Yeah. But holy crap, there's a lot that happens in 2005. Um, Including me beginning to go to ROH shows on a regular basis. Let's not, let's not bury the lead here. Yeah. I'm legit looking forward to like your live takes, although also we'll probably get jealous. I mean, the summer of punk, punk leaving, uh, Joe versus Kobashi getting five stars. Um, Kenta, Marafuji, Manhattan Mayhem. D- Danielson becoming the champion. Jamie Noble becoming the champion. Um, the, enti- the entire James Gibson run from start to finish. Yeah, Nigel McGuinness becoming the uh, starting his pure championship run. Like the Claudio Amer- Castagnoli yes. debuts in ROH. Um, the 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 Embassy Generation Next feud happens. It's a uh, it's a lot. It's insane. The best of the American Super Junior Tournament fiasco. And by the end of the year, we have a completely different announced team that will actually be like the first truly like solid, no one complaining about it, stable announced team Ring of Honor has had in its history. It's it's crazy. And it all starts, Matt, next episode with a show. It all begins, Matt, with It All Begins because that's the name of the next show. We're going to have Joe versus Nigel McGuinness. We're going to have um, – Brian Danielson versus Hamasa in a tap-out match, the first of their series. We're going to have Austin Aries' first title defense, main eventing against Colt Cabana. And um, I guess plugs through the years at gmail.com is our email, T-H-R-O-H, at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF for our Twitter handles. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only plugs board. And Matt, do you have anything else to say? Because, oh my God, we have done a lot tonight. Nope, it's 1 a.m. <laughs> Matt, I am so sorry. No. Good night, everybody. I hope you goddamn appreciate what we do for you on a Sunday night. Thank you, Trevor Dame. Thank you, Matt Feuerstein. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. Good night.